Good morning and welcome to The Other Faces. Welcome to Scraps and Scrolls, part 19 of 19 for A Dance with Dragons. We are at the end. We have reached the peak of not only the final book so far of A Song of Ice and Fire, but of our grand reread project, Valor Reader, Scraps and Scrolls. We are here. We've reached the summit. Fire the cannons, ring the bells, welcome everybody. It's so very wonderful to have you here for this momentous occasion. How did we reach it? I'm not quite sure, but here we are somehow after so, so long and so many hours and pages of documents and a great big podcast and, well, a lot of fun. I hope you'll agree we've reached the end. This is what we'll deal with today. I am Sir Buckley, your resident green person here on the aisle, and I'm speaking to you from a timely, sunny, sunny England. This past weekend was scorching hot. It was wonderful. Springtime was very much in the air. The grass is all exploding up from the ground, getting nice and thick. You can be sure that Puppy Dog is enjoying that at the moment. So I think the weather knows what we're dealing with this week. It knows this is a time for celebration, so it sends out its very best, and we thank good old sunshine just for that. As I say, this is a big a big landmark in the other faces in this podcast and what we've been doing. So we're going to have to address that and talk about that because it's, it's weird, it's emotional in its way and it's a great time for reflection as well. But we'll save a bit of that for later. In fact, we'll save even getting to this episode just for a little bit later. We've got a couple of things to cover before we get going. First off, did we get through the five-hour podcast? Has everyone recovered? I hope your ears are okay. Yes, that's right, part 18, five hours. And you might have seen, actually, the raw recording of that before I edited out all my rubbishness was six hours and 20 minutes. So that might give you an impression of just how much had to go into that particular episode, how if I'm actually recording that, and how far we've come as a podcast. Remember what these episodes used to be like, how long they were? Now we had five hours just for four chapters. It really does blow the mind and i'll admit straight up i was kind of proud of it i was just amazed that i had that much to say that i had that much to share with everyone out there and luckily you were all for it you had multiple messages from people saying hey the longer the better you were saying that when we got up to three hours well add on an extra two and apparently you still very much enjoyed so that's great thank you everybody for the sharing and the downloading and everything if i'm going to share some numbers like i have been the last couple of weeks because when the numbers go up you want to share them i'm going to do that again right here because that special extra long episode with its major landmarks of quentin and barristan and of course john and then all of our guesses around castle black and when you enjoyed that bit as much as i did it resulted in yet more landmarks i know i seem to be saying this every week don't i that we're breaking some record or another well here's another one because Last week, when that episode was released, the Friday was our new highest ever day for total downloads in one day. We reached 459, with obviously the majority of those being episode 18. So wow, another peak reached. And it didn't stop there. Oh no, the weekend brought another massive, even bigger milestone. I might have mentioned already that we were heading towards this, but just in case I haven't. You might remember that January 2021 was our biggest ever month for downloads. 3,644. And yes, put the disclaimer in. I know that's small change. Uh, other podcasts find that down the back of their sofa, but for us, it's huge. So that was the biggest we'd ever had. 3,644. February, with less days, of course, wound up with 4,000. 
536. So not only is this our biggest ever month, it's our biggest ever month by nearly a thousand downloads. So a round of applause for everybody. Thank you so, so much for making that possible. Thank you for this part of the book, George, which people obviously find so very interesting. And for everyone else that helps along the way, like Aziz and the Share and History of Westeros and everybody else, Radio Westeros, you know the people. So as you can see, what great timing, what great vibes to have here on the aisle. The sun is shining. We've got new landmarks. We're at the end of our great big series. Well, just wonderful and I'm just appreciative. Appreciative and emotional. You know I get emotional. I'm definitely not hiding that today of all days. Now I mentioned History of Westeros and Radio Westeros and that's timely of course because this past weekend you might have seen I was lucky enough to be invited back onto History of Westeros for their Dance with Dragons review their roundup, their wrap-up, where myself, Aziz, of course, Anashea, Lady Gwyn, and Nina Friel were all there to talk about this entire book and kind of everything that comes along with it. So that was awesome to go back for another wrap-up, to talk with those guys, to revisit ideas I've already had during this book, learn about what they saw from it, looking a bit towards wins here and there, of course, and just generally have a chat about this wonderful book with wonderful friends. It was a great time. I know many of you were there in the chat anyway, so that was great to see. Wonderful to have you there. If you haven't, you can always go and check it out over on History of Westeros, of course. I mean, like I say, I know the grand majority of you are anyway. But it's a great, great listen. I had a lot of fun. And if I'm honest, if you'd asked me before we even started this project, hey, we're going to do these reviews at the end of each book, which one do you think would be the hardest to talk about? I would have picked Dance, if I'm being honest. But I think I actually found it the easiest to kind of wrap up and talk about and discuss with everybody. So that was pretty interesting. And we've also had lots of great conversation about the themes and the messages and what's going on and every, I mean you don't need me to tell you what great minds like Lady Gwyn and Nina and Aziz can come up with so if you haven't heard it don't worry about listening to my part go and listen to them because they've got great stuff to talk about and yes if you were wondering there's normally some kind of technical glitch of these wrap-ups and thankfully I provided that I kept getting kicked out in the meeting but I always came back so don't you worry about that go and have a listen go and have a watch make sure those guys know how much you love them as well that would be wonderful and you know, before we start, I have to give the biggest, a bigger even than usual thanks to our wonderful patrons who helped so much with keeping this podcast going. There's no way we would have been able to do a five hour episode without you guys. We wouldn't have even got this far in the project without you guys. So my biggest thanks of all. And in fact, with the shout outs today, I'm going to extend them a little bit. Not only are we going to have our normal notables, I'm going to lower it down a tier as well to the five dollar tier. So just say thank you to more people because well you're all so loved so very much and especially with the higher interaction of late that has kept up i'm very thankful to say i love chatting to you guys about well whatever might be the might be the books might be the podcast could be anything it's always wonderful so please do keep that up and allow me to thank you i'm sorry if i get anyone's names wrong but we'll go for it anyway i'm gonna thank brandy o grizzly m julie b little wolfbird philip d glenn t of course agan the sixth of course km of course crystal f Jen A, Devorah L, Steve M, our dearest Virginia, with my normal apologies for pronunciation, A and A, Chloe K, and Archmaester June, healer of the lesser poxes. Thank you one and all. Thank you to all patrons of all tiers. Thank you for all listeners. How we got to this stage with these types of numbers and this kind of community blows my mind away, honestly. I'll try not to tear up. Maybe we'll save that for the end. We've still got some chapters to do, but honestly, just wow. Thank you, everyone. Now I'll put this in at the beginning before we get going here. Yes, Scraps and Scrolls closes for A Song of Ice and Fire, for the main series of course. Yet the aisle does not close. You need not worry. There is a future still to be had. And we're going to have some different things. No, I'm not going to give the announcements right now. 
And we'll save that for another time. Let's keep our focus on what we're doing today. But they are coming. So that's all I'll say for now is that don't worry. I'm not going anywhere just yet. Might not be having any five-hour episodes anytime soon. And maybe we'll look at the frequency and stuff like that. But we'll talk about all that later. For now, I'll just say I have ideas. We'll see how they all come together. But if you have requests, if you have wants, if you just have ideas for what might sound cool, if you want to be involved in any way, then just get in touch. Tweet me, message me. You can send an email to otherfaces at gmail.com. It's lovely to hear from you anyway, but I especially want to hear from you about what you want from your aisle. It is your aisle after all. I'm just kind of caretaking it. And I'll be putting up a post on Patreon as well to this effect later. So we'll see what comes of that. But I want to do what you guys want to hear. And what's a zero point, isn't it? So I've got some ideas of my own, but I'm willing to adapt those. I'm willing to shift around. And the main point is the aisle is not closing just yet. So don't you worry. We'll talk about that more at the end. We've got a kind of a big deal to sort out first. We still have a book to finish. And if I'm going to be honest with you, hey, we might get close to five hours today. Last week's document, I think I might have mentioned, came at like 93 pages. Well, this one's something like 71, 72. So it's going to be a long one. I hope you're prepared. But of course, how could we do any different for the last episode of Scraps and Scrolls? What are we talking about today? It's not just me going to be waxing on about my own podcast the entire time. Don't worry. We will actually have some content. And what is it? Well, let me tell you. Our first chapter today is Barristan Four, The Queen's Hand. Yes, we have another Barry chapter. We're gifted with that. We have the fallout of what happened from Barristan's chapter, from Quentin's chapter, and now Marine is basically going to war and Barry's in charge. So we have a lot to talk about there. We stay in vaguely the same area, the same continent at least, with a lot of shared plot lines as we finally get our queen back. Daenerys 10. She returns to us. We find out what's been going on. We find her picking a new path, one that many of us are really, really behind. And we have a lot, a lot of Targaryen talk. That is it for the main chapters, the normal chapters, but we have an epilogue today. Of course we do. It's Kevin Lannister down in King's Landing, where he's going to talk about basically everything still to come and wins. It's a real roundup. It's a real look forward. We have lots to talk about him. We have lots to talk about the plot, of course. And then maybe we'll have some closing thoughts at the end, if my voice is still a thing. So while I could go on and on just about the momentousness that we have arrived at, the importance, obviously, of the final chapters of the close of this book and the book in general, and how it feels for this podcast to actually be here, I think we probably should just get on with it. All I'll say before we go is another thank you and another huzzah for everything that you guys have given this podcast. So thank you, thank you so very much. Let's do it one last time, shall we? Let's get going into Barristan 4, The Queen's Hand. So we've finally reached it, the final part of this reread project, the final three chapters of this book, A Dance with Dragons, and a more monumental moment we could not find. So how in the world do we even contextualise where we've got to? The end of what is not only, clearly, one of the very best works of fiction planet Earth has ever produced, but more importantly, it is a work that is so very very dear to all of us it means something you don't listen to a two-year-long reread project perhaps made up of two different podcasts for something you don't adore and let me tell you you certainly don't bother to be one of the ones making such a podcast unless you truly love them these things these books they matter to our souls whether for the tales they tell for the characters they've given or just for the experiences we've had reading them or beyond that the interactions we've had with the fandom across so many different platforms 
There's been friendships made, ventures started, any number of these amazing things that can happen just from picking up a book. Or perhaps you are more of a loner in reading these books and you don't interact with other people as much as others. And that's absolutely fine as well. That's just as worthy as anything else. Doesn't mean that they mean any less to you. Now we all have our favourite particular books of the series or the moments or storylines or what have you. We've covered quite a few of them as we've gone, haven't we? For this is a moment that can unify us all. For this is the end of our collective road. This is where we wait, hand in hand, we take up our vigils, waiting for George to continue to paint a path through his narrative forest. And that will happen when it happens, and we'll all wait patiently for whenever feels right for George. But let's just consider this. This moment in quote-unquote time, if you can call it that, the gap between winds and dance, will always be different to any other. It will always be unique in terms of this fandom and of the journey of these books. Yes, of course, we hope that its mere size won't be repeated between Winds and Dream, but more to the point, for the grand majority of us, this is where we joined the series. Dance's publication rubbed shoulders with the release of the show, which in turn saw an explosion of viewers, readers, and the fandom itself. Though many of you have been around since before then, and maybe shared in the wait for Dance or Feast or even before, there's never been a wait shared by so many people. The fandom has never been at this height and the wait between Dance and Winds has produced and introduced so many amazing writers and podcasters and YouTubers and so many other things that this fandom contains. Whether you're making content, whether you're just chatting about it, whether you're just enjoying it yourself, we've all shared in those experiences together. And together we will share wins, and then another wait, and then dream, and then whatever comes after. But for many of us, the default state, the thing we remember, the thing we think of first when we first found this fandom and this series, will be this period this ending that we approach now. And there's something that should be appreciated about that. This is our space. We made good friends here, both in real life and in the story, and we love it. It also marks a major moment for us. The people on the Isle of Faces are green folk. We're experiencing a similar peak. Like I've mentioned, last week we had a five-hour podcast, as if that's something that was imaginable at any point. That actually happened. I actually did that. And yes, I must admit, I do have some pride about it. And I can continue that pride because, again, as I mentioned earlier, we reached yet another new top month in downloads in February. We topped 4,000 for the first time. And let me tell you, let me confirm, those are heights most undreamt of by me. And it might be that this is our peak as well. We shall have to see. And if it is, fine by me. Maybe it's even fitting. But it certainly makes you think on how far we've come everything that we've experienced together, the amount of thanks and appreciation I have for all of you, and therefore this must be a marker of that as well here on our lovely aisle. But I will save the overall talk for later though. We can do that more towards the end. Before we get there, we do have three final chapters. And what do we know about them? Well, we have two normals and an epilogue although it feels like one normal and two epilogues to me, but we'll cover that later as we go. After the singular trip to the north last week, I mean, what a trip it was, pretty uh, pretty big time there, we returned to Marine first and then wider Essos second today to see how that area of the world and that plot has really dominated the book. Far more than you'd think, actually, especially in terms of the ending. The only book comparable, really, is Game of Thrones, where Daenerys does have a really high frequency of chapters towards the end, but in Storm, for example... She didn't even crack the final 10 chapters of that book, and obviously none of Essos did. Of course, back then she was the only POV in the area, on the continent, so we see how the times have changed, how this has become the hub and focus worthy of such dedicated attention from not only Daenerys, but several other characters as well now. And while we're talking about last week's chapters, Barristan certainly has a hell of an act to follow, doesn't he? I wouldn't want to do it. We not only have Jon's death, that big, massive 
unparalleled event and the rest of his chapter as well. We also had Quentin's death and Barry's own duel with Kratz. We had some of the biggest moments of the series, hence the five hours. Yes, I am going to keep bringing it up. So he's really got to bring something interesting to make this feel worthwhile and not like an afterthought. Especially when we remember how much Barristan 3 already felt like a final chapter with that duel and with the big cliffhanger. Luckily, I can confirm to you, Barristan 4 today, far from disappoints. This is absolutely not just an add-on flung in at the end here by George. This chapter will actually be nearly as long as Barristan 3 and probably actually fits in more plot points, especially in terms of really, really building us up for the big battle. How many times have I said that phrase lately, whether about this one, about the North, about Castle Black, whatever it might be? Well, it's extra true in this chapter, even more than usual. Short of actually buckling on the sword belts, we're all but ready to go here, and our thirst for such is damn palpable at the beginning of the chapter, just you wait until the end. Considering the subjects of the final two chapters, we can safely say that this is where all that build-up finally erupts. This is the end of that particular strength of Dance of Dragons. On top of the actual drawing of battle plans, which we always find so very interesting, we have heaps of fallout to deal with across the board, let's not forget. What happened since the dragons got out? Yes, I know it seems such a long time ago because of that Long John chapter, but there are dragons flying around Marine. So what chaos have they unleashed? And what about Quentin? Did he die? We definitely assume so, but then what are the reactions to that? What has become of his friends, those very best of friends in the world? And oh yes, another thing so easy to forget with everything going on, but his Darzolarak has just been ripped off of his undeserved throne by Barristan Selmy. We are sure the many factions of the Miranese Knot will have something to say about that, whether it's the general populace, or the revenge of the harpies, or even his friends over in Yunkai. Which leads us to our final Barristan chapter title, The Queen's Hand. Marine is a city of problems with no one with their hand on the tiller, and since he's the one who put them in that position, Barristan is the one who has to take over the rule, for now. The progression is clear just by looking at his chapter titles. He began as the Queen's Guard, not all that long ago to be honest. That's his natural position that he spent a lifetime working as. The only adjustment was in the gender of his boss. That's the position he adores, the one he finds most honour and comfort in, the one he'd want to do for the rest of his life if he could. But over the course of the last three chapters that hasn't been possible, especially since he's not had a queen to guard. As we know, he's been sucked into a world of plot and planning, a world that goes against his natural instincts and that he had to really emotionally wrestle with in terms of what his oaths allowed and what he felt he could morally do. He didn't want to be a part of it, he didn't even want to admit it existed in a way, but that was forced upon him. After a lot of back and forth, we finally saw him act upon that last week. Even if he still didn't feel right about it, he was able to view it as duty, as something needed, and as service to his queen. He'll now find the same this week. It is apparently easy to stumble down that road, to find himself in a position that he's never dreamed of or wanted in all of his life. He can get on board with commanding an army, sure, that's easy, but ruling a city? That's not him. He never wanted it, he doesn't like it, but it is what's required of him to help Daenerys, so do it he will, and we'll get to see in this chapter how well he rises to the challenge at least so far. It's the perfect cap-off for this unique arc within A Song of Ice and Fire. We've said it all before about his late introduction and incredibly high frequency, I don't need to repeat that for you, but the journey is clear enough just looking at those titles, let alone the actual chapter content. The inner struggle, the acting, the now reacting to what happened in Barry 3. The absolute refusal to give in on the hopes of Daenerys, that faith that he keeps, as well as us seeing those same dragons out doing what they want, which we do kind of like, which all makes for some superb chapter sequencing for what is coming up in Danny's chapter after this. For Quentin's end last time, we were able to look back over the long journey of his own four chapters. 
Barristan has been on an equally long journey physically, or even longer emotionally, but his actual arc is the complete opposite. It's short, it's fast, and they're all within metres of each other narratively, just a few chapters between them all. Yet as we've just described, we've seen the clear progression. We've seen so much more of Marine and the multiple players that Daenerys might not have been able to. The world of Marine has really been enriched for me personally over these Barry chapters, I'm way more invested in it now. So I would declare his arc an overall success. It's an arc like no other in this series, as I said when we first gained him. It's unique because of who he is as a person, it's unique for how it's presented in this short, sharp punch so late into the story, let's not forget. And it's very unlikely that kind of technique is going to be repeated again by George, so we should really appreciate it for what it is. Fire Barristan, we've not only had a different yet familiar take on the role and life of a Kingsguard, including the mistakes made within, but we've had someone dealing with decades of guilt. We've seen how that guilt is sometimes misplaced or not properly analysed by that person. We've been able to look back with a different appreciation of time that we simply don't get with other POVs. We've been able to see Daenerys from another angle, like I said, and just how much she ties this part of the world and all of its people together. Her importance is somehow even more pronounced after she's disappeared from the narrative. We've of course seen a different or expanded take on our long discussion of O's and honour that we've had all the way through all five books. We've looked back at key parts in history from someone who was actually there, who truly knew these figures that have loomed over the entire series, and who knows how important some of those memories will turn out to be in the future once we add further context and clues. Through Barristan, we saw a man who was a true veteran of war, far more so than any other character we get. Remember, this is only our second ever POV who fought on the Trident, the battle that really started it all. The first was Eddard Stark. So this is a man who knows what he's talking about, who knows the true reality and cost of war and when that is worth paying. In this, his whole story, not just his POV, we have a man making up for all that he didn't get to do before, for the choices he made, finally putting action to that guilt or doubt and doing what he believes he was supposed to do. And there's a certain word that I can't really think of here that'll probably come to me 10 seconds after I've finished recording, but it's almost like relief. That's what Barry gets by finally coming over here, serving his queen, doing right by his own duty and memory and what he should have done before. And though the events of his four chapters are foreign to him, sometimes distasteful, he's been able to act on those old wants, to do something for Danny and House Targaryen, and we'll only find more of that in this final chapter. Let's get to it now. We open with the fallout, both for the city and for the boy who thought he was a hero. Yes, I know it seems so long ago after that five-hour podcast, but George is going to remind us here. And in that same fashion, actually, he will pull no punches right from the beginning. We discover that Quentin doesn't get to die some noble, cinematic death of a brave speech or a final act of pride, and he doesn't even get to die in a quick instant either. That mercy is also denied him. The whole point of his death was to show the ugly reality, and that includes after the fact. Hence, we learn that our dearest Quentin has been made to suffer for three long days of agony. And that really hits the nail for us straight away. Everything happened so fast last time, in the middle of a, a forest of questions, that we really didn't have enough time for his actual death to sink in. As we did last week, let's remember our POV deaths. Ned and Catelyn, and technically Aerys if you really want to count him. Now we can also add Jon on, if I may be so bold, I think we assume that's what happened there. And for those first three at least, you can say that they died quickly, either by being beheaded or having their throat cut, which does undersell the intense trauma Catelyn was going through, I know, but let's just focus on the physical for a moment. Even Jon went down fairly quickly as far as we know, we don't have all the details there, but we're going to assume. But Quentin, ever unlucky, ever tragic Quentin, first had to burn alive, which we've spoken about plenty of times as one of the very worst pains imaginable, and then he had to suffer through that pain for three 
whole days. So George really has got his cruelty pen out, hasn't he? It's not enough to quash the dreams of adventure or doing right by your friends or anything like that. He also has to give Quentin the worst death of any POV character so far, although again, that could easily change come wins. We'll get further details on Quentin and his last hours in a moment, but let's just imagine the agony he would have gone through, how torturous it must have been, and again, we'll feel that cruelty from George. Quentin was a damn fool, especially in regards to his two best friends, who have also suffered greatly and who we will get to later. And he was wrong on several counts, but he was resolutely a good person. Misguided? Sure. Out of touch? Yes. But a good person who just wanted to do right by his friends and family and complete this task that he never asked for. Did he earn his death in terms of putting himself in that position? Absolutely. But did he deserve said death? No. And did he deserve three whole days of unimaginable pain and agony, likely knowing what was coming to him and maybe what he'd done to the world as well? No, I say he did not. And before we get any further, allow me to state here, just so we're clear. I absolutely believe that Quentin is dead. I know there are theories out there and people who steadfastly believe in them. That's great, good for you. And if it turns out you're right, then fantastic. But I'm not of that persuasion. I think it would be completely backwards to the point George was trying to make. And I'm really not sure how his survival could serve the story, especially if it's unknown by most. So I won't be talking about any such possibilities in this here chapter, just to let you know. Now, Quentin's fate is important and requires a lot of mind space, but it's not the only thing we have to remember here. The dragon still got out as long ago as it seems, and they are going to have a much more immediate effect than any one person dying. We know from Barristan's last chapter that they got out. We know from Quentin's final chapter, he was the one to essentially make that happen. But remember, first timers don't know all the details yet. We assume that after Quentin was burned, that both dragons simply got out the door, but we don't know the specific circumstances. Did everyone perish down there in the pit? Have Jerris and Archibald died too, and Barristan just isn't giving them the same attention? First timers don't know, and we just certainly hope not. That would be awful, because they are both great. But we probably guess not as well, because you'd figure that George wants them around to react to the tragedy. But what about the windblown? They could easily be dead, especially when they kicked off the fight in the first place. And we still don't know what their intentions actually were. If they wanted to just let the dragons out, if they were planning to kill the Dornish and take one for themselves, we might never find out now, to be honest. What we do know is the most important fact. They got out. And they've apparently added their own chaos to this Miranese knot, as Barristan subtly informs us that half the city has been on fire. They've only been saved by a divine rain, and the entire pyramids have been reduced to ruins in some cases, or taken over as layers by Rhaegar and others. So this is no small effect the pair are having on the city, and it's definitely a good tease for us. We want to know about what the dragons are up to. They aren't just flying around and roosting in the shadows. They are out and dangerous and have changed everything. Yes, 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 that's what we like to hear. We've been waiting for these dragons to finally affect the story. Let's just remember this is a city on the brink. Half the population despise the other. There's a secret organisation that may or may not still be in operation. They are under siege by one army, another assailing their way. They've lost one leader in Daenerys, and now another's been deposed in Hisdar. The Pale Mare is galloping through the streets, spreading and killing wherever it goes. And now, on top of that, you add two dragons to the mix, to burn and destroy and be as unpredictable as possible, hence the ending of the book, hence the title of the book. This is why Jon Snow was not the final chapter, obviously. And again, that perfectly mixes in with what we've got coming in the next chapter. And no one knows how to handle these dragons, how to defend against them. And let's face it, they are likely pretty pissed about their incarceration and not knowing where Danny is. So they're probably going to stretch their wings and spread some damn turmoil. And by doing so, they will really change the future of Marine, we're guessing, as well as the many tasks laid at the feet of Barristan and Salmi. Can there really be anything more important to add to this plot than two wild dragons? And it also brings up our expectations of Daenerys. Maybe she's going to come back in this chapter. Maybe she's going to come back in the next. First time is keep guessing because, again, it's just dragons, dragons, dragons today. But now we actually join Barry at the peak of the pyramid, looking past the city, in fact, out to the horizon where dawn is marked by a thin red slash. 
Perhaps it looks similar to the comet we once saw all the way back in Clash, you might remember. Many believe said comet heralded the coming of Daenerys Targaryen, and Barry is certainly hoping this fake copy will do the same. She will not have abandoned us. She would never leave her people, he thought. Now, abandonment is not something we've really addressed at any point. We've never really had a solid guess of where Danny is or what she's doing. We did hypothesise where she might go, but never seriously considered that she might just willingly leave them all behind forever, much as we might understand that urge. Marriston is clearly starting to worry about such a possibility, even if he can't admit it, and that's likely because out of everyone in the city, two people we have in the beginning of this chapter are the ones we'd feel the most bad for if it were true in Barriston and Masande. What George is clearly doing here is raising the question of where Danny is and why she's not come back, just to get that question back in our minds to prep for the next chapter where we'll get finally some answers it has been 18 full chapters since she left now don't forget so we might be getting a bit too used to it we've certainly had enough going on to fill our time such as last week that five hour podcast i'll say it again so george probably just wants to hit that spark in our mind then again it's understandable why barry would be thinking this he wants her back for so many reasons that we've covered in his previous chapters he's dedicated to her he wants to protect her but now he also has new reasons he's taken his die down and we know he sure as hell doesn't want to rule it'd be so much better if she were to swoop back in and take the space he's cleared for her but what about the dragons he's caught in a trap between wanting to protect the city but also wanting to keep the dragons alive for her not that they seem in any immediate danger right now there is one person in the world who's proven to be able to control them that's daenerys so that is who he needs right now we can almost feel it being said for daenerys to return and again we start asking questions of whether that's going to be the big ending for now though barristan abandons his eternally hopeful watch to go back into danny's chambers where quentin lies in danny's bed afforded this one kindness and honor now that he's suffered such a terrible fate and we can thank barry for such an act there's obviously very little they could have done for him but barristan being awesome as always has honored him as a knight and befitting his status as a member of one of the great houses barry had his doubts in the past but he never personally disliked quentin indeed he fully wanted daenerys to side with him even if that wasn't realistic we do know that barristan tried to warn quentin tried to save his life so there must be a bit of melancholy on his side that his warnings were ignored or i mean not just ignored he went the complete opposite way from them clearly barristan would have never imagine this to be the fate that befell quentin but it's still a bitter taste we don't get that from him yet or his opinions on what quentin was up to and how he came to be in this state but that's coming the mere description of the bed as bloody and smoking gets across a real image to us and it's not a nice one now we're told that at the very least quentin spent these three agonizing days in the company of not one but two great people as little masande who really shouldn't have to witness things like this has been tending to him as best she can in fact she's never left his side so that's just reminding us that she's also amazing plus it appears she's the only one to have heard what words quentin could manage to say over these past three days and i have to wonder if she'll ever repeat them for us we'd like to know barry notes that Missandei is the best of them the cupbearers were too cowardly to face such a sight and the blue graces never came because the pale mare is spread through them or because the city is in such chaos that no one is doing much of anything right now we have to ask and is this another hint that Missandei is more than she appears that she can put up with such horrible sights at her age or is she just that brilliant either way it's Missandei who makes the announcement that quentin has gone and it's barristan who gives the command to cover him with a sheet although not before thinking this he has no lips it would have been kinder if the dragons had devoured him that at least would have been quick this fire is a hideous way to die a very large part of why a key character had to be killed by dragon flame and why we had to be shown such afterwards is to get across the actual reality of dragons we tend to love them and think they're amazing because they're danny's children and they sound cool and we always love dragons plus we've been with them since birth and we know that danny loves them etc etc the reasons go on and on and sure we've seen them burn people before but we've never really hung around for the details of after we've never had it happen to a really key character and definitely not to a pov so much as we love them george wants to show their reality as a dangerous dangerous weapon we talked a bit about that last week but now we're really getting to see the after effects it's that magic sword without a hilt thing 
theme that has been present throughout and looks to be incredibly central for the end of the series if you ask me. I've brought that up at various times over the project, I won't do so again now, but that definitely I think is going to be what we find out about everything we love really. Starks, John, Daenerys, they'll all come up. Nothing comes without its price. Barristan wants to send Quentin's bones back to Dawn as another way to honour him. That fits into the kindness he wants to give not just as a knight, but also someone who is just a lad in Barry's eyes. But it's also likely because if he fell, if Barristan fell, he'd want someone to do right by him and get him back to the Stormlands. Should that be where he wants to rest, I assume so. He doesn't want to be left here, in this foreign land that he doesn't like. We've already seen him making sure that Grolier's memory is honoured by a burial at sea. Now he wants to do the same for Quentin, but the logistics remain confusing. We'll come back to that a bit later on. Both old man and young girl tell each other to get some rest, and Barry gives us a bit of a heartbreaker when he admits that he worries each sleep might be his last. Oh dear. Perhaps because he's surrounded by death, whether in this bed or the potential of battle still to come, though what he actually fears most is dying in his sleep. That's his nightmare, because he would rather go in his own honorific way, by doing his duty. And I think many of us believe we'll find out before the series end exactly how he goes. The nights are too long, he told me Sunday, and there is much and more to do, always. So that's a little bit of a twist on Melisandre's favourite saying, but you can see he is bothering himself with duty again, letting it fill his life because he knows nothing else, because he has those predecessed guilds to make up for, and in fairness, because he's right, he has a city to run. Once Masande goes, Barrison takes one last look at what dragons can do to a person. Melt the very flesh away from the skull. Burst their eyes into pus. We thought all the horror talk was reserved for a couple of weeks ago in Bravos, but apparently not. He should have stayed in Dawn, Barrison thought. He should have stayed a frog. Not all men are meant to dance with dragons. Ding ding ding, there we go, that's the title, that's the name of the book. Oh, I see, dancing with dragons can be a bad thing, I understand now. No, no, it is a cool moment. And what it actually makes me think of is John Collington's quote about overreaching for a star and then falling. Quentin dared to reach as well, reach for a higher star than anyone else in the world, and he should be commended for that bravery, but then instead of taking the opportunity to recover from that and still have a life, he decided to reach again, and he paid for it. Looking at the corpse makes Barristan question the fate of his own queen once more, so we can see that pressure is really bearing down on him now. The cracks in his resolve are beginning to appear, both because of need and because of increased time. He's actually resorting to talking out loud to try and convince himself, but those whispers of her hair being aflame and the idea of what that might mean are becoming louder and louder for him, in no small part because of what he's seeing in front of him with Quentin. The George is again making us ask the same questions, just to make that next chapter hit all the harder. There we leave Quentin. We have plenty more fallout to deal with in the wider sense, both from Barristan's and Quentin's chapters, to find out what's happened to Marine in the time since, how much more tangled this knot has become, and what problems Barry must now face. It is Scarhaz who comes to provide us with all this information, as per usual, and he, for one, is not too bothered about Quentin's fate. And that makes sense. The man tried to take Daenerys away from here, and you figure he'd be getting the blame for inflicting the dragons upon them and making their situation worse, although no one's actually mentioned that yet. I will say, before we get into this conversation, what I note is that Skahaz also comes wearing a new mask, a wolf's head. Now I have to ask, is there a reason George is pointing out this specific mask to us with this specific animal? In fairness, we did see someone else in a wolf's mask outside the pit in Barristan's first chapter, to be fair, but I just can't help it with wolf symbols. I'm always thinking that they mean something. Perhaps it's to serve just as another reminder of Barristan and his aversion to masks. He's made that clear throughout how much he hates them, and we have to wonder if that'll become something real in the future. We'll come back to that at the end of the chapter, I think. We do have some thoughts on whether a downfall might be coming, especially when things seem to be going his way right now, but we'll pump the brakes on that. Barry doesn't want to talk about Quentin, though. He wants to get on with his own duty. So we find out that he hit on his first objective after taking his dad down. He formed a council to rule until Danny returns. Obviously, the only other political system he's really aware of is the small council of Westeros, so he's kind of borrowing from that idea. What he hadn't planned for is that comparison staying true by the position of the hand of the queen being created and him having to fill it. He thinks this. 
I'm no hand, a part of him wanted to cry out. I'm only a simple knight, the Queen's protector. I never wanted this. So there you go, that's exactly what we said in the intro, wasn't it? And we know, probably even before we gained him as a POV, that this is Barristan's worst case scenario. This is the last thing he wants. He's not a ruler, he's a knight. He's a Kingsguard and that's all he wanted to be. This is a position thrust upon him. And now we have to wonder if greatness will come with it or something else entirely. It's another loose comparison to Ned as well, who also didn't really want the job. But as well as that, it's a connection to fellow law commanders who either took or fell into the handship for various reasons and with various outcomes. Barristan is always so aware of that, of the danger of rule, and it just so happens that he has to do it in a period of intense chaos, where any decision he makes could decide the lives of thousands. At the very least, it will make him appreciate Daenerys even more than he already does, and truly understand what she's been through in this book. Now we get several key pieces of information. First is that Barristan has enlisted Galaza Galaire to treat with the wise masters of Yunkai, a decision that both she and Skahaz did not like just to start his handship off on the right foot. We haven't really heard from Galaza in a long time now, but we've got to imagine she's pretty damn unhappy with Hisdar's arrest. Indeed, she tried to get him out of it, but Barry wasn't listening, we learn. That's lucky. We have lots of questions to ask about Galaza's take on recent events, other than the arrest, as well as her relationship with the Yungish. Did she really not want to go, or was that an act? Does she have the same relationship with Yunkai that Hisdar did, or is that all truly crumbled now anyway? Some answers will come a little bit later, but for now, Barristan widens the scope to ask about a city reacting to losing a king and gaining two dragons. It also seems that Barristan has hit on more of his pre-arrest targets. He sealed the city as planned, and Skahaz has been busy trying to get any of the other side who remain in out. Though we know what a difficult task that can be in a city such as this, as well as how devastating their remaining presence could be when it comes to battle if they are still inside the walls. Incredibly important is the combination that the Unsullied have come out of their barracks and are obviously on Barristan's side. That's a huge get, that's super important. Now it's true they're manning the walls right now, which is not their best use, but Barristan needed them to try and keep any sort of hold on the city, to say nothing of when this battle will actually get started. Now that's the good bits, that's the hold that Barry maintains. Other than that, it's pretty much just bad news, which I suppose we should expect, this is Marine after all. Half of the city hates what Barristan has done, they want him to reverse it, and they want these dragons killed. No surprises that the majority of this crowd are highborn. We have this quote, They want you to slay these dragons. Someone told them knights were good at that. That just makes me chuckle. Yeah, George and his beloved tropes, I like that one. And speaking of the dragons, their damage is worse than we were originally told, but that also might have been guessed at, to be honest. We can confirm that people have died because of them, not a surprise, and at least one other pyramid has had to be abandoned. So there's a loss of status, loss of homes, loss of safety, and a loss of life. While a great many people calling for the death of the dragons might want to do it as opposition to Daenerys and reclaiming their city and felling these ultimate symbols of her, some people might want them dead just to keep themselves alive. And we've got to wonder if Barristan will have to think of that side of things more and more as he goes. But not right now, because it turns out that amazingly, Barristan has a larger problem to deal with, the return of the Harpy. The Sons of the Harpy had resumed their Shadow War two days ago. Three murders the first night, nine the second. But to go from nine to nine and twenty in a single night. Yes, when Skahaz first tells us of the number of deaths, we might have originally thought he was talking about the dragons, but oh no. An altogether more sinister, and as yet just as uncontrollable force, has re-emerged. So this is our real marker on how the city has plunged back into chaos. The fact they are active again at such a time when there's dragons above and armies at every side, as well as the fact they're increasing their efforts at such a rate is all really, really bad news. It gives you the impression of a cycle, that as much as things might change, they always stay the same. Barry's thoughts on the kill count going up so quick almost exactly mirror Danny having the near-identical conundrum back near the beginning of the book. So this can really make you kind of despair about marining, just give the sense that it will just never change. Or that at least we'll never understand it, and maybe this idea of foreign rule will never work. It's all very complicated, and it mainly just frustrates us that these people are active again, killing more innocents and being as evil as before, most likely, when there's already enough problems to deal with. A major question to ask is, 
how were they active again? Didn't many of us think that his doll was the harpy? I mean, he's imprisoned. Well, you'll remember, I argue against the idea of there being a singular harpy, but even if it was his da, that doesn't mean his subordinates can't act on his behalf. This is obviously a pretty structured organisation here. They want his da freed after all, likely so they can continue receiving their kickbacks. Or maybe his da was never top dog, just an important cog or face of the brand. Maybe it's still Galaza. It could be, couldn't it? Skahaz doesn't hold back on his opinions as he details that the Harpies are pretty much skipping the slow build-up thing they did before. They've already hit the Freedmen, they've already left their messages on the walls, although they really are going for it this time. Even a death to Daenerys was seen. I don't think we ever got that far last time, maybe we did. So this group are even more volatile than before. At a time when all of Marine could go up at any second, the stresses and weights upon Barristan cannot be overstated. His first move against this news is the blood tax. 2,900 pieces of gold from each pyramid still left standing, but Skahaz is more than doubtful that that will have any effect, and if we're honest, so are we. Unfortunately, the situation simply provides another opportunity for Skahaz to show off his bloodthirst as he once again pushes for the hostages, the children, to be killed, and Barry once again has to say no. So again, we have the cyclical feeling, the feeling that nothing has changed, and maybe this is just marine forever. Although I do think George is really pushing the Skahaz is bad narrative, perhaps for some hints, Again, we'll wait until later to hit on that. As expected, Skahaz isn't happy with this decision not to use the hostages, even if he appears to obey it. He thinks Barristan is weak and he won't get the job done. So even with their major victory of taking Hisdar, the relationship hasn't changed and the problems have gone nowhere. There's so much frustration in the air. From there, we move down from the top of the pyramid to the hall far below. We really do spend a lot of time there, don't we? In keeping with the rest of the chapter, Barry has removed symbols of Hisdar, in this case his twin thrones, but he also hasn't been able to replace it with exactly what he wants, Danny's ebony bench. So he had to settle for something in the middle. This time it is a round table where all might sit as equals. And perhaps this was chosen in aid of Barry not having to feel like he's in a leadership position that he doesn't want or deserve in his mind. Perhaps because of the well-known symbology such a table has, especially when we're talking about knights. So let's have a look at who makes up this new council of marine, which is by no means small, whatever Barry's original intention. We have Barristan and Skaz, obviously. Then the mother's men are wrecked by Marcelin, Masande's brother, which I'd forgotten definitely. Is he going to show off the same smarts as his sister? That would remain to be seen. And he is obviously from Narf, I think it's Narfi is the term. The three brothers are represented by Simon Stripback, he's an Astapori. The stalwart shields by Tall Torok, because their previous commander died by the Pale Mare, so this guy is new, and he's from the Summer Isles. We have Grey Worm for the Unsullied, and two Stormclothes to replace Dario, Jokin, and the Widower. Plus, just to round us off, we have Old Romo. He is all that remains of the Dothraki. And I make that note on their backgrounds there, because as we saw last week with Barristan's Little Knight Academy, this is a city, these are a people, this is a council, made up of many, many different diverse backgrounds. This is the city that Daenerys has created, the situation she's created, where everyone is being reps, and we've got a million different points of view and backgrounds and everything like that. So it's just really interesting to see how that's represented on this council. It's obviously a very good idea by Barristan, I like him. It's just cool to see that symmetry both in the academy, like we saw last time with the young guys, now we're seeing it in the ruling class as well. So that's the officially pro-Targaryen camp, which you might have thought this entire council would be made up of, but no. Barristan is not so proud or so foolish. Instead, he has tried to make up a council of different parties so that he might knit this disintegrating city together, or at least hold it still for a little while. At least that's what we hope his intention is, and he's not just placing them here out of blind faith to loyalty, which he thinks these people once had to Daenerys. We're not so sure on that count personally, but the idea of making both sides represented is much better sounding, so we'll stick with that. If his loyalty alone Barristan wants, he may find himself lacking. And as we've spoken about many times, it's the pit fighters we're talking about. These are the ones who've been promoted. We've got Gogor the Giant, Balakwo Bonebreaker, Cameron of the Count, and the Spotted Cat. 
So, my apologies to Hisdar and yourselves. I'd been misremembering this promotion as being instigated by Hisdar when it was actually Barry all along. And I question Hisdar for putting them in such a position, so some of that must transfer over to Barry. Is this a good choice? Do they have anything to offer? Well, I called it foolish for Hisdar because it might have been self-defeating to his aims. Barry doesn't have to worry about that so much. But the second point still stands. Do they have anything to offer? Well, we're not going to prejudge them just because of their background. Maybe some of them will have some good ideas. We will have to see. But their intention will always be in question. And much of Barry is about him questioning the times when soldiers have been upgraded to rulers with little reason. This could be one of those times. And finally, there is one more to join this council. We'll do a little quote for him. Last to come, Strong Belwas lumbered into the hall. Huzzah! There we go, at least we're going to get one piece of good news in this chapter, and there'll be at least one middle finger to, we assume, the harpies. Their locust trick didn't work. Belwas survived. Danny and Barry both have one more friend in this city. Still, we can see the man has suffered. Two stone lost via sickness is no joke, so we have to wonder what use he will be with such weakness and a very different body to what he's used to, but we know he'll try, and so does Barry. Besides, he's coming out, he's smiling, he's ordering his liver and onions, he wants to get strong again, how can you not have your spirits lifted by this guy? Someone must die, he said. Someone will, Barrison thought. Many someones, like as not. That's always a good builder, I like that one. Although Belwas is saying it in terms of pure payback. We can't be sure if Barry is joining him in that, or if he's just sadly aware of what's coming their way. Barry starts off the meeting by announcing Quentin's fate, and the general reaction is one of derision or just calling him a fool, which might seem a bit harsh to us, but for people who don't know Quentin... Let's face it, it's a pretty natural reaction. It does look damn foolish to us as well, and it does look damn dangerous. Barry keeps his own perspective, forgiving Quentin due to his age, and reminding them that he has paid for it in the worst way possible. And he relates it to his own experience, his own youthful follies as he calls them. That's a nice mental approach for him to have, but it doesn't quite fit. Barristan might have some follies, we'd argue against that as well, but he came pretty damn short of unleashing any dragons. It's Tall Torok who asks what we're all desperate to hear at this point, the fate of Jerris and Archibald. Thankfully, they've survived. That's the information we get first, that's what we really wanted to know. That would have been entirely too painful if they had died alongside their prince, given all they'd done for him. Then again, we also know they must be in incredible emotional pain from that loss, combined with those they've already suffered, suffered just as much as Quentin did. Archibald even lost a relation, a cousin, don't forget. We don't even need to read on to guess that, but George hits us with it anyway. When we're told about how they were found, for whatever reason, the image of big, strong Archibald Ironwood cradling Quentin's body like a child, that word always hits me hard. The amount of love these two had for their friend is such a, a rare thing to find in this world, and this is the very worst ending they could have received. They gave everything to protect Quentin, and it didn't happen. Truly, we hope they don't blame themselves at all. But even if they don't, that doesn't ease the bottom line. Archibald burned his hands putting out the flames. Jerris stood protecting them both with his sword. They were friends until the very end. So we continue to love them, and we know Barry will be protecting them right now. In fact, that's probably what their shared salt is for. The council is still angry. Simon strike back. Strike back? Strip back? Which one? It's strike back, isn't it? Yeah. Simon strike back. I got it wrong right there. And he's supposed to be one of the... Good guys, remember, if such a thing exists. He wants them killed, Jerris and Archibald. The spotted cat agrees, even suggesting the fighting pits as a way to do it. Luckily, Barry denies that straight away, citing that it might bring the dragons, although you get the sense he would have died anyway, even if they never got free. Daenerys hated those pits, and they're the ultimate representation of the old marine that came down so hard upon her, so he would never allow it. Marcelin adds on to the idea that if it brings back two dragons, maybe it could bring back a third, and therefore Daenerys, and all their problems would be solved. At least that's the easy belief. Privately, Barry smartly thinks of the other possibility. If Drogon returns without Daenerys, that's it. Game over. The city will collapse in on itself, as everyone will be convinced that Daenerys is truly dead, and therefore all they have uniting them will be done. A young girl she might be, but Daenerys Targaryen was the only thing that held them together. 
So we get a little slight hint of his ageism in there as always, but he's correct overall. This would be the very worst result and it's one that Barristan must pray against. So he dodges the idea of trying to make Danny come back, telling us they've at least tried to satisfy the two dragons they do have by filling various pits with various meats. That has served to sate their hunger for now. Apparently they haven't actually eaten anyone or even killed anyone that didn't attack them first. That might still come, of course, which will be very bad for all as dragons don't tend to care who they eat and they might even start targeting children again. So let's hope that it doesn't get to that level. Then again, if certain groups know there are places the dragons routinely go to get these meats, I wonder if they will try and spring a trap to kill one. You'd have hoped they'd learn their lesson by now to stay away, but maybe not. Barry runs past that issue too, informing the council about Galaza instead, and informing us that she was sent specifically to try and secure the hostages that the Yunkai still hold, so it's another follow-on from Barristan's earlier conversation with Skahaz in previous chapters, which just seems like so much else so long ago, considering everything that's happened since. He still wants to save whoever he can, he still wants to save them all, as he reassures Grey Worm and Romo. He says they will be freed, but first they must try the diplomatic approach before considering other options. The widower says the Yunkai can't be trusted even if Galaza does return with good news. Skahaz is rather more direct as his anger finally overspills. The green grace will accomplish nothing. She may be conspiring with the Yunkai even as we sit here. Arrangements, did you say? Make arrangements? What sort of arrangements? We know from those previous conversations that this is a real hot button issue for Skahaz, and now he's finally back at the commanding table, he's going to make his voice heard. Certainly, he might have a really good point about Galaza conspiring. For all we know, Barristan has gifted her a free plotting session with her own accomplices. Still, Skahaz's outburst suggests he's going to be done with words soon. Keep that in your mind again. He enlisted Barry for a team-up, it's true, and they achieve something together. But if he doesn't start getting his own way soon, he might act out. Most likely in a way laced with violence. We'll find by the end of the chapter, that might be a thread that trails into winds, like I said, we're going to come back to it later, that Skahaz acting out or finally betraying Barristan could be a major part of the battle, or even what sends Barristan down certain paths towards Aegon if Daenerys does come back a bit more ruthless. To answer his question, Barry says they are offering to pay for the hostages. Marcelin, and likely us as well, are doubtful about this. The Yunkish have gold and they'd be losing one of their main advantages over Marine by accepting that deal. So on first look, it seems Barry is thinking too shallow, until he explains himself, that is. This offer is shrewdly aimed at the swords, who never have enough gold and who don't care about the hostages. So either they will force an acceptance, or if the Yunkai deny them that, then it widens the wedge. Maybe, just maybe, some of them will come over, which we already know is in play thanks to Tyrion's chapter. Now it's probably not going to work on Bloodbeard, who'd rather just kill them all, but overall, it's pretty clever from Barry. Except it's not Barry who fought it up. As he tells us, it was Masande's idea. <sighs> whoa, whoa, whoa. There are many skills and situations that she might be expected to have picked up, but this idea? That's amazing to come from her. So either we label this as another box of evidence that Masande is something more than what meets the eye, or we shut up about that and just admit we might have a child prodigy on our hands. Perhaps Masande is simply a genius. She sure does have the hallmarks of making a great future queen. Let's imagine if we were lucky enough to be gifted with that ultimate ending. What a legacy of Danny's that would be. 11 years of age, Barristan thought. Yet Masande is as clever as half the men at this table and wiser than all of them. Simon Strikeback and the Widower are still convinced that they won't accept anyway. They will demand the dragon slain and his dart restored. Barry cannot allow either. He won't move to kill Danny's children until it's clear he can't protect the innocent from them. And restoring his dart wouldn't only lose him any allies he once had, it would anger the other half of Marine, and all those involved with the arrest, Barry included, would be killed. That's before you even get back to the original problems that his dart brought about. So here, when the widower asks of Barry's plan, should Yunkai turn him down, the chapter takes an unexpected but very exciting turn. And when the Yunkai send back the old woman to spit in your eye, what then? Fire and blood, said Barristan Selmy. Softly, softly. Ooh, that gets a tingle going, doesn't it? That gets under the skin. This promise of war, of fighting back, 
delivered in the style of his queen, even italicised by George for our benefit, it gets us. We've had all this build-up, there's that phrase again, we've had this book-long journey, and even though we've definitely accepted we're not getting those battles in this book, that doesn't make us any less hungry for them. So now the promise of that being delivered in such a cool way, by a character so beloved, yes please, sign us up. Barristan has just spent his whole arc wrestling with the decision to act, held back by the chains made of oaths, as he has been his entire life. Now he's proposing to make the ultimate act, and to do so confidently, in the name of his queen. You can sense there's almost a tinge of pride there in his voice. This is much more his arena than the tops of pyramids are, and we know he would likely deem this the ultimate service he can give. But either way, we are swept up in the announcement and we love it. And the atmosphere doesn't end there. His words are followed by silence, partly because they are so heavy with meaning, partly because no one here expected Barristan to be the one to say them. Not old Barristan, always arguing about what's right. Skahaz, who's seen that more than anyone, can scarce believe his ears. You would break King Hisdar's peace, old man. I would shatter it. Once, long ago, a prince had named him Barristan the Bold. A part of that boy was in him still. Oh yes, we are all in. Definitely, we're signed up. You have to imagine Skahaz actually does wear a smile this time, as Barry has taken on his plan of attack to pour out of the gates and try to break through an unprepared Yunkish line, as he detailed last time. Such a move might hopefully lose the other side their swords, or at least give this side time to bring down the trebuchets. And Barry proves his Targaryen words are not said in the heat of the moment. He's been planning. He's arranged a signal for them all. He's had maps prepared. He will arrange how all of them will work together and form a cohesive unit, which is a tall task for any force, but especially for this one with so many sheer moving parts. Look at this table alone for how many different groups there are. That's a Yao Ming-sized task indeed, even if all of them do buy in and stay loyal, which is a very real question. The pit fighters are still here, they're listening and learning. Are they going to go to the harpies and tell of the plans so they can best plan how to hamstring them? Do they have connections to the Yunkish that they can make? Or do they actually genuinely buy in? We'll learn plenty on that in the Winds preview chapter, but even here and now, the questions tend to fall by the wayside simply because we're so excited at Barristan taking such a proactive step forward at him truly being the leader. I know you will have concerns and questions. Voice them here. By the time we leave this table, all of us must be of a single mind, with a single purpose. He's our guy, no doubt. Taken as we are of the notion, and brilliant though it is, Barristan is letting everyone here feel valued and listened to. The downside of a round table is how long it can take to get anything decided. We're treated to a long, long paragraph of the many different ideas that are put forward and argued about, because Barristan seems to believe the best option is to let them get it all off their chests now, and that at least they can feel like they made their pitch, which is a pretty good idea to be honest. The options range from pushing through to Yunkai to force the camps to lift, there's single combat, which I declare the worst idea, as if the Yunkai would just get up and go home if their guy lost, there's using the ships on the river to sneak behind the main lines, there's a bunch more theories on how to deploy the Unsullied, who refuse to give any of their own thoughts on the matter. Use them as a fist, use them as a shield, use them to keep the other soldiers on their side brave. Oh, and there's elephants as well. So it's not just you, Mr. John Carrington, we've got them here as well. All of which is very, very exciting, imagining which of these we'll actually get to see on page at some point. Because it's George, no doubt it'll be a mix of these suggestions given here, and of things we've never even thought of. I'd love nothing more than to go for each option with you and let our imaginations run wild. But we'd best not, I suppose. Besides, we are told that something, whatever it may be, is decided upon. So we'll just have to wait for what that is. But before they break, Simon Strikeback asks one final question. One not too dissimilar to what Brown Ben Plum once asked. Will the dragons come? Will they join the fight? If there was ever an extra layer to a battle, then this is the one. What will the dragons do? Barristan has no easy answer. He knows they will come. And what he says publicly is that the other side only needs to believe that they are controlled by Marine for them to perhaps break at the sight of them. But privately, he darkly admits that they will likely burn and devour each side equally, that the two sides will mean nothing to two dragons. And obviously, George lets our imaginations fill in the blanks. 
Imagine the chaos, the pandemonium, if this were to happen. All these different moving parts looking to different commanders, thousands of horses and elephants absolutely not obeying once they get a whiff of a dragon, people breaking and then chasing and burning. There'll be fire and carnage and death. And it's anyone's guess who could come out on top of that. It's basically potluck and Barry knows it. And don't forget, we know it can get even more complicated once you add in Tyrion's turning of the second sons in Victarion, bringing in Dragonbinder, should he arrive on time? So is that his big plot moment to arrive and sway the entire battle with his horn? How can we be anything less than starving for this battle now? A thousand things to consider, likely dragons in full battle as well, which is obviously dreamed of, unknown elements and surprises. This is truly building up to be one of the major events of the entire book series and oh how we want to see it. The Barristan leaves it there, with the unknown promises of dragons left up in the air. But Grey Worm brings up a more definitive point. If they attack, the remaining hostages will be killed. Barry knows that risk. The whole idea of battle rests on their fate. He sent Galaza Galare essentially to give himself a, a Casus Belli, or however you pronounce that, I'm not sure. A reasonable cause to declare war. He wants it as his excuse. He can frame it mentally as them going back on the deal, and then this whole battle being a rescue attempt, even if he knows it'll mean their deaths. Still, he promises Grey Worm he'll try to prevent that and even hints that he has an extra plan for that aspect, which is hmm, very interesting. Barristan's really getting into the proactivity now, isn't he? Unfortunately, we're given absolutely zero hints of what this could be, or how likely it is to work, and are instead told that we're going to move the chapter from exciting prospects to emotional melancholy, as Barristan heads off to tell Archibald and Jairus the news they're probably already expecting, much as we might dread it. Before we get there, we learn that Barristan eventually did decide to knight two of his little Padawans, the ones we detailed last time out, either because he thought they were ready, or because he was worried about perishing and them never being knighted. We know how much that status means to Barry, probably even more than it actually does to these lads, so it's key that he went ahead with this. He chose Tum and the Red Lamb, so good for them, well earned I'm sure. At least they don't have to see this awful conversation, they wait outside instead. But what does this mean for their role in the battle to come, we wonder, them actually being knights? Inside, we're luckily spared Barristan actually having to say the words, but that doesn't make witnessing the reactions any easier. Archibald sitting there in silence, Jerris punching the wall. That's in keeping with their characters. We mentioned this way back when we first met them, but Archibald is the far more level-headed in this situation. He deals with the whole thing way, way, way better. The tropes would have you believe that as the big guy, he's the one that would resort to anger and fists. But no, it's Jerris switching out jokes for pure rage now. And Jerris continues letting his emotions out, which is perfectly fair. He wants to let out the unfairness of it, he wants to finally yell. It shouldn't have happened. He told Quentin to go home. That's true, we saw that part and we agreed with him 100%. He didn't get listened to, so now he's going to yell about it and make someone listen. But then the emotion of the moment goes too far when he puts the blame on Daenerys. We can see that in his grief he wants to blame anything in the world, and as the object of the mission, Danny is first in line. He cites Quentin crossing half the world, and then does the same with her laughing in his face. Now Barry disputes that, and as we've had to discuss before, we were there, we know the truth. Daenerys did laugh, and the moment was awful for Quentin, but it wasn't what Jairus is framing it as. It wasn't a laugh in the face, in fact he knows if he were of his normal mind, but he's not, he's broken hearted, he seeks that blame, he wants to lash out so he can be angry instead of sad for a bit, and he welcomes a fight right now after being able to physically do nothing to save Quentin. So he pushes his luck just that little bit further than he should in terms of rudeness to Danny. And Barristan calls him on it. There's a line, do not cross it, whatever news you've just heard. It's a wonderful little scene from George because it's two different characters, both of whom we tend to like, at least I do, and they're both just being loyal to their friend at the same time. We always like those kind of scenes where we can see the truth of both sides. At the same time that we can see why Barry reacts to Daenerys' insults, we understand why Jairus reacts to the accusation that Quentin's death was the fault of the Dornish Free alone. We know that is pretty true, but the absolute last thing they want to hear in this moment is that they are to blame for this most painful of events. As it happens, Jairus offers the perfect defence for their actions, saying that Quentin was their prince and therefore what he said went. Again, we have to kind of squint at that. 
Yes, it technically was true, but we all know that is absolutely not the reason they stuck by his side, even as he walked into a dragon lair. They did it because they loved him, not because they obey orders. However inaccurate that statement is, it is the perfect one to pitch to Barry, who has spent far too much of his time obeying any order that came his way, so at least he has the frame of mind to appreciate it. So Barristan half changes the subject to why Daenerys spurned Quentin, if you want to call it that. It was not hatred or rudeness, but circumstance. The thousandth time in this book we are told that Quentin simply came too late. Another thing we agree with, we're really going back over well-tread waters here, but it's an effective way for George to round up this particular storyline. Jairus points out Quentin would have loved her, would have delivered his spears eventually. So Barry reminds us that's great, but it's not what she needed at the time, while also delivering the irony that he actually agrees with Jairus deep down. No one had wanted Daenerys to look with favour on the Dornish prince, more than Barristan and Salmi. Then he finally moves beyond old news and onto more recent mistakes. The engaging of the sellswords, the getting the dragons loose. As we've just detailed, this could affect thousands of lives in the upcoming battle. So while we know what Quentin was trying to achieve, and while he felt he had to do so, it was a mad decision. One where he was too busy looking at the story and himself to realise the unfathomable consequences of his actions. Did he even stop for one moment to think what would happen if one of them, let alone two, got loose? It's harder for Jairus to argue with that because, again, the two are actually on the same page, but he tries his best. He tries to frame it as something else that Daenerys inspired, something he can blame her for and leave Quentin alone, but Barry cuts off again. What Prince Quentin did, he did for Dawn. Do you take me for some doting grandfather? I have spent my life around kings and queens and princes. Sunspear means to take up arms against the Iron Throne. No, do not trouble to deny it. Doran Martell is not a man to call his spears without hope of victory. Duty brought Prince Quentin here. Duty, honour, thirst for glory. Never love. Quentin was here for dragons, not Daenerys. Again, it's accurate when you get right down to it. Quentin would have loved Daenerys. I believe every intention he had pointed that way, and she's awesome, so why wouldn't it have ended up like that? But ultimately, if he had arrived and found her to be a spiteful witch they hated, he still would have done the same thing. He still would have proposed marriage and tried to get her back to Dawn. Though I would quibble that this is anything Quentin should be blamed for, I think this is something best pointed out who set him on the mission in the first place. Duran. Quentin didn't seem to be personally bothered about the War of the Lannisters, not any further than his surname required anyway. His was about fulfilling duty. So again, both young knight and old seem to be right at the same time. Much more interesting is Barristan reading between the lines to suss out what Duran and Dawn are into. It's a good representation of the sense he's acquired over the years. He has a better grasp of politics than he might readily admit. He knows the players and now knows what is supposed to be a fairly large secret. An important one if he and the rest of Danny's group can ever finally move west. Knowing Duran's true intentions and how they would align with Danny's is valuable stuff indeed. Jairus is about to argue again until Archibald decides it's his turn to talk and he tells his friend to be quiet. That the deed is done. Their friends are gone, and arguing will not change that. It's wonderful, because it's so very close to Jairus' own advice to Quentin earlier on. Barristan informs him that the city wants them punished, not just for unleashing the dragons, but for the four brazen beasts they killed on their way in, two of whom would hold extra significance for Daenerys. Archibald shows off his wisdom again, noting that they only killed one, but that that is besides the point. He seems to think the punishment is fair, and when Jairus tries to argue again, the big man silences him, instead pushing Barry to get on with whatever he's here to talk about. This one may not be as slow-witted as he seems, Barristan thought. Yeah, you're damn right, Barry. How dare you judge him so in the first place? This guy's awesome. He's got the best of both worlds going for him. So Barristan starts making his pitch, which is interesting because we've got no idea what he's about to say. First, he makes the offer. They can be allowed to keep their lives and the honour of taking Quentin home to Dawn. Okay, good. Both of those are things they would like, but what's the cost? Swords, Barristan tells them. He's in need of them. And not just swords, but the swords of knights. 
So once more, we see Barry's obsession with the title, his opinion that the status wakes them worth so much more than anyone who hasn't been knighted. Here's hoping he gets to meet Brienne one day so he can really explore whether it's the title that makes the knight or the knight that makes the title. Either way, the importance he stresses on it is clear. So does that mean he simply wants them to fight in the battle, that every little helps, or is there something specific they need to do? Well, before we find out, Barristan wants the whole story of how these dragons got released, and the duo silently agree to tell it true. Some parts we already know thanks to Quentin's chapter, some parts we never got to find out, especially in the aftermath. We knew Quentin was basing his belief that he could control them on his blood, for example. Well, that and pure blind hope, as well as misplaced confidence that this was what Danny had been trying to tell him to do. But Archibald fills in the ultimate plan was to get to the docks and board a ship, and that yes, they were hoping to take both if they could help it. A big one, in case we got both dragons, and Quent was going to ride one. It sounds so ridiculous when said out loud like that. A true, ill-thought-out fantasy. Quentin was just magically going to be able to ride one, was he? Ten minutes after meeting him, something Daenerys only managed to do after years of being by their side and knowing more about them than anyone we know of. It's ridiculous. And oh yeah, ships. Hmm, pretty bad places to be if a dragon doesn't like you. But obviously, that wasn't thought of either. Archibald continues, telling us that they realised just how stupid it was once they actually saw the two dragons. Everyone realised it, aside from Quentin, apparently. He recounts what we already knew about the crossbowmen. He wonders what we've wondered as to the attentions of the windblown, as unknown now as they were then. And then we learn some of the stuff that Quentin didn't get to see. Specifically, when it all went down and Quentin got burned, the windblown scarpered. Whether that was purely because they didn't want the same, or because they didn't care about Quentin, or a combination of both, is irrelevant. They can firstly hardly be blamed, and you can even expect it of them, as Archibald says here. He really is busting out all the wisdom today. So we assume the windblown are some of these that Skaha said had taken root in the city somewhere and just haven't been accounted for yet. In the meantime, Barry figures out that Quentin must have promised the tattered prince Pentos, seeing as that's what he asked Daenerys for. It's pretty smart from Barry, to be fair. Even more interestingly, he seems pretty pleased about it. We find the reason when Barry tells that he plans to send back the imprisoned windblown from ages ago to the free windblown, and he intends to send these two with them, out past the walls and into the Yunkish camps. There, they are to deliver a message to Tatters, the tattered prince. He will get Pentos if he can deliver the hostages. So this is his notion he was talking about earlier, and he's obviously pretty serious about it. He's promising an entire city to this man in return for free lives. Now we understand that Barry is Barry. He wants the hostages back for Daenerys, and he wants them because he hates the idea of hostages being killed. But to offer a city, a city he owes something to in terms of Ilio and Partis, and to make an offer that Danny officially said no to earlier on? Well, this really is quite daring for Barristan. He really is getting into the plot making thing now. The pair are not convinced. Firstly, it's not exactly a confident plan for their own safety. They can personally offer the tattered prince nothing now, and he's probably still pissed about their original betrayal. Maybe he blames them for what happened in the pit, or maybe he even thinks they are coming for revenge and wants to take them out first. On top of that, Archibald's burns are apparently bad enough that he can't even hold a sword, or, I'm assuming, his hammer. And no, I do not like and hope does not come back to bite us. But Archibald also thinks the Tattered Prince will not take the deal. He'll consider it too dangerous, especially on the eve or possibly even the middle of battle. Barristan probably oversimplifies it. He says it's easier than dragon freeing, which failed Barry, so that's not really a great endorsement, is it? And they've got the cell swords to fight for them, so don't worry about it. Hmm, I'm not sure about that assessment somehow. Does Barristan really believe this, or does he know that ultimately these two have no choice, or at least believe they don't, so he just needs to give them platitudes for now? Does he think this has no chance anyway, and he's just taking a flyer? I don't think he's progressed to that level of plotting yet, but maybe. I'll do it, offered Sir Archibald, just so long as there's no bloody boats involved. Drink will do it too, he grinned. He don't know it yet. He will. So that's set up, but it leaves a lot of questions about what's going to come of this other plotline to add into a world already full of them. Firstly, how are we going to see any of this? 
Will Tyrion pass by their way, or will we only hear about the results? It's possible that the hostages just turn up with Jairus and Archibald, and we get to hear an amazing tale of how they sprung the hostages, one of whom is really not fond of them still, remember? Obviously, what we hope most is that neither of them die for this mission, but I doubt many of us think that's a possibility. The biggest thing is that this obviously pries the windbone away from the youngish side. Pretty hard to stay on the payroll if you're opening the cell doors. And though they will be busy with this effort, that also means they'll be doing a bit of fighting against the Yunkish. So combine that with Tyrion possibly turning the second sons as well, and the setup for this battle is starting to look very, very different all of a sudden. If you cast your mind back, you might remember we already have theories on what these two will eventually get up to. Most of us think it'll be they who eventually do return Quentin's bones to Sunspit and informed around what has happened, with Jairus' anti-Daenerys attitude perhaps painting a different picture from the reality. Then again, if that is to happen, you'd have to think it's going to be very, very far into the book considering they have this mission first, then they have to make it clear back across the other side of the world. Add that into our previous ideas that House Ironwood will become more active in the Dornish plot, perhaps because of their own loss, and maybe Archibald has something else to get involved in. Either way, I'm sure they will be of high importance yet. I won't repeat those theories and everything we've said about Duran and that, we've done that before. For now, we just say goodbye to them, and therefore, the last of Quentin's touch on this book. Well, you know, apart from the dragons. We spoke about him enough last week, but let's give these two the credit they deserve for being the most awesome friends around, and for both having their individual moments of outstanding wisdom. I think that's what we should really remember. For now, Barry leaves them with his final thoughts of them being knights, yet again, and him being impressed especially with Archibald due to his skill. In fairness, he did come off much better in that meeting, didn't he? So the chapter goes full circle as Barristan returns to the very top of the pyramid after what has been a very busy day. The child cupbearers are still here, playing a children's game, reminding Barristan of what he's working to protect. He sees a different type of child entirely when looking out above the city and spying Viserion. Yes, after so long in this series, we're at the point where someone can look out of the window and see a dragon flying through the air. Interestingly, he considers Rhaegal to be more dangerous. Okay, that stands to reason after what happened to Quentin, but why do we think that is? Is it because he's linked more to strong Rhaegar than weak Viserys? Could be. It's only now, at this point, that Barristan lets his doubts creep in. Considering how constant they are in his previous chapters, that's quite the achievement. He sums up the many parts of this plan, although note he mentions Resnak, who hasn't actually been mentioned yet in this chapter, so what's happened to him? Before finally thinking back to those Lord Commanders who found themselves in this position. And there we enter the final scene of this chapter, Ark and Plotfred, as Galaza Galair finally returns. This time, she's attended by Pink Graces. Do we think they have an entire rainbow of these guys? What do the pink ones do? We're not told. As Galaza enters, he thinks the following. An aura of wisdom and dignity seemed to surround her that Sir Barristan could not help but admire. This is a strong woman, and she has been a faithful friend to Daenerys. Those last thoughts are definitely concerning. Strong, Galaza might be, but faithful? Mm, that's very questionable. At the very least, she put Daenerys through a whole boatload of strain, and we would have thought that Barristan would have been aware of that. It just doesn't sit quite right with me. It leaves that thread open that Barristan will have a really strong chapter of great, exciting choices. He'll put that brave foot forward only for him to trust the wrong woman and perhaps leave open the possibility for it to all unravel. Once they have their drinks, Galaza reminds us oh how sweetly she can talk, even while getting across her point or asking the questions she needs to ask. For instance, she wastes no time double-checking there's been no word on Daenerys. Nope, there hasn't, no chance there, so move on to the next highest priority, Hisdar. She wants to see him, most likely to confirm whatever deal she struck with the Yunkish. Barristan doesn't worry about any of that just yet because she's been polite, but thankfully he also doesn't back down, especially when she starts floating the idea of Hisdar being released, even if she does just frame it as the Yunkish asking. Instead, Barristan sticks to his word that nothing will happen to Hisdar if he's found innocent, but for now he's guilty and he's staying put but she is welcome to join the council is formed. We likely could have guessed that, her being the largest representative of the other side. 
Rastin is returning the manners and compliments with his wisdom talk, but now that she's been told Tezdar isn't being freed, Galaza becomes just that little bit more direct. Not to a degree that really stands out, but enough. Now she frames it straight up as her advice, free Hizdar. Barry, thankfully, sticks to his guns. This displeases the noble Galaza, who now puts the pressure on by painting Barristan as the last roadblock to a series of problems sweeping through the city, most of which she embellishes, with no indication yet that the dragons are feasting on humans. Though the damage of some of the pyramids is worse than we'd heard, but overall it's embellishment. Clearly, she's trying to apply the pressure. And this doesn't work either, Barristan is holding up very well on the defensive end. In fact, he turns it right back again as he brings up the recent killings of the harpies. All the more reason to free the noble Hizdar Zolarak, who once stopped such killings, she said. And how did he accomplish that, Barristan thought, unless he himself is the harpy? Yes, precisely, Barry. Well done, we're all behind you in this, especially when he heaps on the accusation of the poison locusts. We saw him deliver these questions to Hizdar in his last chapter, now he's doing the same to Galaza. Perhaps the true harpy, for all we know. Maybe this is the big ending. Obviously, Galaza disputes that, trying again to make Barristan think that he's stopping the peace, that she's the one trying to do good. And maybe that's what she genuinely thinks but much more likely it's manipulative efforts as per usual. Even when she says he's not the poisoner, Barry only thinks that must mean she knows who is then. See, he's getting the flow of it now. It's all questions, no answers. The Miranese way. And let's be fair, that is perfectly possible. With that line of conversation going nowhere, Barristan switches back to the official reason for their meeting, his offer. And surprise, surprise, Yunkai blinked. They will not free the hostages. They demand the death of the dragons instead, just as we suspected. After all, there would be an awful lot of setup in this chapter that would be terribly wasted if it turned out that they did just accept the offer. We remember the words. We know what this means. Fire and blood. Barry will take Marine to war. We have our opening win storyline and we cannot wait. But we can't have it just yet, as Galaza also unsurprisingly, agrees with the Yunkish. Inciting the history of this area of the world and the untamable danger that their existence creates, and she's not so wrong on that point, Galaza tells Barristan the dragons need to die. Their time is done, heralded in by the apparent death of their representative, Daenerys. Her grace is not. She is dead, Galaza interrupted. May the gods grant her sweet sleep. Tears glistened behind her veils. Let her dragons die as well. Her words are so confident, so well-spoken, that Barristan can't actually find an answer this time round. Even after his chapter of success, perhaps she is speaking to what worries him most, and he can't bear to imagine that it might actually be true. Luckily, a distraction comes, a noisy one, as Skahazmo Kandak bursts through the door. For an instant, we might think this is the moment he finally lashes out, but no. Instead, he brings news of the highest order. Yunkai has got the jump on them. The trebuchets are firing. The war begins. They chose war then, Barry thought. So be it. Sir Barristan felt oddly relieved. War, he understood. If they think they'll break Marine by throwing stones... Not stones. The old woman's voice was full of grief, of fear. Corpses. How thrilling. How fitting. We've said it enough times, we're hungry for this battle. Hungry to see the finally be taken to the other side after so, so long. So in a way, we're just like Barry. Finally, we can get going. Cool as that is, though, how in keeping with this book that its essential ending line should be so morbid, so unimaginably horrible? Dead bodies being thrown through the air to land upon a city already in turmoil. Yes, it is beyond evil. Very, very evil. Very, very horrible. But it's also tactical. This is a technique well established in our own medieval history. And while it's mostly employed as a morale-destroying technique, and an effective one you'd probably think, it can also be used as a method to spread disease. So there we are, the Yunkish, suffering so badly at the hands, or hooves I guess, of the Vale Mare, they've decided they want to share that misery out among marine civilians, from its children to its other innocents. This is no war act, it's a crime against humanity. 
Yes, true, the pale mare is already in the city, but it might be that the opening we have in Winds is a city now spreading the disease too fast to add on to its many other problems, and first-timers may have even thought that the hostages were being thrown over the wall, but that would again lose Yonkai's advantage and make the Tattered Prince slash Dornish plan a waste of time, so we're going to guess that's not happening. Either way, the battle for Marine, for Slaver's Bay, and for Daenerys is about to begin. Let's go. <laughs> what an ending, what a build-up. Yes, I simply have to say that phrase again. How could we not be excited for this intriguing, apparently very, very dark battle that's sure to come our way? And there's just so many different things to think of, which we'll talk about a little bit now. Not as much as we did about the commotion at Castle Black last week, we just don't have the time, but I can't resist, this one's just too interesting to me. And fair warning, I will talk a little bit about hints that we get from certain Winter Winter preview chapters, so you might want to skip this bit if you don't want to know anything about that. I'm not going to go too far into them, I haven't actually looked at them for a long time, so I'm kind of acting off memory, I've quickly glanced at the wikis and stuff like that, but let's just talk a little bit because, I mean, the events, they don't get much bigger than this, do they? This great big battle of the fire that we're apparently right on the doorstep of. There's a reason half of the preview chapters, the release chapters, come from this area. We have Victorian, Tyrion and Barristan obviously. That outnumbers anything we have from any other area of the story. And that's because this looks to be probably the largest scale battle we've ever had. Now I don't actually care to look up the numbers right now but I think we all know there are going to be way more people involved in this one versus the Battle of Ice and therefore that the death count will just be way higher. We could compare it to the Blackwater as well. Again I'm not going to go back and look up numbers but both in terms of bodies and just importance in the narrative this, this one looks to be the biggest. So actually if we're talking both in terms of scale and our accessibility to the battle the only real rival we have to this is the blackwater that omnipresent battle or omnipresent tentpole landmark of the series that dominated such a large part of the story both immediately and in after effect let's never forget how many times we encountered people who had suffered from it or broken from it or however it might have been that really did fill up both a storm of swords and a feast for crows and okay this one might mean less to us because it's so far away and ultimately we do care about westeros more but still the size of the thing the amount of potential blood that will be spilled and the utter violence it seems we're likely to see is going to really set as George's opening tone for this long-awaited book that is like no other. Let's be clear that among many, one of the reasons A Song of Ice and Fire is best known, perhaps because of the influence of the show, is because of its violence and body count over the first five books. And George is going to want to top that in Winds of Winter, we're guessing. There's going to be a whole bunch of bad things happening across the board in that book. So he wants to start with a bang. He wants us to really be like, whoa. Okay, this is another level. And let's not ignore the fact that, yes, there has been a long wait for wins. There is a lot of pressure on. So I think George probably does want to be like, here you go, this is what you've been waiting for. It was worth it. And we will, of course, agree with him. And that is why this one, this battle, is being set up to come first, we're guessing. Who knows how the actual chapters will work out and how close the battles of fire and ice are going to be, but it looks like this one is going to come first. Like we've said, it's certainly ready to go. And I would also guess that George enjoys a bit of the juxtaposition of having a book so related and so thematic to winds and snow and cold, instead starting off in the baking heat of marine. But it's also just because of the, the sheer chaos, the amount of death, the themes that go with it that maybe this battle will better represent the problem of the overall series. At least at Winterfell you're going to have people with the correct goal in mind in terms of the others. You have some people trying to protect the Ned's girl. There's a bit more of a sense of honour and theme and purpose. 
With this one in Marine, it seems far more like political stuff, far more like squabbling, at least as far as Marine and Yunkai go. When Danny's around, the higher purpose comes back a bit, the fight against slavery, the efforts to try and actually change the way the world works, and that is still present in places here and there for what we've got now, but at this moment it looks like the ultimate thing we should not be wasting our time with, a petty squabble grown large, as much for profits as anything else, with a chaotic loss of life, while a much larger problem grows ever stronger up in the north. And though we've seen plenty of examples, I expect the makeup of this battle, the poor command structures, and no one knowing what they're doing, combined with the just apparently accepted extreme hate and violence involved in this area, will make one of the very best examples of how truly terrible humanity can be to itself. We'll come back to that in a little bit. For now, let's slow down and think on how this specific cliffhanger changes things because it's not just a signal that it's time to start fighting. It's something that needs to be reacted to. So let's think about that and then maybe have a little bit of guessing time about what the actual battle is going to involve just so when Winds comes out, we can look back and laugh at how wrong I am. Now, as we said, the Pale Mare is in Marine, but it looks like the city was just about holding on. With these corpses now coming in and we're not told how many are coming in, but we're going to guess quite a lot. There's four trebuchets and they're not small. They bring in the potential for it to all just spread much quicker. So it hastens everything, including Barry's battle plan. And yes, it is also true we don't know this technique would actually spread the sickness quicker. We don't know how it's actually spreading. But we're going to guess it's worse than zero disease corpses flying through the airwood. And besides, it's the mere belief or chance that will make Barristan react. So firstly, there's the speed of his reaction. If he is going to think that this is going to end up in much higher levels of the Pale Mare, then he has to act very quickly, immediately basically. They are already in more confined spaces than everyone outside, they're already having problems with food and resupply etc, so this could very quickly wind up as a terrible situation with both disease and starvation and everything else. Besides, it represents a loss of life, and for them, civilians too, so you know Barristan wants to put a stop to it straight away. Now we know Barristan had this plan of attack anyway, so it's not like it's a complete swing in direction, but now he can't pick the time so much, he can't make the first move, that's what it seems like to us anyway. The idea of surprising them out of the gate is gone, so we've already had to change one part, or yeah, as far as we know, maybe this is always the plan they discussed at the council, we weren't really privy to that. And according to the preview chapters, the charge that they are still sticking with, the one that we will see at the beginning, will be mostly aimed at entirely bringing down the trebuchets for saving the civilians and preventing the wide-scale collapse through disease. That's their first objective, obviously. Overall, it's to still beat Yunkai, but this is what they're going to do first. And lucky for us, we are privy to some further details thanks to the preview chapters. So here you go, here's the warning, I'm going to go into these a little bit. Not too much because for some of these preview chapters we don't even have like the written out versions, we've just got summaries from different cons and stuff, so we're not going to take any of it as gospel, we're not going to go into every detail, we'll just skim along the top here. For instance, the idea that yes, they do still want to charge out fast because they want to give the unsullied time to form up properly, because once that's done, they're essentially unbeatable. So stuff like that, stuff that we find very, very interesting. And I'm sure there's probably more fuller breakdowns of these ideas elsewhere, I would bet hard money on it. But what just things like this promise is something we always, always adore from George, tactics and details. We know how wonderful George is at describing these types of things and coming up with angles and further details that we would have never thought of. So if this is going to be his largest scale battle yet, and unlike anything we've ever seen, then you know George is going to bring it on that end. Stuff like using the sun for the angle of your charge, or choosing which opponents you're going to aim that charge at. That's one of my favourite things about this upcoming battle is how different all the different components are. We've been detailing all through the book through different POVs like Quentin and Barristan and Tyrion. We've got all the many different slave groups, we've got the different lords on the Yunkish side, each of them have their little gimmick you'll remember from us going through it before. 
And we've actually already discussed some of the different people on the Miranese side of this battle already in this chapter. So it's just going to be amazing to see how all these different moving parts interact with each other and how George gets across his supremely interesting tactics. He's never been someone to just give us two sides of identical looking soldiers and then have them run at each other. That's always been true, but this is going to be a whole other level, I think. Now let's remember that technically we have seen this type of battle before, a besieged city trying to beat its attackers. In fact, one of the funny things about it is that Tyrion is now on the reverse side, at least at the beginning of the battle, and I really do get ultra nerdy and interested in the specifics of how this battle is going to turn out, how similar it might be to the Blackwater, how it might be different. Although one of the similarities, or I suppose rather a more striking difference, is in the leadership of the POV that we'll actually have, or one of the POVs. In the Blackwater, Davos was looked over for a true command position, foolishly, and he was out of the battle before he even really got started. Tyrion's chapters were focused on his struggle for leadership and his support, and his eventual gaining of that as the battle lust came down on him. And we would also be remiss to not include Sansa in this. Despite her not being on the battlefield, what she did during the Blackwater was no less a mark of leadership. But the most comparable remains Tyrion, and that was really a short burst in the grand scheme of things. This time, we'll get to see someone whom, for a myriad of reasons, leadership comes much easier to, to say nothing of battlefield acumen. We're going to be in the mind of one of the most lauded warriors of the age, a legendary man across Westeros and the whole world. We're going to see his work firsthand as he leads, commands, guides, and implements his tactics there himself. Again, I don't wish to go too far ahead into murky waters, but just imagining Barristan Selmy screaming out of the Miranese gates, riding faster than all these men half his age around him, and finally dealing merry hell down onto these bloody yunkish idiots through his superior skill and tactics, well let me tell you, it plasters a big old smile on my face. And what I was going to say a minute ago was that the similarities of the Blackwater end there, because the Blackwater had both a land and water element, and mistakenly, I thought that this one doesn't, but luckily I managed to catch myself, because of course we do have Victorian and the Ironborn come to kill as yet more carnage. And we'll talk about this bit very briefly, as this is still a Barristan chapter we're talking about, not a Victorian one, but it is all part of the same battle we're in, and it looks to be a, a bloody important part. Without giving too much away, although we have mentioned some of this, Victorian is actually going to be kind of smart for once and use all those stolen ships that he gained in his two dance chapters to be able to approach the Yonkish fleet, among the other ships, you know, there's a, a big fleet out there. It will then spring hidden soldiers or maybe do some ramming or whatever is needed to allow the main fighting force of the Iron Fleet to get through that blockade, land on the shore and then let all their reaving tendencies out at once. Basically, the Ironborn are going to be told, kill as many people as you can and they're probably going to quite enjoy that. So the idea of this happening at the same time as Barry's charge is obviously incredibly exciting. It's very cinematic to imagine and it only increases our sense of everything coming together. The Yunkish, who we already know to be likely in a bad shape and worried about such things, will suddenly have to be fighting on two fronts, one of which they absolutely did not expect to have to defend. So do we have any faith that the Yunkish lords and the bloody rota are going to be able to adapt in any way, shape or form? Well, I definitely don't. In the same way, I don't have faith in many sellswords seeing this turn of events and still sticking to their contract. In fact, much as we might dislike the Ironborn and prefer to think of this as Barristan doing really well on his own, the Yunkish finally being exposed as the morons, evil-hearted morons as well, that they are, and paying for that in a catastrophic defeat is incredibly enticing for me. I would really like to see the many different ways that the stupid Yunkish leadership structure is going to fuck up. How many of their companies just break and run? How much their confusion is over orders and priorities and how that's going to be the complete opposite of Barristan riding around gleaming in his armour? 
Like I mentioned at the beginning, you'd think the fact they started off firing the corpses means the Junkish side would be prepared for battle. Well, one of the things the previews tells us is that yes, they are ready for battle in general, but they're not in the right places. They're already not doing the right things, like actually protecting their trebuchets, for example. Their arrogance and pomposity is finally going to come home to roost, as I'm going to guess they fail in the first instance, then fail to adjust, begin to break, and basically make themselves look like idiots. I've been banging on about this shared leadership idea so much because it is so stupid. I I can't wait to really have it focused on. If this is going to be a battle of leadership, then it looks like it's going to be a landslide. Now here I must pump the brakes a bit. I must rein myself back in because hoping or assuming anything is a fool's game in this book series. And obviously George is not going to have given away anything in these preview chapters really. There's going to be surprises, there's going to be big elements that we have no idea about. And unfortunately, I very much doubt it's going to go as well as I'm already hoping. Barristan apparently delighting we have them, that's one of the things apparently said in one of his chapters, specifically fills me with dread. You just don't get to hope things like that or say things like that in A Song of Ice and Fire and then not have it come back and bite you in the ass. It makes you wonder if the dragons are going to come and spoil a battle that was going our way just to provide some more heart conflict. And Tyrion does hint at reactions by the Unkish, of course, in his preview chapters, but the idea is still enticing to me. There are just too many elements that we don't know, too many things that could happen. For example, with the Ironborn comes the Iron Captain and with him comes the Horn. Who knows if the dragons are already getting involved with the battle of their own volition, if they do come and ruin the plans of both sides just for maximum damage and to really throw it all into chaos, but whether they do or don't, what if Victorian does land, sounds Dragonbinder, and then what, does it work? Does it send them into a frenzy? Is one of them now beholden to Victorian? Is one of them now beholden to Euron like we've theorised? What is the range in this horn? How does that all work? We just don't know. And for what it's worth, if you remember we thought uh, Victorian was being super weird in his last chapter, well it's nothing compared to the previews, he's completely lost it. Now if we're talking dragons, we do get a hint of them appearing in the preview chapters. Viserion is actually starting to eat the diseased corpses as they fly through the air, in the same way that Rhaegal did to the sheep back in the pyramids pit. So our first worry is wondering if dragons can catch the pale mare, because that's the very last thing we'd want to see. But it also shows that the dragons are close enough to the battle to make a difference if they so choose. Viserion, he's over the city, he's capturing these corpses. Rhaegal is actually over the ships, over the Ironborn and the Marine fleet, so he's definitely within range. Who knows what happens there? Could be ships burning, could be involved in the battle another way, then the horn comes into it, we don't know. So all of that is really just guesswork, especially in terms of what happens with the dragons. They're dragons, they could do anything. But we do have evidence from dance still to play out in other areas as well, and it goes in the opposite direction of what we might think about the battle. Lots of people talk about betrayal being a huge part of Barris and Selmy's wins arc. We've referenced it ourselves plenty of times. Normally it's something along the lines of Barristan betraying Daenerys to go to Aegon instead, which people obviously hate the idea of, and that could easily turn out to be true, much later in the book of course, but I'm more concerned with betrayal coming during this battle, and not perpetrated by Barristan, but done unto him. And there's two areas that we should look at. Firstly, the pit fighters. Now maybe I'm being blinded by bias, but I just don't trust them. As mentioned earlier in this chapter, I'm really unsure about their inclusion with the council meeting, where they're privy to all these plans. As well as being involved in the actual battle, they're now aware of the tactics. Tactics they could get back to the Harpy, or Galaza, or maybe ultimately back to the Yunkish. Everything they have derived from his Dar remember. And I can't speak about how much pit fighters really have a team vibe among themselves, but I can't see Barristan's killing of Kraz as endearing to them. I can't see why they'd like him anymore. 
So they have motivation, whether for Kraz, whether for Hisdar, or just their way of life. They just want the masters back in charge so they can get what's best for them. So I'm already suspicious, and that's going to increase in early wins when Barristan starts thinking how loyal they are. If someone's thinking that, it's normally a pretty big sign that someone is not loyal. We know they're going to mass at the marine gates, so I'm worried are they going to bar the way back after the battle, or if Barristan's forced into a retreat or something like that? Maybe they do something in the field. They use these tactics to take a force in the rear, attack the Unsullied, or maybe they even try to kill Barristan. We know this would work for them. We know Galaza would be against Barristan. The Harpies are in general. They want his dar back, and maybe they see this as the opportunity. Yes, we do need Barristan to go out and win our war for us, but while he's gone, we're going to undo everything he's done and maybe kill him as well. They get to remove another Danny symbol, and they get to regain power of the city. Plus, if it does happen out on the battlefield, well, that's much easier to deny if Daenerys should return, or if you've got to explain it to anyone else, Skaz or whoever it might be. So this definitely worries me quite a bit, because you can just see it, can't you? If Barristan starts the chapters really well, the battle's all going his way, we get to see his finest hour, and then, unfortunately, he's made a political mistake he's trusted the wrong people and down it goes we have had those comparisons to ned for barristan all the way through this one seems like it could line right up trusting people you shouldn't that's a real comparison to ned isn't it so yeah i don't like that but that's just one possibility the other one probably the much worse one i'm more worried about to be honest is not the pit fighters but skahaz himself so we've been mentioning this throughout the chapter but this is where we really start having to worry so again like the pit fighters Let's think about Skahaz. We need Barristan. We've needed him throughout the chapter. We need him now for this battle. But he's left the city with the main fighting force. A lot of the freedmen are gone and basically everyone else, half the Unsullied. So who are left in the city? Skahaz and the Brazen Beasts, as well as some Unsullied. Now Skahaz, we've been talking about him not just in this chapter, but throughout the whole arc, especially in Barristan's arc, not just Daenerys's, about his own build-up, his own frustration, his own desire to get certain things accomplished, and normally he wants to get them accomplished through violent extremist methods, and that's only increased of late. He's a brutal man, a dangerous man, we've said that right from the beginning. And even though he has got some of what he's wanted lately, embarrassed in helping him and taking down his diet, etc., there's still more things that he wants done. For example, he said about the, the Sons of the Harpy, they did come back, Barristan tried to put on the blood tax, that didn't work, Skaha said that only blood can pay them back, only blood will stop them. This is a constant theme for him, this is how he wants to pay things back, he thinks that only certain lessons can be learned in certain ways. So, now with him essentially left in charge of the city, Barristan and everyone else who can hold him in check gone, there's no Daenerys obviously, I'm wondering if he's going to take the advantage to finally do what he wants and enact his violent brutal ways against these people that he hates in the nobles in the upper structure of marine i wonder if we're going to see probably a worse atrocity even than fleeing diseased corpses into the city by skaz himself unfortunately what i'm talking about here is i think the skahaz might kill the hostages kill the cupbearers kill the children and maybe his dar as well we already know he's got this personal vendetta against his dar and against that house in general he's already been dismissed by his dar before don't forget and he's even said to barristan that he wants to kill his dar he said it outright all the clues are there so i'm thinking yes his dar unfortunately is going to be killed in custody that will annoy barristan enough on its own it'll probably be quite a violent killing because this is what skahaz is all about this is what marine's all about and it'll be another instance of, no, we've never liked his star. We did want his comeuppance, but we probably didn't want it in this way. Though having said that, I think clearly the thing that bothers us more is the idea of the children being murdered. Not just us, but Barristan as well. We're going to see maybe a kind of Rickard Karstark reflection here. Skahaz and armed men, brazen beasts, coming in on innocent children and butchering them. As paybacks against the nobles, against the great masters, and just him being able to do what he wants for once. Skahaz being able to do what he wants 
being unchecked and the evil of this place, this part of the world, really being shown to us on page. I think that it links very, very well into the themes of the story. We're always talking about the innocence of children and how they get caught up in war. They're the true victims. I mean, that's what half the story is about for our Stark POVs. This was Ned's greatest mission. This is Barristan's greatest mission in a lot of ways. The protection of innocence, the protection of children has to be the highest priority. And Barristan might come back. He might even come back victorious. Let's just say they destroy the Unkish. I don't think they will, but let's just say they absolutely wipe the field of them. They come back in. None of that is going to matter to Barristan's army if he walks into the top of that pyramid and there are dead children all over the place. Yes, not only does that reflect very well into his thoughts he's already had about Aegon and Rhaenys, you remember what he said about Robert Baratheon had smiled at that, what Barristan would do. So now we have reaction as well. If he does come back in, if he does find this thing, if he finds this obvious atrocity that would be one of the worst things in the series and another really great marker from George to be like, hey, this is what this book's going to be about, then we're probably going to see a rage from Barristan that we've never seen before. And maybe that ends with him killing Skahaz in Retribution or him coming up against the Brazen Beasts and them killing him. We don't know. It might all just be terrible chaos and maybe Daenerys comes back at this time and she's got something to say maybe Skahaz gets roasted himself or I mean the worst possible reaction probably is if she's okay with it or doesn't punish and maybe that's what sends Barristan into the hands of Aegon or gets him thinking we just don't know in general I think if we look overall at the battle as I said I don't think it's going to be a complete victory for Marine. I think probably what we're just going to see is, is death everywhere I think what George is trying to get at here is that this is all a big waste of time like I said a minute ago we've got bigger fish to fry we've got much larger themes to deal with actually important stuff elsewhere in the world this is just ridiculous it's Marine uh, choosing death always and choosing violence as a way of life even as a form of entertainment this is like a one big fighting pit in a way and with all these different factors out there on the battlefield, the Ironborn and the Dragonbinder Horn, and the dragons possibly just destroying everyone left, right, and center, with the confused stru- with the confused structures of maybe both sides as well in terms of leadership, if the pit fighters do get involved. Now I think Daenerys is probably going to come back and just find that no one's really won, it's just everyone's lost. That's much more likely to me, that we're really going to see what marine and what this place represents, just death everywhere, both sides incredibly weakened. Oh, don't forget Volantis is still to come as well, who knows what they add to it all. And perhaps this is part of Daenerys' story. This is how she gets over the place, just by coming back and seeing, wow, you really just cannot save it. So I'm going to cut my losses. I'm going to head off maybe with the Iron Fleet or the Volanta ships or whatever, and I'm going to finally head west. So I just think that keeps into the theme of Marine and Slaver's Bay, choosing for life to be this way. It's war for war's sake, like I say, it's entertainment. I just think it really is going to be the opener of winds of just atrocity and bad things everywhere. And George is really going to make us sit up and pay attention very, very quickly. So I'm really excited to see how that all plays out. Much as we were last week with everything that happens at Castle Black and before everything we still to come at Winterfell, well, we're just hungry for the beginning of this book, aren't we? Let's wind it back a little bit. I know I went probably a bit further than I should have on that battle, but I'm just so interested. Let's talk about Barristan. Now, I think I covered his character and what he's worth to us at the beginning of the chapter, and you're probably hungry to move on to Daenerys, so I won't go on and on here. In general, I think it's just an amazing four-chapter arc. It's a really hard thing to get in four chapters, especially considering that frequency. And Marine is tough as a setting as well. We know this is, again, a light bulb moment for George to include Barristan in the first place. I think he's done fantastic with him. Now, Barry is a, he was a flawed man in the past in some ways, and he's still a flawed man here with some of his takes on Danny and her youth or agenda. At times he does truly annoy me, but I love him in general. I love these chapters and whatever happens in this battle or afterwards, I'm really hoping he doesn't portray Daenerys, but if he does, then 
It's probably going to be one of those things where George is going to set it up for us to have conflict in our hearts again. We're not going to want him to go against Daenerys, but maybe we're going to be given really good reasons why. And then if he does do that, we're assuming he goes to Aegon. How does that all play out? Does he regret his choice eventually? There's just too many things to guess at, but whatever it is, whether by this battle or what comes after, I'm very, very excited for Wins Barristan. I really like his point of view. I really like getting things from his angle. And he's going to have some very, very interesting stuff to cover, especially at the beginning. So we heartily await seeing you again, Sir Barry. Thank you for this book. We'll see you again in wins. Oh, see that alone. That's a pretty big chapter. That's a pretty big one to be getting on with. And yet somehow we're going to eclipse it yet again as we head for our final real chapter of the book and a goodbye to a much, much bigger character than Barristan in Daenerys. Let's head out to the Dothraki Sea and Daenerys 10. Now, way back, about half an hour ago, before we started all that battle talk, I said that the last line of Barry's chapter was the last line of the book proper. At least I meant to. I can't actually remember if I did say that now, but that's definitely what I meant to say. And the reason I would have said it, if I did or didn't, is that what we have now, in my mind, is one official epilogue, still to come with Kevin later, and one unofficial epilogue. For the chapter we have here before us, is as much of a bubble chapter as we ever get. For 95% of it, we have one human character, and that's it. That's never happened before, not to anyone as far as I can remember. I'm trying to think, yeah, okay, Sam's first chapter, he's on his own a lot, but there are other people, and a lot of it is memory. John in the Frost Fangs, no, I'm pretty sure this is the one time we have one person just on their own. And though said character will have lots of thoughts pertaining to other plots, she herself will not touch them. Daenerys is a person removed from her own setting, her own arc. She is someone moving past that said arc, finally, and deciding on a brand new path before yet another one is chosen for her in the form of, arguably, our biggest cliffhanger yet. So, fellow green folk, one and all, welcome to our final chapter proper, unless you're like me and consider it an epilogue. Here it is. This is what we've been waiting for. Finally, Daenerys is back with us. And she's going to give us exactly what we want in a lot of ways. She's going to go back to the decision she made right at the very beginning of her dance arc. She's going to go back to a decision she made at the end of Storm. She's going to go back to an internal war that she waged all the way through Game of Thrones as she decided what she wanted to be. First, it was Dothraki. Then she embraced the flame and was gifted with her dragons. Across half a continent, she blazed that hot trail that changed the world around her. To try and aid that mission, she chose to become a queen to try and save lives and actually grow trees for one. And in that name of saving people and changing destinies, she quelled her own fire despite her best instincts, despite advice from sources otherworldly or not, and at times against evidence. Since then, it has been a long crawl of a book for Daenerys, littered with problems from every angle, as the entire world blamed her for seemingly every problem. She's known threats, slander, disease, starvation, abandonment, betrayal, blame from her enemies, blame from her friends, blame from her own children. She was hammered into this small box labelled the Miranese Way, forced into a loveless, manipulative marriage where she was mocked and reduced and taken down and ultimately used. And she did it all to try and save people, as I say, to try and make the world a better place until she realised what they had really done was simply put on the smiling face and co-opt her into their own crimes. She was starting to feed the very thing she'd set out to destroy, and all it had cost her was her very soul. It's been a book of disappointment and pain and self-doubt for Daenerys Targaryen. She's no stranger to any of those feelings anyway, but this was something more. This was a hollowing out, a beatdown, and she felt it every second of the way. Her true self was either locked beneath stone or disappeared over the horizon. Until one child came back for her, in her biggest moment. It was a moment we'd long been waiting for after this very difficult book where we had crawled alongside Daenerys. We felt all the pain and how horrible everything was for her and we hated it. We really did. 
It was the very worst to one of our favourite characters and we love so much with all these many, many difficulties and just ugh, the tedium, the horribleness of it all, the slow burn of crushing weight that we've discussed in every single Daenerys chapter, well, that all resulted in this one big moment when she made a connection with a dragon further than anything she had experienced up to that point and it was just what we wanted. And though we'll discover that wasn't a flick of the switch and all problems are solved kind of deal, it does lead her down the very, very important path of redirecting her to the path of the dragon, the path of empowerment, and, I believe at the least, the path she should truly be on as Daenerys reopens the huge conversation we had at the beginning of the book and embraces her Targaryen-ness. That is what we have to look forward to today. So this chapter is indescribably important for that reason alone, never mind what else we get out of it. It is strikingly similar to some of what she went through back in Game of Thrones when she first threw herself into the fire, so to speak, and hatched the eggs. It is a true addressing of some of her issues, and most importantly, it seems like it's truly going to dictate the path going forward. Now, Daenerys's arc is one of the ones we don't have a wins preview for, unsurprisingly, and it's one of the more generally open questions, even if we figure there are essential tentpoles, like her returning to Marine, and maybe she does gain the Dothraki as a whole on the way. That seems likely, and maybe, maybe, we're even going to be lucky enough for her to turn west. That's all up for debate, like it was in Barristan's chapter, but what this chapter seems to lean to is that Danny is going to do whatever she's going to do, with a re-embracing of her true self, and we have to love that. She will finally act upon the advice of Quaif. We will finally turn back to go forward, at least that's one way to take it. And the Daenerys we get on the other side will be a stronger, fiercer, more determined Targaryen, probably both for good and bad. Let's check the name of the book again, shall we? It's all about the dragons, remember. So it's only fitting we end with the most important one, and Daenerys herself. The caveat, of course, is how far do we want Daenerys to go with that? Is she going to take that new strength, the, these possible new abilities of Drogon, and that attitude of, I'm not taking any more bullshit, and then will she swing too far the other way? It's entirely possible. Anyone wielding something as powerful as a dragon must be wondered about in that sense. But for now, we simply have to adore the fact that Daenerys will get back to her true self. She won't let the experiences of Marine defeat her or diminish her. And we're hoping, really, I doubt it ever goes this easy, but we're hoping she'll spend the first part of wins at least putting everyone in their place and basically winning again. It has been so very hard to watch her throughout this book, so we're hungry to see the old version of her return. And yes, that's the big part of the chapter, sure, but there's plenty of other stuff in here as well. The thinking of Marine and what happens there. The thinking back to key figures in her life, whether it be Jorah Mormont, or Viserys, or Khal Drogo, we're going to talk on them all. We'll talk on the actual techniques of controlling a dragon and how you find those out. We'll learn what happened when she first left Marine. We'll have theories about Quaif and the end of day signals that we get here. The real changing, the signals that this arc, this world, is moving into a new era. We'll cover that plenty as well. And we'll have a lot to worry about just Daenerys in herself, whether she'll even make it through this chapter. That tension is going to be present all the time as well, especially with a specific focus on her sickness and what that could mean for her. There's plenty to be getting on with. You almost wonder if George was tempted to use a chapter title instead of her actual name here, just to take his surprise that little bit further. But no, he sticks to tradition. So we're going to turn the page and boom. After long last, after so, so long, we have our queen returned. After all those questions and wondering, yes, she is here. And the most important point of it is the most obvious. Daenerys has survived. She still lives as if we were ever really in doubt. So now our minds want to run away with a hundred different ideas on how she can get back to Marine and start kicking ass and affect that big battle, especially now how she can return and find that everyone is going to war for her, or maybe we'll even find that her and Drogon have already been having their own adventures off somewhere else. 
It's perfectly possible, especially when you add in the possibility of that timeline being screwed again. We don't know when this is and what's happening. <laughs> so many questions for wins. Some first-timers might even think we'll see Danny return to Marine in this chapter. That's perfectly possible for first-timers. Perhaps our closing lines of this book will be Danny glimpsing a Marine just starting its battle or even finding the aftermath. We might even go really morbid first-timers and think that this chapter will detail Daenerys' death just to really, really keep that mirror up with Jon. But come on, none of us really think that's going to happen. And then again, I suppose we didn't with John either. Instead, we have all these other questions, like I say, hundreds of them really, that we also want answering on the very first line. Like, where the hell is she? Why didn't she come back to Marine? What's her plan going forward? Did she command Drogon to burn all those people? There's plenty of them. And we will have our answers. So here we go, let's dive into a chapter that has questions, has answers, has different plot points, but for the most important thing to take note of is that this is a Targaryen chapter. This is all fire and blood. This is the Dance of the Dragons right here. So let's get into it. We get our first answer straight away on the very first line, even if we might have to read it twice just to make sure. A sea of green. Right, well that's the Dothraki Sea, isn't it? It's gotta be. Well, one of our guesses had to be right, didn't it? Yes, Danny has gone back to where it all began, a thematic link that's going to be really strong from the content that we'll get in this chapter. For now, we know Danny is out in the wild. Is that by choice? We don't know. Is she in good condition? Is she safe? We don't know. Eh, I suppose we should probably read on if we want to get more answers. In terms of physical wellness, she's at least not seriously injured. She probably hasn't fallen like so many people suggested, but she is fatigued. She thinks she might be feverish. For many of us, that already sparks concerns about the Pale Mare, we'll come back to that later. And she has some burn marks that have actually already started healing. So is that supposed to show the passage of time, or does Danny just heal really quickly from these things? Let's go back to the location for a moment. Some readers might have just got this from the opening line, but as well as being in a sea of green, she's specifically climbing down an island made of stone. A stone island with a dragon on it. Hmm, does that ring a bell? Well it did for Daenerys, who has taken to naming it Dragonstone. So yes, right from the off, we have the central key pieces of Targaryen lore being included to help with the chapter's main purpose and theme of finally pointing Daenerys back to her true self, an idea we adore, especially for all the power that is going to come along with it. And let's be clear, it's not just about power for Daenerys, it's just about her being who she is supposed to be and being happy, that's what we really want. Anyway, let's resist from going on that rant again, let's go back to this chapter. The real Dragonstone housed real dragons in centuries gone by, and this new one apparently does the same thing, as Drogon was as Drogon seems to have been making his lair here long before he happened to bring Daenerys with him. The nesting aspect is really important for dragons it turns out, as we've seen all three now making their attempts at making homes recently, whether that be here on New Dragonstone, which is what I'm going to call it, back in the pyramid pit, or actually out in actual pyramids in Marine. And I wonder if that's because they know they're not really where they're supposed to be. Do they feel out of sorts, like something's not right? Are they nesting and trying to make themselves feel safe because they're not near Daenerys anymore? Are they missing that soul connection? Either way, Daenerys is certainly agreeing with Drogon at the beginning here. She wants a home too, and she's always known that Marine is simply not that for all she might have tried to make it so. It's a project, an important piece that she wants to succeed with, but it's not home. That pull is leading her somewhere else, and as readers who want to see her finally move west, that's obviously a sense we're really hoping she keeps up so we can finally get what we want. Again, it's not just that we want Daenerys to go west for our own selfish ambitions of furthering the plot, it's because we generally think Marine is not a nice place for her, she can't be happy there, maybe she can't be happy west either but she's got a better chance of it, please go there Daenerys, we want what you deserve. But also, that lost sense of homelessness and not having that concrete base beneath you plays such a large part into why Daenerys can't settle on who she is or what she really wants to do. 
It plays into her confusion about a great many things, and it pushes her further into the emotional direction-picking decisions that she'll come to today. She wants that. She wants that firm base. She wants to really just know who she is so she can move forward with her life and not kind of just swirl around like she's been doing in this book. It's just circles, isn't it, in this one? Annoying, repetitive, ever-decreasing circles. So she wants to move on from that and make a change. For now, we can't address that part straight on because Daenerys is still thinking of Marine in a fairly fond way. She still wants to get back there, which is fair enough. As we mentioned in Barry's chapter, I don't think any of us want to just see her leave completely and straight away and never look back, much as she might deserve to. That would be fair enough. Whatever decision she comes to today, she's not just going to forget Marine. It's still an important part of what she's trying to do for the world. She still has children there, both in dragon and human form. She still has friends, her freedmen. She wants to save all those lives that she stayed there for in the first place. And there are still slavers to beat and worlds to change. So definitely here at the beginning of the chapter, before she comes to later realisations, her aim is to just get back to the city. Unfortunately, that's not just because she wants to get back and save her people from Harbies or Yonkai, or because she views it as home for now. It's unclear whether this lure she talks of at the beginning is supposed to be marine on the surface and then have the deeper view of true home as I've taken it. It's also a matter of survival. She's out in the wildest wild, completely separate from all civilization right now, which will turn out to be a big part of why she's able to disconnect for a while and get thinking about the important stuff. And this is a logistical problem. She needs to get back for food, shelter, protection. What's she going to do, just live out here as a nomad? No, she must return at the opening. And she's decided she can do that by heading south to the stream she's spied and she's confident that following it will ultimately lead to the Skahazadan and therefore she can get back to Marine. So that's her early goal set out at the beginning of the chapter. And walking as a way to achieve that goal is very obviously a second choice as we discover that unfortunately and very disappointingly Drogon hasn't simply been unlocked for complete use whenever she desires. It's not that simple. Which leads us back to actually think on that moment when she did command him back in Dasnak's pit. That momentous occasion when she did break the barrier and ride him for the first time. We've been so concerned with the fallout of her absence and its effect on Marine, but what about these two and that special moment? How has that connection manifested? Are they now bonded stronger than ever? Has Daenerys learnt more tricks of the trade? Is it that uncorking of the bottle that leads her to choose the Targaryen path later on? We'll come back to that, but it surely plays a part. And what about the actual experience? Let's focus on that. How can it be anything other than life-changing? Not just for the extra connection with Drogon, not just for the sense of accomplishment and the feeling of closeness with her ancestors, even the validation of, oh yes, I must truly be a Targaryen because no one else could do this, but also the sheer physical experience. There's nothing on this planetos that is as paradigm-shifting or world-altering as what Danny experienced when she rose up in the air higher and higher. Not even standing atop the wall can compete with this. As Daenerys rose with Drogon, she was treated to a view of the world that no one else alive has ever seen. Let that sink in. No one for centuries has seen. And even then, it's still an incredibly select view that very, very few people have ever seen. So just put yourself in her place for a second. And most of us have probably been in a plane and we've all seen aerial images. We see them every day. It's normal for us. But for a person who's never had any of that to then experience it for the first time, to get that view, never mind the feeling of just being that high up in the air, then it's completely unimaginable. It's not possible for the brain to come up with something like that until it actually sees it. How many things have you ever seen that you couldn't even imagine before? 
It's hard to get across just how life-changing that is, how important it must be. I really like considering that. So while we've been along with that consideration, obviously what we'd really hope for is that Daenerys has just simply unlocked that ability, that she would now have access to Drogon's flight powers whenever she wished and could maybe make him attack at will and basically turn him into her own personal X-Wing. Maybe that's why she's been absent for so long, to allow a bit of a training montage so we can rejoin her now and reap the reward. Yes, we would all like that one, please, Mr. George. But no, nothing is so simple or easy in George's world. Drogon is a real living thing, not just a gate to be unlocked. The ability to fly or command is not a badge to be earned, it's apparently a growing relationship that needs time and hard work and really makes you pay. Our first quote of the chapter is this. The dragon lords of old Valeria had controlled their mounts with binding spells and sorcerous horns. Daenerys made do with a word and a whip. So this can open up a whole treasure trove of questions about the nature of the Targaryens and their relationship with dragons and how they commanded them. To be honest, we can barely even scrape the surface here, but what sticks out to me is the questions of, is Targaryen blood enough? Is that what gives you access to commanding the dragons? And sometimes you can even burst through like Danny did in Daznak's pit, but to do it consistently, maybe you do need spells and horns? And in conjunction, does that then mean that horns and spells don't work without Targaryen blood present as well? Do you need both to really command a dragon? Or can you do a pale imitation if you do have the right spell or the right horn or whatever it might be? Well, don't think that mention of a horn escapes our notice, not with Victarion coming closer, not with Dragonbinder. We don't even know if that's the kind of thing Darius means right here, but it might be. So maybe Victarion is just a plot device to get Dragonbinder into Danny's hands. We've never really considered that because we've always figured she'd never need it, that she'd just learn to do it on her own, but perhaps not. I think we'd all prefer her to do it that way, but who are we to say? The question in this comes from all we've seen from the World Book or Fire and Blood, and the fact that the original Targaryen trio that took Westeros and all their descendants didn't seem to have spells or horns at their disposal. And maybe they did and it was just never told to us, or perhaps those dragons, from your Balerion to your Vermifor to whoever else you want to talk about, didn't require the horns and spells because the obedience or the link with humans had been bred into them more and was just established more back then. But maybe these three of Daenerys's, being part of a whole new separate generation, maybe need that Kickstarter of spells or horns or whatever it might be. Or maybe it's just because they've each now had large amounts of time away from Daenerys. It could be anything, we just don't know. But I think, like I say, we're all hoping that Daenerys will discover the natural connection with at least Drogon, if not all three of them, that she won't need the additions. Mostly because we don't want to spend too much time collecting or learning about them, but also just because it seems better, more validating, and I think Daenerys deserves that. Luckily, we will get some answers potentially on that later in the chapter. For now, Danny is only thinking how Drogon is very much different from a horse, how he wants to attack pain, how these beasts will always be untamable in their own way, and how dragons are just really their own creatures. So that was all just page one. Wow, yeah, that should tell you how much we've got to talk about today. That's all just the first page of my version. So instead of learning all the tricks, Danny has kind of been at Drogon's mercy. She can't just hop aboard and point him back to Marine whenever she wants, at least not yet. So we're back to our walking journey. And Danny doubles down on that by thinking that Drogon might fly across half the Dothraki Sea, but he always returns to this new Dragonstone. He's always brought back by a sense of home. That's how she puts it anyway. But maybe he keeps coming back just because of her. Keep walking. If I look back, I am lost. Ah yes, that old chestnut, that very much plays in today's themes as well. Don't worry, we'll be getting lots of that. It's now that Daenerys hits on that point I mentioned a moment ago about her flight. She remembers those sights now unique to her and Drogon, and I suppose the other two dragons, those life-changing views that sound beautiful in George's description. And you know what, I wasn't going to include this quote, but it's our final episode, let's do it anyway. Memories walked with her. Clouds seen from above. Horses, small as ants, thundering through the grass. A silver moon, almost close enough to touch. Rivers running bright and blue below, glimmering in the sun. Will I ever see such sights again? 
On Drogon's back, she felt whole. I love that description. Just something as simple as clouds from above. You can't, the clouds even have an above? This is something that no one else has ever been able to think of before. So of course she feels whole on his back. This is just one of the many pieces of evidence we'll get throughout the chapter that this and other parts of being a Targaryen just feel right. They feel that that's how things are supposed to be and that's going to accumulate as we go. For now though, Danny fights that feeling. Even here out in the wild, living with a dragon, having just flown through the sky, the scars of Marine and all of this book are still being felt. She still feels the pull of Marine and the duty of being where she's supposed to be. Part of that is her inclination to go back and help people, but that's not how she views it here. She's walking as if she owes them something, like she's an animal that needs to return to the cage. She even says, Drogon had bent before the whip, and so must she. How awful it is that she thinks of herself that way, but this is how Marine and this book has conditioned her to think. That's what these people have done to her, that's what we've witnessed, we've talked about it plenty. She thinks it is only proper to return to Hisdar to be cowed and placed upon the shelf once more. So that's definitely not the attitude change we'd been hoping for, at least not yet. But the argument does exist within her. Inside, her soul is already battling over the argument of which path to take. She just hasn't realised it herself yet. After George goes through some of the logistics of being out in the wild and what she actually has left to wear, which we could see as freeing from those queenly chains as we did when she originally shed the tokar, she admits that again, something does feel right about all this, about being out here. Despite it all, she'd been strangely happy here. A few aches, an empty belly, chills by night. What does it matter when you can fly? I would do it all again. Oh, she's like me when playing Breath of the Wild, it's the same feeling I get. And that's what she's experiencing, the feeling of the true wild, the call of getting back to nature, of embracing what really matters. So this is what we really want. I love this kind of storyline and these kind of focuses, and we all believe this is the correct path to go down. Yet, the argument exists because she immediately follows that by thinking of the creature comforts that await her, as far as she knows, back in marine. Food and friends and cleanliness. So there are many different desires within Daenerys. I might have my favourites, but they're all equally valid, and we can guess that much of Winds, and some of this chapter as well, might be about finding out how to make these different paths coexist together, even if one apparently has the majority by the end of today. More logistics now, as we cover Danny's lack of food. It's another reason for her making a move now, indeed it's the driving force. There was little for her on the new Dragonstone, and anything she could find could easily make her sick, keep that in mind for later, despite her earlier claims that she's never been ill. So she sticks with her journey, again getting back to the natural feeling of it, the warm ground and the tall grass. It sounds magical, to be honest. Most crucial for this idea of finally looking back, of connecting old themes together, Danny starts thinking on when she was here before, when she first started on this grand journey of hers and sailed upon what was a very different Dothraki sea. The grass was paler than she remembered, a wane and sickly green on the verge of going yellow. After that would come brown. The grass was dying. So that is a superb way of framing how far we've come, how different everything is. It's this huge marker of change that's already come and changes that are still on the horizon. This huge, massive natural event really makes it seem like we're coming to a very important moment in history. I've always really liked this idea of ghost grass and what that could mean. And I'm going to ask you to cast your mind back a, a fair bit now. Let's try and recall that Game of Thrones scene where Jorah explains about the ghost grass and all the different grasses of the world. I think it's from Daenerys 2 in Game of Thrones, so it's even at the beginning of that book, but let's just try and recall that. A red sea is mentioned, and that makes us think of dragons or death. And of course, there's the old green grass that Danny mentioned originally to start off the whole passage. And that makes me think of the nights of summer and the representation of life that will soon be under attack. Apparently, both green and red have gone now. They've been replaced by the bronze and yellow as it dies. So does that indicate the coming of this ghost grass? Is the ghost grass just a metaphor for the others or winter itself? Is that how the Dothraki see that whole story of events and that's, that's just how their history remembers it? It could be. 
It seems like that whole passage in A Game of Thrones could serve as fantastic foreshadowing, along with some stunning imagery. Another phrase that sticks out from that, because I did go back and check that I had this passage right, is Jorah calling that red-flowered sea a sea of blood. And that phrase sounded familiar, so I did double-check, and it does come up in one other place. And it's this book, it's in Dance, when Makoro is talking to Tyrion about a tall, twisted thing with one black eye and ten long arms. He's talking about Euron, obviously, I'm sure you remember. So is it just mere coincidence that that one phrase is used only twice in the series? Or do the Ironborn have something to do with the Dothraki Sea? Victarion did say he would sail across it to find Daenerys before knowing what it was, so perhaps this is an indication of that. Now, Makoro also mentioned Victarion as the axe that drips blood, so I suppose what we didn't extend our thinking to when we talked about the Battle of Fire a minute ago is what Victarion is going to do when the battle is over and he realises Daenerys isn't there. Is he just going to sit in Marine or will he go looking for her? It's certainly going to be a question that he'll ask himself, isn't it? The issue would be, obviously, how would he search the Dothraki Sea? We just can't see him doing that. We can't really imagine him on a horse. Unless, of course, Dragonbinder does work as advertised. Victarion does take one of the dragons. And the horn, for whatever reason, allows you to fly on them straight away or have complete command or something like that. And then we're going to have Victarion maybe flying over the Dothraki Sea on one of the dragons looking for Daenerys. What an image that makes. Yeah, I'm not sure I like that too much. And because it's Victarion, the Victarion who's losing his mind, remember, maybe he wants to play with his new toy and he sets half the Dothraki Sea on fire in his search. So we could get that red imagery again. We get more death of the grass and more of a sense of an ending. I suppose it could also point towards Euron. That Makara quote does point more towards him. But as far as we know, he's still back at the reach unless there really is a big twist coming, which isn't impossible, I suppose. You never know. It's just not something I'd considered that much. People have also compared the Ironborn and Dothraki many times before, and I'm not too sure on that myself, but perhaps they do join together under Daenerys. Another idea just to hold in your mind is the Miran Razdur prophecy, when she gives her warning about when the seas go dry. That's one of those lines. Maybe you can extend that to the Dothraki Sea, and maybe that's what we're seeing here, that it's going dry. But maybe that's also a bit of a stretch. But I would keep it in your mind for something coming up later in the chapter. They're all great ideas, but either way, you can see that George really wants us to get into this idea of linking this chapter, his essential last of the series so far, back to A Game of Thrones, the first book. We've used the phrase bow tying a lot as we've reached this final part of Dance, and you can see how true that is. There's many, many theories about the Dothraki Sea and what this ghost grass means, or what this grass that Daenerys Sea means, and I'd love to go deeper into them, because like I said, I really like that phrase, I really like those ideas, I really like it as another symbol or a sign of the coming times, or the end of times, whatever you want to call it. But instead of focusing on what that might mean, Danny herself heads back into nostalgia mode, so we'll just have to leave the ghost grass for another time, but do chime in if you've got any ideas yourself. Almost all the characters who've had their last chapters of late have had some tying back to the events or themes of the past, but few have looked so far or so deeply as Daenerys does here as she remembers that original journey through the Dothraki Sea, when she was such a different person, when the entire world seemed different. She thinks this, The sky was blue, the grass was green, and I was full of hope. And we know it wasn't all hunky-dory back in the day. She had plenty of problems back then, but we also know that she did have a lot more hope. She wasn't nearly as jaded or browbeaten as she's become. So we see why she's relishing the trip down memory lane, why she's loving the remembrance of this feeling. And she remembers Rago as well, the child that much of that hope was centred on. And again, that's pretty important that he's given a focus, given what is still to come in the chapter. Keep it in mind. But if you're going to remember one half, you have to do so with the other. As Danny does here, when we're visiting how that world and hope shattered in the red waste how Daenerys was forged into something harder and how out of her grief and blood and payment came her true purpose in the dragons and let's not skip over her detailing what happened to the Kalasar, what the individual coves did in the following chaos which is a nice little hint and reminder for our ending that's still to come 
More important for right now is how Danny links her original walk into the fire with her being burned by Drogon. In both cases, her hair burned away, but that was seemingly it. And sometimes I think we need to be reminded of Daenerys walking into a fire and coming out unscathed, our earliest sign of really huge, big magic that we still have no real explanation for. But again, it's critical that Daenerys is revisiting this, revisiting how she became the mother of dragons and became a true Targaryen. She lost her way, but now she appears to be about to get it back. But she focuses more on the recent past, transferring from one burning to another as she details their escape from Marine. It turns out Danny did not order Drogon to burn his attackers, at least not consciously. But we also discover that Drogon was far more injured by said attacks than we originally thought, the bastards. So we don't blame him for attacking back. They earned the flames. But then again, here comes that double edge. Drogon is wild and so is fire. Neither of them really chose their targets after a certain point, as Danny remembers seeing a mother and child suffer the flames as well. So the dragons can be used for a great many things that we want to see, but they also come with a price. It's that sword without a hill idea yet again. From there, she remembers the flight away from the hated city, a dangerous one it was, but worth it in every part of Danny's mind. And we especially like that she spied the way west, she thought about what lay on that horizon, we've got to hope she remembers that feeling. Now we're back on the walk through the grass, with the sun becoming ever hotter. She thinks of her failed attempts at making a hat, at which point she called herself the Blood of the Dragon, which is another important note that will come up again. Then she finally finds this tiny stream that she's been aiming for, that she desperately needs for cooling down, or more importantly, for hydration. What she actually focuses on is the chance of rescue. There's no shortage of people who would want her back, and she knows that as she goes through the candidates. Now we know Barry would love to be out here looking, but he's trying to keep her legacy alive for her instead. She is correct that her blood riders are out here looking for her, and for all we know that will be the ending of the chapter, her finally making contact with those who've been with her since the beginning and then setting her sights on home. She even thinks that his Dar might dispatch some searchers, which I think tells us she really knows he'd never bother. But for Daenerys, it's much more fun to imagine Dario, her beloved Dario, walking out of the grass, picking her up and rescuing her. It's all very picturesque. Of course, she then remembers the reality that Dario is a hostage and not free to search for anyone. If indeed he would anyway, I have my doubts about that. We then also enter a line of thinking we might not have expected. Danny thinking that everything will just be settled by now. Here she thinks about the hostages surely haven't been released. In a moment, she'll think Yunko will be marching home and everything will just be done. It will be wrapped up. That's what she's expecting, seeing all she gave up for that piece. She says it better have damn worked, it better have all stuck together. So Daenerys is likely going to be pretty damn surprised when she eventually does return and sees the truth. If she gets back early enough and witnesses the surely devastating aftermath of this climactic battle we've been waiting for, she might even get bloody angry. After all she went through, after all she gave up to secure peace, and this is what they did with it as soon as she was gone? Widespread devastation and huge loss of life? How dare they? What fools? But we could also say there's some naivety in there from her. It's easy for us to say, we've just had eight marine-based chapters telling us exactly what's happening, whereas Danny's had none. But did she really think it would all hold without her? Does she truly not recognise her own value in this massive knot? That's his dar's compression of her at work, that is. She also thinks of whether Dario's special status as her lover will put him at a higher danger as a hostage, whether the Yunkish know how much they could exploit that, and what else could be happening. Obviously, she thinks it doesn't matter now anyway, but we know that it does. I've always figured that the Yunkish absolutely did know what he was to Daenerys, because they've had Brown Ben Plum on their side, and there's been other sellswords in the city as well. No doubt they have secret spies on top of that, and even Hisdar might have mentioned it. We wondered back in the day if Hisdar came up with the idea of Dario being taken as hostage, and yes, I figured Dario was just boasting about his sleeping with Daenerys anyway. Daenerys even remembers discussing this with Barristan, and he said this apparently. They would have heard the talk, he had replied. Naharis may have even boasted of your graces, of your great regard for him. 
So I just include that there because it's hilarious how Barry can declare war and go through all these things, but he still can't get through that sentence, the sweet old man. So like I say, I thought they likely already knew what Dario was, but it being pointed out here for us might mean it's to be significant later on. Maybe they are extra unwilling to let Dario escape, or maybe they've already been torturing him as a kind of payback. Imagine if he was returned to Marine and to Daenerys gelded. What implications would that have? How would her reaction be? Danny leaves those thoughts for now, instead copying Cersei for a second by turning round, looking where she's come from, and being deflated at how little the distance seems. And the temptation is there. Just go back to New Dragonstone, live with Drogon out in the wild. She calls it the song of flight and freedom that the wind sang as it played amongst the hill's stony ridges. That's a cool sentence, as she also tells us she has ridden Drogon more than once, so that's good to know. But she turns her back all the same, determined to carry on to that river, however much it hurts. George really hits the nature mark as Danny continues walking and falls into the sights and sounds of this world. The sounds of the grass and the stream, the feeling of the mud, the awareness of insects and animal and bird. It's as natural as you can get and it all sounds very soul cleansing to me. But she's also getting hungrier, weaker and winds up talking to the grass. So a time element is slowly being introduced here as well. And of course, Drogon roams high above her just to keep him in mind. That night, Danny finds evidence of some long gone village, ever in keeping with this chapter's theme of looking into the past. A village likely hit by the Dothraki at some point, and then swallowed by this great sea. And yes, again, I am wondering about whether we'll see the death of grass, what it all means, that, that thought just keeps with me. But Daenerys doesn't bother wondering who lived here before, she's just glad to find some kind of shelter, and have a rest after her long day of walking. Despite her fatigue, her hunger doesn't allow her to sleep, so she thinks of Marine again, and is a bit more realistic now in terms of what might be happening. She thinks people might believe her dead. She thinks of Hisdar wanting Drogon dead. She remembers Belwas on his knees and she works out that the locust must have been poisoned. So she's thinking of a bit more clarity now than she was before because she's pretty on the money of all her guesses, it must be said. She even starts thinking on who could have given her the locusts. Hisdar was urging them, Hisdar was pushing them. So was it him? Or was it Resnak? Or was it the Harpies? She might be able to just clap her hands together and get the right answer. It could be all of them. It could be any individual. Even if we've just been thinking through our personal theories, thanks to Barristan's final chapter. Though I personally doubt it's the Yunkish. I still think probably Galaza Hisdar some kind of joins there. Point is though that she's thinking about it. She's connecting. And that also has to be of high importance for her. Eventually she is going to have to deal with these things. Off in the distance, a wolf howled. So we wondered earlier on about the wolf symbolism in Barry's chapter. And now we have to do the same here. Having checked, the word wolf has only come up twice in Danny's mind, ever, in the whole series. Once when she watched the strange shadow shapes dance on the tent of Miriam Asdur just before she went into labour, then a second time when she's in the House of the Undying and sees a premonition of Rob and the Red Wedding in the form of a man with a wolf's head, and then, obviously, here. Now this isn't on the same symbolic level as those first two, but then again this one is also actually real. So it just makes you think it could be a sign of the two great families about to merge in the future, other than... I mean, we've already had the merge in John, but I think you get what I mean. Finally, she does sleep, and as she loses her pain and discomfort, while she revels in the freedom of flight again, she hears words that we've heard before about going back to go forward, and Danny instantly recognises it as the words of Quaif. Then she saw, her mask is made of starlight. Remember who you are, Daenerys, the stars whispered in a woman's voice. The dragons know, do you? So there you go, now we're hitting on the important stuff, the true direction of what to do next and what person to be. We revisit what we got right at the beginning of the book, the same prophetic advice, the same push to become one with the dragons. The question is, is this Quaif projecting herself into Danny's dream? Does she have that power still, even with Daenerys so far away? Can she sense when Danny needs to hear this? It certainly seems she did last time, even if it didn't work. Or is it Danny just remembering those words, and then finally sinking in now, when again, she needs them the most, or can finally put them to use? 
Whichever it is, the Quaife connection is huge. We remember from our previous talks about her endorsement of the dragon, of becoming your true self, of this being the way forward. We don't know why Quaife is telling her that, what's in it for her, or how she would know all this anyway, but we definitely agree. And there's no place more fitting for her to turn up again, in whatever form, than in this chapter. Unfortunately, that's all we get though. We don't get any new Quaife talk today, just the old. And when Danny wakes, not only are all the discomforts come back, but she's also covered in ants. She just can't catch a break, this girl. While she's comparing the ants and the flagstones they live by to humans and the same, she brings up two key parts of one phrase. Well, I'll read you the quote here, because I think it's easy to slip by you. It reads like this. She wondered how the ants had managed to climb over it and find her. To them, these tumble-down stones must loom as huge as the wall of Westeros, the biggest wall in all the world, her brother Viserys used to say, as proud as if he'd built it himself. Now, it doesn't seem like anything at first glance, does it? But, well, we've already talked about wolf symbolism and that not coming up a lot, but here, Daenerys talks about the wall and i went back and checked this is the first time she ever ever mentions it the first time it appears in any daenerys chapter so that just seems pretty huge that just seems like another hint of her eventually going west eventually getting closer to her storyline because we figure the wall is probably going to play a pretty major role in her future and her life so the fact it's never come up before and is here yeah that does seem pretty major to me the only time you could argue it has come up is again at the house of the undying when she thinks about the blue rose growing in a chink of the of a wall of ice but the wall isn't capitalised. That probably does represent the wall, because we figure that's John, but she doesn't recognise it as that. So it's never consciously come up. This is the very first time, and I just think that's huge. The other part of the phrase is that she's bringing up Viserys, who played a big, big role for her back in the day, and is about to again. She also says that Viserys told tales of hedge knights, and we have to wonder if this was a tale passed down by his great-grandfather that eventually reached him. Maybe. And perhaps it's fitting that at the same time she remembers one male influence who died in Game of Thrones, she remembers the other when she thinks of Khal Drogo as a star looking down upon her. So we're all keeping her in the theme still, looking back right at the beginning. But for now, the journey is becoming harder and harder. It's taxing on both body and mind, and Daenerys is tempted again to just go back to New Dragonstone. But no, she insists on going further, and even resorts to calling the stream her friend out loud, because that's how much she's relying on it, that's how uncertain she's becoming. Indeed, she starts talking to herself more and more as she goes, all while thinking about the dangers of predators or her own lack of food. Each step is a bit harder than the last one, and she's really starting to suffer, which is why she considers it such a success when she comes across a bush by the stream, one covered in green berries. Now, she's smart enough to be suspicious at first, but I think we all know that hunger is not going to be defeated in this moment, and within instance, Danny is scarfing these berries down, while simply telling herself it'll be alright, these are definitely the ones the Kalasar used to use, it's perfectly safe. And wouldn't you know it, she turns out to be wrong. A mere hour later, Danny is physically halted by cramps. She's throwing up everywhere. It's so bad that she thinks she's going to die. Now, George has put us through an awful lot in this book, but I don't think any of us believe he's going to make us wait this long and give us this whole chapter just to watch the legend of Daenerys Targaryen end because of some berries. But then again, who can tell? And besides, it's enough to create the worry, and she's in horrible pain, so we have to hate seeing that for her. Hunger, fatigue, injuries weren't enough. Now she's got to deal with a very dangerous sickness brought on by desperation. And worse, she goes from thinking that her soul might end up with that of Carl Drogo's, if she should die, to thinking her body will just become food for worms and nothing more. So she's low, and we really hate to see it. She can still spy Drogon, but he's far away now, out of reach. She's failing. And it doesn't get any easier. She's becoming sicker and sinker. She's passing brown water, she calls it. And much, much worse, she's becoming thirstier all the time. So of course that note sends us all jumping out of our chairs because we're remembering Tyrion 11, the death of Yazan and the words of that healer. 
Increased thirst is one of the symptoms of the pale mare. So is it possible that Daenerys contracted that before she left? Will this be what kills her, what finishes her off? Do we have any idea of the recovery rate of this disease? Is there even such a thing? I think we know there is, but it seems rare at the very least. And Danny is already weak and feeble and malnourished with no one to care for her. So now we're saying sorry for daring to tempt George, we're really worrying that this could actually be it. And again, either way, even if it's not, she's really suffering. Of course, it might not be the pale mare. There's plenty of other things it could be. Those berries, they already made her sick. She's seen rats drinking from her water, so they could have like some form of cholera going on here. There's been flies and ants have been landing on her. They could have bitten her. Maybe it's a combination of all. Whatever the reason is, Daenerys genuinely thinks she might be dying when she passes out. And then the real trippy dreams start, as we get into what is the meat of this chapter. She dreamt of her dead brother. Just the fact that she's seeing Viserys is bad enough. Let us never forget the figure of torment and abuse this guy was to her. And also we'll recall something we mentioned a long, long time ago concerning how big a part of her life he was. Daenerys mentions him, or remembers him, surprisingly little, all things considered, which I think lends weight to the fact that he reappears in her psyche now. I'm pretty sure we've mentioned that back in Storm, that for everything that Viserys was and the big influence he had, after he dies, he really, really doesn't come up all that much. At least not after a certain point or after Storm. Of all the many things to dominate Danny's mind right now, and she picks Viserys out of all of them. It's not good, is it? And not just Viserys, but Viserys as she last saw him, all burnt and golden, just to really give us that horror vibe again. The starting theme of this conversation, as always, is guilt. Whether we want to view this as Danny's subconscious forming itself in the shape of Viserys, or just a dream figure, or whatever, the opening argument from her brother is that she should be guilty that he died and that she didn't mourn. In fact, she went the opposite way and took it as empowering. Apparently, this is why his spirit lingers. And how for all we know, maybe that's true. Danny argues back that she did love him, despite all his many crimes. He hurt her, abused her. To which Viserys brings out the argument we heard all the way back in A Game of Thrones. That it was always Danny's fault that his temper broke. That the Dothraki cheated him. That he was owed a crown, etc, etc, etc. If this is Danny's subconscious masquerading as Viserys, it's really got the impression down to a T. Though there are elements of the argument that we didn't get as much in Game of Thrones. There's the idea that Viserys believed Daenerys was his to marry. That that was the natural thing to do to ensure the survival of the house. That this was something he wanted or expected or that he loved to in general. We got very trace elements of that back in the day but it really wasn't pitched in such a way. And it still feeds into the same thing. Viserys believing that he gave up everything and never got anything back, while Daenerys did the exact opposite. We know how ridiculous that is, of course, and Danny reminds him again of arguments that we've seen before. How he never should have come with the Dothraki, how he never understood them. We know the stories. This projection is now threatening with waking the dragon right here and now, as if he were living and breathing. Yet Danny keeps arguing, keeps pointing out she was not something to be sold, that he would have got what he wanted if he'd just waited. But Viserys disputes, bringing up another, newer question. Why did the eggs go to her and not to him? They should have been mine. If I had had a dragon, I would have taught the world the meaning of our words. Yes, what an image. We've already had to imagine Victorian of a dragon. But what about Viserys? Can we imagine the kind of devastation the world would have seen if he'd been riding around on Drogon? But of course, we figure he never would have because he never would have stepped into the fire. He never would have understood the paying of the price. He never would have nurtured them. And of course, there's probably a thousand different elements of why it had to be Daenerys, but the point remains that he would have been a disaster. So perhaps the point of this is just to remind Daenerys what she could do with a dragon, what she could be. So is that supposed to be empowering, persuading her to use Drogon to win her battles? Or is it a cautionary tale of how far down that road she could wind up? Or is it both? Viserys began to laugh, until his jaw fell away from his face, smoking, and blood and molten gold ran from his mouth. When she woke, gasping, her thighs were slick with blood. 
Okay, so we're taking another step into something worse. She's getting even weaker, even sicker than before. Daenerys believes this is merely her period, but then becomes confused over whether that should be coming now or not, and she tries to mark the date by the crescent moon above her. The theory that dominates is that Daenerys is actually experiencing a miscarriage here. And let's firstly remember the significance of Viserys-based dreams because the last time she had one, or I'm pretty sure it's the last time anyway, but when she had the big one, that was when she first lost Rhaego, so we can make the connection there. And maybe this is why she's thinking that her last period was longer ago than it should have been because she actually fell pregnant but hadn't realised. That's just one possibility, of course. So she could be suffering either because of something the the berries or her sickness kick-started or just the fact she's so weak all of them could re result in a miscarriage couldn't they she's in a state of flux physically or maybe this is just occurring naturally and the timing is simply terrible not that there is any good time for this of course and in a way it's a kindness that daenerys doesn't even consider the possibility because that would be another heartbreaker as well too tough for her to bear no matter the circumstances now if she did fall pregnant the obvious question is whether it was by hisdar or dario but the larger question is how? Because that isn't supposed to happen for anymore, so what gives? What has changed? And we don't have an answer, we've got no clue, but it does fit into a great many aspects. She remembers the words of Moon Mazdur that Drogo will not return until her womb quickens again. So is that what's happening here? We're going to guess not, but maybe the return of Drogo equals the return of Drogon to her. Could be. Then again, there's this idea that she dreams of Viserys before suffering a miscarriage or a stillbirth, so what's the significance of that? And what does it all mean going forward? Can Daenerys now have children? Or is she always able to get pregnant but just never able to carry to term? We don't know. Maybe she is still forever doomed to this fate. And of course there's still the question, was it a miscarriage at all or just another form of the illness? Perhaps Daenerys is right and it's just her period. I personally do lean towards the miscarriage theory. And if that is true, is this the symbol of her rebirth, of a new era? The last time she suffered such, she gained the dragon soon after. So does this herald another key moment for her, a new stage of life, and the diving back into the embrace of House Targaryen as she did on the funeral pyre? Will she regain the dragons because of this, or is it just something else entirely? There's many, many questions, but Danny leaves them behind because she needs her strength if she's going to survive. And to prove she has such strength, she says this, I am the blood of the dragon, she told the grass aloud. Once, the grass whispered back, until you change your dragons in the dark. Ah, so shift the themes of Game of Thrones all the way up to A Dance with Dragons now. The choice that she made right at the beginning of this book, the one that might have dictated all that came after, especially in terms of her personal soul. A wrong choice according to Quaife and some of Danny's own doubts, and perhaps the reason for all this, for this entire chapter. She's confronting that choice now, correcting the course, embracing the dragon, and getting back on track with what it's supposed to be. But before coming to that conclusion, Danny makes the argument she made back then of why she did it. Drogon had killed an innocent girl, and worse still, she can't even remember Hosea's name, so the guilt obviously floods in. She was already devastated to learn that she could never give the world little children. She couldn't cope with the idea that she might be taking some away as well. So she did it to save them, to stop being evil of a sort. But the grass accuses her of betrayal again, and maybe we wonder if this is the overall lesson, that it costs to be a dragon. Danny knows that. She already paid with the free souls infused in her dragons, but perhaps that's not enough. Maybe others need to suffer as well, and Danny must pay the price of knowing that she's bringing that to the world, and yet keep doing it anyway, for the good of all. And who knows how much the powers that be in this chapter have an eye on the endgame and the others, that's completely up for debate. But in general, it's another entirely different, entirely heavier weight to bear, the very worst kind that you have to hurt innocents in order to save them. And I can tell you, I brought this up when talking with Aziz and the others on History of Westeros this past weekend. I called it a form of self-sacrifice a breaking of your own soul that you have to admit, you have to realise that you are going to have to do evil, bad things in order to do good, big, important, good things. 
And I think that's probably not going to be restricted to Daenerys. I think the Starks are all going to find that. I think John's going to find that specifically of, yes, you've got to make these tough decisions and you've got to be the bad guy. And some people will remember you only for that, only for the bad. They'll call you evil. They'll remember the pain you dealt them. But it's going to have to be done and you're going to have to be the one to bear that on your soul. So I really think that's going to be an important theme going forward, especially for Daenerys, probably more than anyone, because she does have the dragons. She's just got the capability to hurt more. So maybe this is going to start a marine before she goes west and this is going to have to be something she's going to take with her and i'm sure it's something we're going to debate the viability of or how true that is but i think that is the clear message going forward that daenerys must learn that is how it needs to be and then getting over that you can't be as good as you want to be and how difficult that is to accept on on, on your soul and in your heart but as i say i mentioned that on history of westeros so for some expanded thoughts you can always go and check that out danny walks on in a worse state than ever still blistered still ill still bleeding she even adds that she can't remember having such a heavy flow before, just to add on to that miscarriage theory. All signs are pointing towards death, unfortunately, especially if it is the water doing this to her. But somehow, somehow she makes herself walk again, despite the weakness and the hunger and the hot sun. It's honestly incredible that she even gets up, let alone does actually manage to walk. It's an amazing feat of strength. But she has her goals, the stream and Dario. Just focus on that and nothing else. It has elements of Cersei's recent walk, doesn't it? And so on she goes. It is impressive, but the hunger, the heat, the situation all take their toll and Daenerys' mind begins wandering. In a moment, she'll almost be straight up hallucinating, but before that, we get her admittance, finally, that Marine is not her home. That's what we've been waiting for. It's a strange, backwards place that she will never fit into. She tried to do her best there, and we hope that will all prove to be worthwhile someday, but it is not home. She says this, Marine would always be the harpy city, and Daenerys could not be a harpy. So we just love to see her actually admit that after this long, long journey of a book where we've been wanting her to realise it should be a pit stop and nothing more. And we're hoping this is a really big sign that she'll take this realisation forward into winds and actually be willing to act on it, do what she can and then leave this place behind. So on that alone, we can see how big this chapter is for huge consequences going forwards. But now for the hallucinations, as Daenerys confronts another past demon, though this time while she's walking. And I will just say here, I've heard other people suggest that this is a sign of Daenerys losing her mind here, and actually going mad and having the Targaryen madness. I, I'm really surprised to see that take. I've never taken it that way. I've just seen the physical effects of, again, the hunger, the heat, the weakness. This would happen to anyone. I really don't think it's anything to do with her being a Targaryen. But anyway, more to the point. The grass takes on the voice of one Jorah Mormon, saying that he told her so, that she would never have wound up in this situation if she'd listened to him. So again, there's the guilt factor. Unfair guilt, I would call it, much as we might agree with Jorah that her war is in Westeros, yes, that's true. Thankfully, Daenerys does know that this is just a waking dream. That's not really happening. She's not that far gone. But the memory of Jorah Mormon and the sense of him being so close sends her down an emotional path anyway. She admits that she wants him there. She wants that comfort he once provided before she found out about his betrayal. She wants that sense of protection that he gave when she needed it most. Much as we might dislike the man and definitely don't like Daenerys being positive about him and what that could mean for the future, we know she could have never become who she is without him, unfortunately. So again, we are revisiting those old themes. We're tying back to Game of Thrones again, to the way that things used to be and what we can extract from that for the future. And then again, remembering all of that just makes his betrayal sting all the worse. That after a life of abuse and use by Viserys, she found someone apparently genuinely dedicated to her only to find out it was a lie. And we know how much has been affecting her ever since, of course. We can see it all over this book. 
So she now argues with the grass in the same way she did with her Viserys dream, which is to say that she's really arguing with herself. She defends why she sent him away, a decision we still support. She adds on that he wanted both her and home, and she can relate to both wants, but that doesn't excuse the advantage he took of her when he kissed her. Nothing excuses that. So we can see she's wrestling with these past decisions of her own. She's trying to place it on other people subconsciously, but we know what's really going on here. She's thinking about where she went wrong. She's thinking about what she can do right now. The grass does add that he gave her what's turned out to be good advice. He said, go west. She says she couldn't. She needed to house her freedmen somewhere or watch them die. She couldn't do that. She wanted to do good. She wanted growth and life, not death and destruction, which is what we love about, of course. But the grass or her soul or whatever outside influence it might be pushes the overall point and really the message gets as clear as you could ask for. You took Marine, he told her, yet still you lingered. To be a queen, she said. You are a queen, her bear said, in Westeros. Then just after that we have, I am only a young girl. No, the grass said, you are the blood of the dragon. Dragons plant no trees, remember that. Remember who you are, what you were made to be. Remember your words. Fire and blood, Daenerys told the swaying grass. We loved hearing Barry say it, we love hearing Danny say it even more. Fire and blood, the theme of the day really. Words spoken in three of the four final chapters prior to the epilogue. Sorry John, you didn't get it. I'm sure you all noted that anyway, it's very in keeping with the theme. But actually, let me point you to another phrase mentioned here. The blood of the dragon. Now we've had that twice already and I highlighted it twice to make this point. Because if you look back to Game of Thrones like we are doing with so many aspects of this chapter the blood of the dragon was a phrase used over and over and over again by both Viserys and Daenerys it really was their thing their motto before Daenerys got married anytime she was frightened anytime she needed to find strength when she ate the horse heart that was the phrase used over and over again blood of the dragon after the game of thrones much like Viserys it kind of went away it does pop up a little bit in the beginning of clash at least and a couple of times here and there both in storm and in dance but nothing like earlier on in game of thrones now we've had it three times in one chapter so this is just another sign of Daenerys really turning back to that true Targaryen self so I think that's something to watch for. And this is what we've really been talking about all the way through the chapter. Forget just the blood of the dragon, but everything that Grass Drawer is talking about here. The pointing back to who Daenerys really is. The embracing of that blood of the dragon. The evidence that when she turned away, it all went wrong. Whether this influence is truly internal or external, whether this will turn out to be the right decision or the wrong decision, the direction is clear. And yes, it is melancholy in a way to be told that she can plant no trees. Maybe this is actually Daenerys making herself become more cynical so she doesn't have to suffer as much pain. They're all possibilities. But we still have to hope this changing course is right for her and right for the story, even though there's just no way it'll come without pain. She wants to grow trees. She wants to grow things. She wants life, much like John does. As we said earlier, unfortunately, we're probably going to find that you're going to have to deal some death to earn that life. That's going to be your burden. That's going to be your duty. And everything about that is difficult. I'm not saying it's easy, Daenerys, don't worry. Especially in terms of her freedmen and all those legions that supported her and came out shouting Misa. Some of those won't get to go with her, won't be saved. And I mean, that's just going to be a really hard aspect to get our minds around come wins and afterwards as well. But more to the point really is that we can see how she's arriving at this change in direction and therefore future that again we do generally support. We want her to get her strength back, we want her to be her, we want her to go to Westeros. Again like Cersei perhaps there's a bit of a comparison of a queen reaching a new stage going on here. 
because much like the walk of shame, Danny also stumbles and falls. The ghostly voice of Jorah disappears back into the recesses of her mind labelled betrayals, and she sees all that's left behind is just swaying grass. Grass that sways despite there being no wind. And Danny has enough wits about her to know that the grass should not be moving. So we get an instant injection of drama here near the end of the chapter. What could this be? Has Danny not had enough problems already? She grabs a stone, ready to fight, quickly making us think that this is an enemy or a predator. This is a chapter of nature after all, so why not include a fight with some wild animal? She catches sight of where the grass is moving, and she watches. The world was green and empty. The world was green and silent. The world was yellow, dying. It's just amazing imagery, and again, I super want to know about the dying grass. But we don't have time for that right now. Daenerys is just about to move again when she hears the tinkling of bells, and our minds rush to the same conclusion as hers, Dothraki. But there we split, for Danny wonders if this is Khal Drogo returned to her. She even repeats the old prophecy, even though she says none of it has happened. Well, we're thinking it does look like some of it's happened, but we're probably not thinking it's Khal Drogo returned to her. We're more inclined to hope that it's her own blood riders, something Danny also agrees with, but there is always the other, much more dangerous option. The one that turns out to be true, as Danny spies a Dothraki scout that she does not know riding out of the grass. So now we have our true tension. Danny isn't wrong when she thinks of what will happen if he spies her. She literally could not be more vulnerable right now. Luckily, he has not seen her, and I do contend that this guy is a fairly rubbish scout if she just fell over, cried out, and has been whispering Dothraki names without him noticing. But perhaps that's because he's distracted. Danny followed his eyes, and there the shadow flew, with wings spread wide. So we don't need Viserys, we don't need Jorah, because here comes Drogon. Here comes her dragon, ready to save her once again. The Dothraki smartly gets the hell out of there, but we forget about him rather quickly as it all gets exciting. Because when Danny calls for Drogon, he comes. And when he comes, she climbs on top. And when she wills him, he obeys. To go forward, I must go back, she said. Her bare legs tightened around the dragon's neck. She kicked him, and Drogon threw himself into the sky. So now we have the wonder. Danny is flying again, and Drogon is obeying, even more excitingly, for now anyway. How he sensed that she needed help, or whether it was blind coincidence, we don't know. But we do know that Danny has embraced the message of the chapter. She is going to embrace the true sense of self she once possessed, and so far that seems to be working for her. Maybe that was the whole secret. Imagine the possibilities if this does turn out to be permanent. Embrace the wildness, become the beast. Yes, it was all incredibly exciting. To keep with all things here being based in nature, Drogon now begins to hunt and Danny joins him. They pass the rider, they pass over other Dothraki who are apparently collecting horses themselves, and they move on to their own vast herd of wild horses. Drogon selects one and eventually brings it down. So, well, that's not too cool to read, poor horsey, but it is in keeping with the recent message. This is just what dragons do. You can't have all their power without the danger, without the downside. But even more important is that when they land, Daenerys is almost running to this horse and eating its flesh with her bare hands, just like she did once so long ago with the Dothraki. She's eating alongside her dragon, as wild and feral as he. It's a true bonding experience, I think, between the two of them. It's almost a shame that she tries to shoehorn thoughts of Daru in there. This is a mother and child moment, Danny. Don't let him be involved. And so it is, we close the chapter with this. Danny rose, wiped her hands on a ragged undertunic, and went to stand beside her dragon. That was how Kaljako found her, when half a hundred mounted warriors emerged from the drifting smoke. That is it. That is our end of the chapter. So a big, big cliffhanger there, of course. Now, let me remind you, just in case, of who Kaljako is. He is now Karl, but once he was Kojako, he was part of Drogo's Kalasar, so we know him already. And you might remember that when Drogo became ill, when he fell, 
Jacko was the second to declare himself a Carl and go off with his own new Kalasar. That one had 20,000 riders at the time. He took Mago with him, and I'm sure you all remember that Mago was involved in the rape and murder of Eroea, or whoever you say that name. Yes, it's somehow come back to haunt me. Mago and Jacko and several other riders were all involved in that atrocity. And fairly importantly, when Daenerys actually found out about that, she promised that the two men would pay for their crimes. So of all the people to meet here out on the Dothraki Sea, this is obviously quite an important one. This is as big a tie as we can possibly get back to Game of Thrones after all the ones we've had in this chapter. The second actual character we have is a character from that book. So if you're looking for ties back, if you're looking for bow tying there, well, this is it. So how do we think that relationship is going to play out? What could happen here? Well, I'm not going to go into it too much, actually, because we did discuss this on the live stream at the weekend. And even before that, it's not really something I give a lot of thought to, to be honest with you. For this specific, like what happens immediately after this, there's essentially two options. Daenerys is probably going to go with them either as a leader or as a prisoner. Now, she could fight and fail and be taken, or she could fight and impress them. Whatever happens, we know it's one of those two, because we all figure she's going back to face Dothrak, she's probably going to face the Dothraki, and however it happens, whatever the actual details are, she's probably going to win the Dothraki as a whole, as an entire race perhaps, and then brings them all with her, and probably goes west of them, as we've been hinted at before. And let's face it, there's no bigger sign of really embracing your former self and what you were before, even if that is perhaps the wilder route, perhaps the harsher route, We've discussed that already. Now again, to look at this scene, you've really got to think, well, what are the Dothraki trying to do here? Why are they approaching this dragon? Because they've obviously just seen he's pretty dangerous. This could easily end in their death. So are they riding over to challenge him because they want to be the strongest on the Dothraki plains? Because Dothraki love a good fight? That's very possible. Or are they already going over to pay homage to recognise the strength in both Drogon and Daenerys? Because that is what they value. Strength. Riding. Well, there's no really bigger equivalent to that, is there, than what they've just seen a horse has just been taken down by drogon so it could well be that or it could be jacko has obviously recognized who this is so is he going to honor the old dosh clean laws is he going to try and take daenerys for himself it could be either one but again i think we all probably drift towards the idea of her going back to the dosh clean and either winning them now with a sense of strength or winning them later with a scene of strength I personally want to focus on the line, she went to stand beside her dragon. I think that's very, very intentional by George there. I think that's an intentional choice by Daenerys. That's our symbol that we should take. This is her decision. After all the discussion we've just had in this chapter, this is her saying no. When you get right down to it, whether we're talking about civilization or past me's or whatever, I am now one with my dragon. And I'm really hoping, like I say, that this is her unlocking Drogon slightly. As we said earlier, it's never going to be that simple. This is a growing relationship. But her embracing of the Targaryenness, I'm hoping, just kicks her along a few steps. And that he at least doesn't abandon her now or anything like that. And maybe they do earn the Dothraki straight away. Maybe they are riding back to face Dothrak together, even though I'm sure they'll be strange to a relationship either way. And Daenerys will need to be persuaded of that. But maybe she does see the point in it. It's very, very exciting to think about and dream about. But I tend to think more about her returning to Marine. That's where my mind goes. And we kind of discussed that already in Barristan. So I won't go back over all those ideas for you. Instead, we can just start saying goodbye to Daenerys, to our final member of the Triforce here, to a major, major character of the book, of course, of the series, and someone we genuinely love. I'm sure I've made it pretty clear throughout this project, but I adore Daenerys. I really love her story. I love her as a person. And this book, let's admit it, has been tough to read in terms of her arc. Not tough in terms of them being a bad chapters or being a bad plot but just because it weighs on her so much it's been tough to watch 
All these things weigh down on Daenerys, each and every chapter. We've seen it every time, we've discussed it lots, especially in comparison to the grand conquest that was Storm, where she had so much seeming success. She really did get to feel good about herself. There's moments of victory in this book, but they are too few and far between, to be honest, especially when compared with what's happening and that terrible choice with the dragons and everything else. So for this chapter to give her some sense of self again, of direction again, I am all for it. I love that. I Yeah, I admit I love her turning back to her Targaryen self, her being what she's supposed to be and what will make her happy. Now we have to obviously put great big asterisks around that word happy because do we ever think Daenerys gets her happy place or gets her home or anything? I would guess probably not, no. I would guess that her role is to be the harsh person that comes through with these dragons and causes a lot of pain and misery and probably isn't remembered all that fondly. We've already seen the type of slander she's going to get already, wait until she gets to Westeros and might have to do much worse things, but she will probably ultimately be why humanity survives, along with whatever John brings. That's just my personal guess, of course, I'm sure you've got yours, and there's a million possibilities of how that actually works out, but I think that's probably going to be her ending if i'm brutally honest i hope i'm wrong i hope there is some happiness somewhere i'm sure there will be some levels of happiness for, along the way but as for its ending i don't know what i really hope is that she even if happiness that's, i mean that's too broad a term really for these types of books isn't it but i hope she can see why she's done what she's done i hope she can appreciate what she's already done at this point in the freeing of slaves and changing the structure i hope there's more of that on the way and however it ends up and whatever the result is I just hope she can find the value in herself that we all find in her because she is an amazing, amazing person. And the mere fact she's kept up these ideals of not wanting death and how sick she was of those pit games and how here she thinks about doing right by her freedmen still. Her keeping all those goals and desires after a book like this, after being trod on so much, is attests more than anything just how purely wonderful she is. So, so many people would have been through half of what she does in this book and just thrown in the towel or just thought okay well I'm going to be a complete dick as well if everyone else is but she doesn't she has her moments she kind of bows out a little bit halfway with Dario we can't blame her can we but she's still a really good person who wants to bring good to the world how can we knock her for that given what this world is generally made up of overall I do believe she will bring good overall I do believe she's going to have a massive massive effect I don't know how much everyone recognizes it but I'm sure that some will and we're just incredibly excited for that isn't aren't we she is the major major building block of the series she almost represents half the series on her own that's how massive she is and we're of course expecting that to flourish even more in winds and dream we expect her to gain the Dothraki we expect her to leave marine behind in whatever fashion we expect something to go on with Atlantis but overall we're keeping our eyes on the west and so is she what happens when she gets there in another actual dance of the dragons with Aegon how she turns north and how she comes to eventually find John we assume who knows but we want to see that almost if not more than anything else in the story don't we it could not be more important to the plot and I adore her so we've got to really appreciate this 10 chapter arc I know it's one that George played around with a lot I think we would agree this is probably the biggest mountain for him to climb in the writing of dance maybe the five-year gap as well but I think this is probably bigger and why is that it's because she's so important it's because she encompasses so much we have a lot a lot to discuss throughout this whole arc as we've been doing that decision and weight of responsibility over wanting the dragons to do good but not letting them out because they do bad we had that right at the beginning with Isaiah. 
We've got everything with the harpies and Hizdar and Galaza and her kind of accepting that in the end and the whole marriage stuff. We had her trying to juggle duty versus desire with Daru. We had betrayal with Brown Ben Plum. We had the damn rabbit ears, all oh, those damn rabbit ears. And we have this chapter, the wilderness, the fire, the coming back together. Uh, yeah, exactly. I even forgot to mention Quaif in there early on. There's so much in this arc, but this chapter, this is the one we really want. Yes, it's not going to be all roses. No, it does not going to bring everything we want, but I just want the right thing for Daenerys. And I think this is probably it. She goes to stand by her dragon. I love that symbol. There's so much more we could say about Daenerys, but as I say, if you really want some really good thoughts about Daenerys and her place and what she realises in this chapter about um, about Marine and Nina made a fantastic point about you can't compromise with slavers because 1% of slavery is pretty much the same as 100% of slavery, so that just can't be done. And her kind of realising that and how that's going to affect the plot going forward, go and have a look because Daenerys obviously was a real focus of ours in that discussion. So the way this has played out through the book, how strong... This arc is the book, the biggest for her personally since the Game of Thrones. So there you go, we've got that connection again and we're very thankful because the more Daenerys we get, the better it is. And we've been saying all through about this really, really strong mirror that she has with Jon. This weight of duty, the weight of choices and trying to save people and not being allowed to and the barriers and restrictions and how frustrating it all is and how you have to pay but no one else seems to be paying and how they both ultimately give themselves entirely to the job and suffer for it. And now we figure they've both reached major points where that might not be true anymore. Maybe they do get something of themselves back, and we're very, very excited about that. We can't wait to see it, and we obviously can't wait for those two massive storylines, those two parts of the Triforce to join up. And there you go, there's already another part we haven't even mentioned of Daenerys with Tyrion, Daenerys dealing with Barristan now, da Daenerys dealing with all of Marine, and all these characters still to come in Westeros. Wow. We've got so much to wait for. We've got so much to see still. It's very, very exciting. And we here on Isle still have one more thing to look at, one more thing to listen to. It is the final chapter of the book. It is our epilogue because that is our main story done, which is weird to say, let me tell you. But we have one more remaining. It is our epilogue. It is Kevin Lannister. Let us go, everyone, hand in hand, just like we were in the last chapter of last week, to our final chapter of the episode of the book of Scraps and Scrolls. <laughs> Thanks for being here with me, chums. Let's do it. Well, 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 here we are. Like I say, the final chapter. And it is so very tempting to give in and start talking about this monumental moment in terms of us and this podcast and Valoridus and just how weird it all is. But we will maintain focus. We'll get on with the scrapping and scrolling while we still can. There's a lot we can say after about this book in general, about how it looks on the other side, about how far we've come, but this last chapter has got to come first, hasn't it? Still, I will admit here before we begin, even in the writing notes for this chapter, normally I'm sitting down on page one, I'm thinking, okay, I've got to spend this long on this one, that'll take up this many hours, and then which chapter is up next? And the obvious, rather odd answer this time around is that there ain't one next. It's just so very odd to think about that, isn't it? So if that's true, then we'd best give this chapter our due attention, hadn't we? We'd best cover everything we can after a book, a very long book, that has trudged through the snow in the north and the battle for life from Jon Snow. It's built up the Grand War for Winterfell. It's stretched across an entire continent in the journey of Tyrion Lannister and has wove a complex tale of rule and freedom over a marine for Daenerys Targaryen, as well as perhaps 50 smaller tales in Bravos, aboard the Shy Maid, in an old smuggler learning a secret, in a frozen cave beyond the wall learning something far more important, even down to the sands of dawn we've been. And after all that, we come to this final chapter in King's Landing of all places, that hub of ours from the first four books. We come here to get one final punctuation mark from George, 
one more chance to blow our minds, and let me tell you, the guy delivers. Let's be fair here, the pressure is on for Kevin Lannister and his epilogue. We've had a whole bunch happen at the end of this book, five hours worth, don't forget, on top of this one. And we're saying that even with the fact that the really big expected things haven't even happened yet in the battle still to come, which is another mind blower. All the arc endings in this book are superb. Even think back to Davos 4 and the speech of Wyman Mandley, all the way up to Fionn's escape from Winterfell, or the landing of John Connington and the Golden Company. Then, add on to that, all we've had to discuss lately. This week, last week, the two weeks prior to that. It's the largest cluster of cliffhangers you'll ever see in Marine alone, whether that be battle or dragons or whatnot. And then you have not only Daenerys and what we've just spoken about, but the death of Jon Snow himself. All of those are very, very recent. And then you've got to come in here, Kevin, with your one single chapter and somehow match all that? Hmm, <laughs> not bloody likely. And yet, and yet, well, George has done it again, hasn't he? He's going to give us a better send-off than we could have possibly imagined. It's truly, it is something, let me tell you. We didn't think that the taking of cities and the death by dragons and finding Daenerys again and Jon Snow's death could ever be matched, but, well, just you wait until the end of this chapter. So that's a comparison against chapters of late, but let's consider the other rival that Kevin Lannister faces, Merritt Frey, remember him? The only other epilogue in the series back in Storm of Swords. That was another chapter with an incredible, incredible final moment. A final reveal that really changed everything. It's two books later and we've barely got an inkling of just how much effect it'll have. As well as the largest emotional hits that George could really provide at all. Of course, I referred to the reveal of Lady Stoneheart. That whole chapter was amazing, especially that particular moment. It's big for me, you know that. So that's a tough act to follow, no matter how long ago it seems. But that chapter, you might remember, also came off a flurry of an ending with huge, huge moments at the end of Storm. Sansa's reveal-laden clothes at the Eyrie might have been enough on its own, but combine that with Jon becoming Lord Commander and reuniting with Ghost, and Tyrion's incredible end and escape from this very city that we find ourselves in now, well, Merritt had a tough job too, and he delivered. So, challenge extended to Kevin there. So why is it that George chooses to only put out epilogues at the end of exciting, busy closes? There's absolutely nothing wrong with the endings of, say, Clash or Feast, but they don't hit the same mark as Storm or Dance for pure excitement, do they? Let's look at Feast specifically. It has an incredibly strong three-chapter run in Brienne, Cersei and Jaime. They're all very exciting, they're all very good. And then in comes Sam making his way to Old Town, and don't get me wrong, it's a great chapter. Lots of intrigue, it's very question-producing, it still has a big surprise at the end, but I don't really think it compares to the end of Storm and Dance, so why is there no epilogue there, you might ask? A question for the ages, but for now, let's get back to Merit. So our two epilogue characters, they're very similar in circumstances and where they're coming from in terms of the endings of the book, but they're very, very different chapters in themselves. Merritt was all about looking back, back to the dominating event of that book, or series perhaps you could argue, and providing not only further context of what happened, but then the major moment of fallout in discovering Lady Stoneheart lived. It was huge, it was massive, it was a can't-be-talked-about-enough moment, as well as all the emotion involved as well. But the overall scope of the character was fairly singular, because it was Merritt Frey we had as a POV. He only had access to limited information, and he probably cared about even less, so we can only hear about so much from him. The chapter we have today is the complete reverse. We'd be hard-pressed to think of a chapter which would simply call for so much information purely by its nature, because we will be back in the mind of a Hand of the King once more, and we'll at least start with a meeting of the Small Council. So right from the premise alone, we have to talk about things that are happening to the Seven Kingdoms, and wouldn't you know it, quite a lot is happening. So we have to touch on a lot of different plot points in this chapter. 
It's almost like a gift from George after this long, difficult book just spoiling us with everything at once. And yet I also think it's a sign or a promise as well. It's a melding of two separated books in Feast and Dance, both by geography and time in some places, and it represents that the two will be joined again once more in Winds, because we're going to cover everything in this chapter equally. Now it's true, we can't touch on every storyline, and if we total it out, the southerly, feast-based stuff probably comes out on top because they are in the south, but you get the point. We've already had some of them sprinkled in this book anyway, but now we're here to join together and remind us all of the many, many things to get excited about like we need reminding. Besides, no one ever said that all the information we get had to be correct, so there's lots for Kevin to do. And yes, let's talk about our choice of epilogue character, shall we? Kevin Lannister, fresh off his latest atrocity, stepping out of Tywin's shadow to reveal himself as the roach he is. Now he gets his chance to tell his side of the story as if that's something we want to hear. We've discussed him lots in both of Cersei's chapters, and for good reason, because he's, well, like we said at the time, a dick. He's horrible. We hate him but we can cover it even further now. So there's another similarity of merit there, especially if you're a first-time reader and haven't quite clicked just how bad a person Kevin actually is, which is perfectly understandable, by the way. I think that's a common occurrence between most first-time readers, not clicking on that particular idea on the first time round. On the surface, they both just look like members of evil families who have done evil things, the phrase, and Lannisters. And even though we know they've been involved in said things, We've probably also said things like, okay, but at least they're not such and such. There's much worse phrase or Lannisters, that type of thinking. Luckily, we know better now, but you can see the general setup, can't you? And we know from the off that Kevin is going to be more informed, more influential, and generally just more interesting than Merritt in his tales of Wendell the White Fawn, but the comparison is there. Kevin also sticks to some of the well-established patterns that we've spoken about loads of times in the past if we want to include the prologue characters. Odd-numbered books for characters we already know, in Chet and Merritt and Varamir, we'd already met all of them before their chapters. And he's on the evil train as well, in comparison to the even-numbered books, where we had Crescent and Pate, who were both unknowns at the time, and generally just kind of bare people. Kevin might not be so obvious in his evil, again for first-timers, but it is there. In terms of position and power, well, Merritt was also highborn, but other than that, only Crescent really gets close to him in terms of influence, and that was a soon-to-be-replaced maester for a denied king in Dragonstone, so we've got something pretty new for us, really. Still, that chapter, I'm talking about Maester Crescent now, is the only one that comes close to matching what we have today for knowledge of local or national events or the strong theme of politics. Most of the other prologues slash epilogues are small, contained chapters focusing on a personal story. Because of their positions, the characters are normally guessing at larger events or doing their best to get out of them. Kevin does have a personal story here, but the plot mainly revolves around his duties as a hand. It's a public story that involves the whole realm. So what I'm saying here really is that we've never had a prologue slash epilogue so involved with everything. Tick them off as you go through, take a look at your maps. The prologue epilogues take place above the wall, then on Dragonstone, then above the wall again, down in Old Town, and then above the wall again. So they're all out on the perimeter of the map. The only exception is Merritt, which took place on a lonely hill topped by a ruin and is witnessed only by a group of secretive outlaws that no one can ever find. This one is in the nation's capital. It's there in the thick of it, in front of everybody. So it's another treat from George for us. In keeping with that, George is clearly giving us the most important prologue slash epilogue character by a country mile. We touched quickly on that a minute ago. Even the other ones we had heard of were quick name glimpses that could have easily just been forgotten, especially like a Chet, for example. Now we have a truly important character whom we all know, who's touched on multiple plots, who's been involved since the very beginning, and who has actually been gaining in importance in recent events. And he's a member of a great house. Obviously, that has not occurred in a prologue or epilogue yet. No one is coming close to that. So it's another treat from George. And we could try comparing it right back to the prologue of this book if we wanted, as we did with Feast, but the two are so different that it doesn't really help us out, from character to plot to theme. 
So once we actually turn the page, we're excited first to find out we've even got an epilogue, we're then surely over the moon to discover it's someone so prominent and important both in-world and narratively. That has to mean this is going to be great, that we're going to be told some super important stuff, right? Well, yes it does. And in relation to Kevin being a surprise for how important he is, one of our first thoughts must be, whoa, is George going to change the tradition of killing off prologue epilogue POVs at the end? To which we must surely say, no way. And again, there's absolutely no problem with, as an early reader, thinking, oh, that's a shame, I didn't mind him as much as the other Lannisters. A grand majority of readers probably would have agreed with you, and that's part of the beauty of George and the reread capabilities of this series. Like I said, we know better now, and we'll get some actual evidence of such in this very chapter, even though we've already had plenty in this book. Moving past that, we're probably going to be pretty excited about this guy as a POV. Even if we forget recent events, we might learn more about Tywin, we might get to see the three children from another angle, we might air out more family cobwebs, I'm sure there's some secrets that we haven't found out yet. And then thanks to his position alone, we'll see the opposition to Cersei's rule, we'll find out what the city is actually like after her reign, we'll obviously follow up on that Cersei plot as well, and get a look behind the scenes of her walk of shame. But we also might hear about Marjorie and the Tyrells, or the Faith, and that's just about this city, let alone news about the Golden Company and the Stormlands, or maybe a Euron update, or really it could be anything, and we're going to hit on some of those, and some others will be pushed to the side. If we were guessing beforehand on how he might eventually meet his end at the close of this chapter, maybe some genuinely would have guessed Varys, but I'm not sure how much they'd really believe it. Cersei and Gregor though, well that makes a lot more sense. As for big cliffhangers that we might be expecting, we might close with news of Storm's End being taken, or Old Town failing, well really it could be anything considering how much George likes to play at the timeline, couldn't it? Let's not delay too much further, let's get into the actual chapter because there's still lots to discuss. We could still talk about the importance of small councils and how much they were a really big player at the beginning of the book and then kind of bowed out a little bit and now they're back again, I think that's important. How it just directs our attention back to central Westeros a little bit more, there's lots of stuff but really I think we're just all excited to get to this chapter, it's got so many possibilities. So let's dive in, we know it's going to be an absolute corker, let's find out how. Well, of all the grand things we could cover in this chapter, we probably didn't expect it to start with Red Ronnet Bloody Connington. Ah, what a disappointment. We thought we were shot of this guy now, thanks to Jamie, but now he's turning up here to ruin our excitement for what this chapter can actually bring. Still, we can make assumptions straight away on what he's doing here. He mentions Griffin's Roost himself, so we guess that the beginning of this chapter will be in reaction to the taking of that castle. We know what a success that was, and how John Connington is intending to play them, in terms of his intentions, so it's pretty exciting to see how that's going to work, and how these lot will be duped. Though of course there is a difference right here from the start. Though it has not been pointed out yet, we've got to remember this is a very different council to the one we last saw. The sycophants and useless people of Cersei have gone now, some of them have anyway, and what we have instead is maybe the strongest small council we've ever seen on paper, depending how much personal indulgence plays in. These lot might actually be competent, at least in comparison to previous versions, so we really want to see how they react to this news, if John Con's plans will work, and if that assumption about this bunch is actually true. Can they really get stuff done? Will they put Westeros to rights? Or is it too little too late, and will they fall apart due to their own interests as normal? It's interesting, it's very interesting, it hooks us in. Back to Red Ronnet though, you'd assume he's here to challenge the taking of his castle, or make a complaint about it, but instead it seems he's actually being accused of being involved. So that's cool, we like that idea, because he sucks and he deserves the extra stress. Although to be honest, even though we've just said a whole bunch about that first line, it's the second one that I find far more interesting. Snowmelt dripping off of Ronnet's cloak. Yes, there is snow in King's Landing. Proper snow. Wow, that's mind-blowing. That's more relevant to us as a marker of a new era than even yellow grass. It's a true sign of us heading towards a conclusion. It reminds us of Jamie and his feast ending in the Riverlands, and it likely fights with our normal mental image of the city. It's the sign of a new era, like I say. 
we are supposed to be moving into the final act now, where the far off problems of the north are finally going to touch our main southern setting. The big problems will soon be affecting everyone as we head towards the ultimate point of the story. So it's very exciting again, it's very tone setting for this being a marker of importance. That is what this chapter is for, to really herald that in. But besides that, we learn that Ronner is indeed here to prove himself an enemy of John Connington, not an ally, and he's someone who wants his castle back. And to prove that, he's willing to ride against his uncle and against this false dragon too. Aha, so that's a very important distinction we need to take note of. Whether via John Con or by their own intelligence, or possibly Aegon and John Con disagreeing on the final points, it is known that Aegon is supposed to be a Targaryen. And we don't need to read on to guess that most probably pass that off as a mere tale. He is calling him false, after all, because who would believe that two Targaryen kids have shown up after all this time, or if they even know the details about baby Aegon, that he was apparently switched out at birth. That's a pretty tall tale to get on board with, and some of it is likely just not letting themselves believe that the threat could actually be that real. They've just had a devastating civil war that's not entirely finished, they have ironborn raiders and an unruly religious division. The last thing they want added to the pot is an ancient royal line coming back to claim what was taken from them. It's much easier just to believe it's some liar. Certainly, here at the beginning, Kevin doesn't seem that bothered. He's distracted more by the inner politics of the room and therefore the city. He's in charge of fine-tuning it all now, keeping it in balance so one side doesn't outweigh the other. He's trying to keep the city from chaos. He's aware of how quickly things could turn, just to give us some tension here early on. Here's our first quote. Lannister spearmen and crimson cloaks and lion-crested half-elms stood along the west wall of the throne room. Tyrell guards in green cloaks faced them from the opposite wall. The chill in the throne room was palpable. Though neither Queen Cersei nor Queen Marjorie was amongst them, their presence could be felt poisoning the air, like ghosts at a feast. So that tension is physical at the beginning. It's been painted out by George to make it clear, to make sure no one in this room is forgetting, and that the cloud of these two warring queens hovers over everything. King's Landing is in a state of purgatory in a way. Nothing can truly be achieved until these trials are done with and everyone knows where they stand. Until then, things will never be settled, which can make putting the world to rights all the more difficult. And Kevin feels the weight of rule as well. This meeting is taking place in the throne room, which means for the first time in this book which is another first for the series that we hadn't considered, we see the Iron Throne. Just how weird is that? We haven't even thought about that, have we? Throughout the first four books, that physical throne, that physical piece of metal has always been there. We've been around it so much. And yet in this huge, gigantic book, we haven't seen it once, even though we've referenced it plenty of times. It's just weird to think of, isn't it? But yet here we are. And Kevin describes it as a great black beast hidden in shadow, which makes me gleefully think of Drogon, but also as an itch at his back. Yes, the weight of power and responsibility is weighing upon him. Well, you should try being John or Danny, Kevin. You've got it well easy. He knows how much rests on him, how much sway he holds over this council, and therefore the city, and therefore the realm. And it's a new feeling for him. Usually, he just had to watch that weight land on his brother Tywin, or someone else he knows. And maybe sometimes he would help out, making it a bit lighter. But this level of control, being this deep in the spotlight, is something else entirely. He also mentions that Tommen, forever the grand prize these two sides use as the ball in their eternal rugby game, is currently back with his mother. That's good, or it is as a first four anyway. And then we remember his mother is Cersei, who was abusing her son not that long ago, and we figure, eh, maybe not so good. But it's probably keeping him happy, and we know that's all Cersei wants right now, so at least we know she did have her promise delivered after doing the walk. Speaking of, Kevin just lays the hint in there that she's still to be trialled and therefore could still be killed, setting another level of tension for us. Although note, he doesn't show too much regret over that possibility of her dying. But back to the actual meeting. 
Mace Tyrell is talking, as he likes to do, and we're reminded that Cersei's worst nightmare has been enacted. Mace Tyrell is Hand now. Yeah, what about that? Oh yes, good point. I actually think I said in the introduction that Kevin was Hand, but no, 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 he's the Regent. Even though, I mean, he's basically filling the job in. Yes, we were told about Mace's appointment back in Cersei 1, but hearing about it and seeing it up front are two different things. Major moves have been made. The very makeup of the government, and therefore all future directions, has been twisted. We know from what Kevin said previously and what we saw in Feast that this was both inevitable and likely what's needed. Whatever the ambitions of the Tyrells might be, whatever this might mean for House Lannister, this coalition is needed to help the country run smoothly, given how many of the cards House Tyrell now holds. What remains to be seen is whether they can actually prove the point behind this promise that we've had for so long. Yes, we have had all this talk of Tyrells being superior politicians and planting themselves in the soil to grow through everyone else. And yet what it actually looks like is, well, we could make a simplistic answer that what they actually did is just take control when they had more swords than everyone else. We'll see that later when we talk of armies. It's not so simple as that, but it is worthy of thinking about. And the first note we have of Mace's Turner's hand is not great. He's brought in his own oaken throne, carved in the shape of a giant hand. Kevin calls it an absurd vanity we called it looking like an absolute moron. Yes, what a fool. It seems our hopes will mainly ride on the rest of the family instead. I think we're used to that. It also tells you that Mace was fully expecting to be made hand, and that once he was, he intended to show the position off. This throne magically appeared the same day he was promoted after all. His ambition has been long and not well hidden, we know that. And we can also ask how much of a hand Mace actually is, and how much this was just an appeasing gift, and therefore Kevin and others pull the strings more than usual. Mace will blatantly believe he's 100% in charge, we'll see if that holds up. It really looks like already, at the beginning of the chapter, Kevin's actually the one more in the driver's seat. But therein lies the game, doesn't it? For now, Mace is telling Ronit to shut up, so we like that. But more importantly, he hints that the ultimate move against this problem will be to ride out and challenge both John Connington and Aegon directly. So we get excitement for that straight away, either for the promise of yet another battle, or that this might be them falling right into John Con's plot. And to be fair, even if this turns out to be the majority focus for this epilogue, then that absolutely makes sense. We spoke a whole bunch about how important that invasion actually is, how much is going to obliterate the status quo in Westeros and change everything. So maybe we'll get the first evidence of that really happening right here. It will turn out we won't get quite that far in this chapter, half because of their own foolishness, but the expectation, excitement is always there for us readers. We know what's coming for this new council and its new hand, sooner or later. Hmm. It's intriguing to think about. And again, given the title of the book, given the importance of that invasion, it makes sense that it would be the final focus for the entire book and for the promise of what's to come in wins. We think it is going to be a pretty big storyline, I think we all agree. Red Ronnet's moment is done. He's to be kept an essential prisoner thanks to his surname, the one he apparently shares with the new invader. And now we discover that Pycelle is also at this meeting, as he hits the mark, remembering that John Connington once stood in this very same spot before his failure out on the field. Kevin foolishly dismisses that as the idle warblings of an old man, when we in fact know that Pycelle is again being underappreciated and is right on the money about this threat that John Con could represent. Still, it's good to get these two linked up considering what's coming for them at the end of the chapter. The next council member we become aware of is Randall Tarley, as we likely guessed would be the case. My my, what a collection of dickheads we have right here at the beginning. Yes, this chump is unfortunately back with us. We've been lucky that it's been so long since we last had to put up with him and his atrocious views. That was all the way back to Brienne who suffered his cruel words. Now he's back here, likely very much in House Tyrell's good books, having secured Marjorie and gotten her out of the Sept. Plus, he still has that big old army. So he's of much importance right now for the plot. 
even if we're annoyed that he has to get involved again because he is just the worst. And let's not forget, he's now ever so slightly closer to Sam than he was in Feast. So we really don't want Sam to have to face his father again, no way. And we don't want to see Randall spread more of his general misogyny and bad views around the capital either, that's not good news. We'll talk more of him as we go, no doubt. We definitely think he's going to be an important character in Winds, especially as a friend in the Reach perhaps, but for now he's talking about the men who came with Red Ronnet, the previous bunch of Gregors, who are apparently just as scummy as they were before. And yes, oh dear, I just used the same phrasing as Randall Tarley, which is never something you want to realise about yourself. He's already been punishing them for various crimes, which yes, is good, they probably deserve it, but let's also not forget this guy just really likes punishing people and considers it the solution to every problem. But he does suggest sending them to the wall, just to tie these grand plots together a little bit more. We know John needs more men, or did before he maybe died, so that might be good, but we really don't want him to have to put up with these type of people. Although the idea of John Connington up at the wall, which is also suggested, is pretty intriguing. Mace is being as pompous as you'd expect. He's loving this new position. He will not suffer such men than the city watch. That's what he says, and it sounds dangerously similar to Janos Slint. More importantly, we see evidence that the Tyrells have made further steps to take control by putting their own men in the city watch, but not allowing the Westerlands to do the same. Yes, it seems they like this new power and they want to secure it. Kevin thinks this. The more I give him, the more he wants. Kevin Lannister was beginning to understand why Cersei had grown so resentful of the Tyrells. So the first part of that sentence reminds us of John and his dealings with Stannis. That is what comes from dealing with powerful men who really like power, but it's the second part that probably interests us more. We've already mentioned this move was necessary and the best possibility to help the realm, but that doesn't definitely mean it will help the realm. Maybe they'll just get their foot in the door and grab whatever they can, I'm talking about, of course about the Tyrells. Certainly, Kevin seems to be thinking that, so much so he even sees where Cersei was coming from, even if her reactions were still ridiculous. But isn't this just more damning for Kevin? He claimed she was so bad and dangerous and unworthy they recently decided she literally had to be destroyed in terms of her soul, completely broken apart to say nothing of the physical danger he put her in. He did all that, only to now go, oh, I can see where she was going from though. That's how much the walk of shame was about his own personal hatred. I think that's clear. Kevin now thinks on another important point that surely stays in the back of his mind every minute of the day. These guys have two armies, and he has none. So if they ever really want to change their mind or force their way, they can. He has a very dodgy line to walk where he can't let them just roll over him, but he also can't resist everything, so picking battles is super important right now. Again, it's almost the exact situation that John found himself in with Stannis. It's not ideal, but it's better than the situation Cersei had, so Kevin just has to navigate the waters as best he can. He does so now, making the suggestion that this bunch that came with Ronit might still be of use in the upcoming fights, because they are low on men in general. That's true, but it might also be a good idea for him personally to get some people in who are loyal to Westerners and not Reachmen, but he has to do it in a way that they don't suspect that's what he's thinking, or at least they can't bring it up outright. Yes, again, this is the game. So Kevin says they might need them against the Golden Company, because those guys don't mess around. So that's another thing that they're aware of, and are part of this enemy, that they now know thanks to Kyburn. And that's when Randall gets involved and tries to downplay the Golden Company. So why is that? Is it just because he's super confident slash arrogant and thinks that he can defeat them? Or is it something else? Well, like I hinted at earlier, there's a common theory that Randall Tarly could be the friend in the Reach mentioned in John Con's earlier chapters, that he could actually be on their side and that he actually wants to undo Mace Tyrell and climb the social ladder himself. We'll discuss that a little bit more at the end, but I bring it up now just to make you aware so you can look at what he says through this chapter because I think there is quite a lot of evidence for this discussion, so just keep your eye on that as we go. In the meantime, Kevin wants a closer look at this issue down in the Stormers because it's obviously pretty damn critical to their future. So Pycelle busts out some beautiful sounding maps of the Stormlands and how the invasion has worked so far. Most of it we've already heard about, Estamont, the Stepstones, but apparently Tarth has now been taken as well. We hadn't heard about that one. And it stands out to us a bit more because remember the Estamonts had captives taken for further use. 
So perhaps the same has happened to Selwyn Tarth, and maybe that'll finally bring him into the plot. Or maybe we'll get to see Brienne's reaction to the news. The council don't pay attention to Tarth, of course. The bigger news is that Jonkon is moving on Storm's End. Okay, that's good for us. It sounds like we haven't missed out on the big battle just yet, so we've got something else to wait for in wins. And again, it's come up already. Just see, Randall Tarly just slides into the conversation. He just says, well, if it is John Connington, we don't know. So maybe, again, maybe not, but maybe that's just him trying to make them underestimate what's going on or not think about it so much that he's buying more time for John Con and his pals to get more of a grip. Now, unsurprisingly, Mace Tyrell is convinced that they will not take Storm's End. And some of that is just natural arrogance of disparaging the enemy, but some of it is rooted in the fact that he's failed to do so twice now. So clearly it just can't be done if Mace can't do it. To be fair, that is semi-figurable because he's at least right that no one else has ever done it either. But his conclusion that they can just let the Golden Company take it if they really want, and that it doesn't matter, is nothing short of moronic. That he can't see the political value in this chapter, as John Con told us about in his last chapter. That he can't see how it would validate Aegon and the Gold Company, how it weakens his side, and incites thoughts of rebellion from everyone else as well, is unforgivable for someone in his position. It is rank arrogance that he and his simply can't be touched because they're a class above, apparently. It's stupidity. And just to add on to that feeling of arrogance, he ends with this. I shall recapture it after my daughter's innocence is proved. I shall recapture it after my daughter's innocence is proven, Kevin thinks. How can you recapture it when you've never captured it to begin with? Yeah, that's a good point. And it's all fun Kevin getting his jab in, but now Mace is also pulling rank, not letting Kevin get his opinion in, and is instead kicking off a hissy fit about Marjorie and what's going on with the faith. It's clear he hates even the mere suggestion of what they're claiming, no matter what he thinks the actual truth is, and that he's been told the best way to get out of it is to play along. But he's still going to get too stressed and annoyed at points and throw his toys out of the pram as he does here. He sounds like a whiny teenager just repeating why all the time. Why can't they be given the same exceptionalism as they've enjoyed their whole lives? They're Tyrells and they're royal now as well. They aren't subject to the problems of the rest of humanity. Just cut the corner, use Tommen, finish it. So we confirm Kevin definitely remains the brains of this operation, not Mace Tyrell, as he's the one explaining to Mace and Randall why they have to go along with what the faith wants, why they can't be bold of ego, etc. right now. They have to deal with reality, which is that they've got enemies everywhere, including, thanks to Cersei, an armed religious force in the city. Even with two Tyrell armies, they can't start a fight on their own doorstep in the city, one made up or sheltered by the small folk, or would be the end of all of them. So Mace now takes a more you know, chill-out man approach, claiming that all problems are going to be solved by Pax the Redwine, Garland Tyrell, the Snows, and the Boltons. So the only problem in the world that they should pay attention to is the one that just so happens to personally matter the most to Mace. And as he casts back to John Connington, Randall Tarly again suggests if it is even him. So just, just be aware of that, because George really is hammering into us. The Tarly doth protest too much, methinks. Mace's arrogance and aloofness continue when he does speak of John Connington, but Kevin doubts that as well, even if he keeps quiet. He actually remembers John Connington. It's another plus in the choice to make Kevin an epilogue character. Like Barristan, and to a lesser extent Jamie, we can have some access to the courts of old that we never actually got to see in the main series. He sees the danger in John Connington, a fighter in his youth and now. Older, harder, more seasoned, he thinks. More dangerous. And he thinks that in the midst of memories about his brother and the Battle of the Bells, but the overall point is that this is a threat that should not be dismissed. If it is him, then it's big news. And to get that across, he brings up the story of John Con having a supposed Targaryen with him. When Randall casts that one off as well, Kevin offers essentially no resistance and just lets it slide. It makes you question how much he's actually worth in this council. He might consider himself the great opposing weight to the Tyrells, but if he can never actually get a point across, then maybe not. Maybe he's just an empty figurehead intended to keep one side happy, like we think Mace is. 
More interesting is Kevin thinking back to Rainey's and Aegon's presentation before Robert, and his admitting that you couldn't actually quite tell it was Aegon. That doesn't mean it wasn't, but the possibility will take root if the rumour spreads, and Kevin has to admit that possibility is genuinely real. So people will run with that, and all could easily believe it true before long. Like I say, all they need is to believe, and the revolt this small council could quickly face all over the Seven Kingdoms could become very real very quickly. And Kevin, who apparently had nothing to do with this particular war crime, simply believed whatever Tywin said because, well, why wouldn't you? <laughs> Good question. That actually makes you wonder if Tywin ever knew there was a chance it wasn't Aegon and just kept silent for two decades in order to ensure no such story ever resurfaced and then gave breath to a rebellion. Very interesting. But instead of actually saying any of that out loud, Kevin deviates to a related subject, a second Targaryen and one whose blood no man can question, Daenerys Stormborn. Yes, after long last, and it being hinted at in the journey along the way, Restros is finally being made aware of Queen Daenerys Targaryen. It's official, she's known, she's in the game. Even if we know she's actually in the Dothraki Sea, the true idea of her is now reaching Restros officially, and that means she's involved in the game before she even heads here. So that great merging of the two sides of the series continues moving forward, continues moving together, or hopefully will after the Battle of the Fire. And of course, the ultimate irony is that this very same person was also the subject of the early small council meetings as well, back in Ned's day, so we really do have the bow tying going on there again. Mace wants to cast away this problem as well. All that matters to him is Marjorie right now. But even Pycelle is getting in on the act. The rumours have been heard all over. It seems to be official, and they know about the dragons. So we're definitely moving towards merging now. It gets very, very exciting. This is another marker of a change of era, change of act. After listening to all that, Kevin finally actually makes his point. Targaryens do still have supporters here. You're an idiot if you don't think that. And if these two supposed Targaryens, real or not, can join up together and make a joined attack, as he's guessing they will, that could make their force an unknown number, plus with dragons. So they can't let this current lot get a toehold and then wait for Daenerys. They should deal with them now before the problem can spread. Kevin obviously sees what we've thought about how this can destroy just kind of everything. Here's another quote. The girl is of the blood of Aegon the Conqueror, and I do not think she will be content to remain a marine forever. Well, we sure hope so, and it might fit in well with what we've just seen from Danny's last chapter, so that's good to hear. But Mace digs his heels in, not until after the trials. So the message is clear. He doesn't care anything about the general populace or even the requirements of the job. They are out for personal benefit, and that's it. I'm here to get what I want and abuse my power, not actually look after you. So Mace is really no different to Cersei, in a way. Pycelle wonders about being able to buy the Golden Company out. And we figured that wouldn't actually work this time, that for this one unique occasion, they've come with a higher purpose than gold. They've come for revenge and validation and the return of home. They've come to take something and take people down at the same time. And they're genuinely bought into Aegon's tale so they can, kind of, complete the mission set by their ancestors and the original point of this company. That's what you would like to think anyway, but you can never be too sure. They are still swords, and you can't ever speak for 100% of the men. If Harry Strickland, for example, were offered a payout to keep himself nice and safe and off those toes, we can imagine him taking it. But we also might think that he's very much in the minority. Besides, Harris Swift tells us they don't have the gold anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, we didn't even know this guy was here, he's been quiet as a mouse. And that's in keeping with his character. You'll remember back in Feast that Cersei chose him as Hand purely because he was weak and controllable, and even back then he was reverted to Lord Treasurer or Master of Coin or whatever they're calling them this week, so he wasn't even good at that. Parts of Cersei's reign have been allowed to stay on, but mainly because Kevin needs to counterbalance the Tyrell influence rather than endorse Harris as someone particularly competent. 
Plus, Harris is his father-in-law, and Kevin likely thinks he needs any ally he can get. And to be fair, yes, we were told about this as well back in Cersei 1, but Harris Swift is a pretty forgettable character, so we forgive ourselves there. So as Harris tells us, they are broke. The mismanagement of funds by Cersei and by Littlefinger before her have left a stain upon this government that they can no longer run from. Littlefinger got them into the debt, Cersei made the problem much, much worse by her dealings with the Iron Bank and Tycho Nestoris. So we can see, even after Kevin's terrible solution for Cersei, if you want to call it that, that they are still very much having to clear up after her mess. And we know that that problem is actually worth double now, because the Iron Bank is about to make contact with Stannis, as Cersei dared them to. With no Iron Bank to run to, Harris has been forced to try Myrrh instead. And it's probably a good marker of their desperation that that's the case, because we've never even heard of Myrrh having a banking force or financial strength ever before. And even if they are successful with that, it's only to try and keep Bravos off their back. It wouldn't actually be getting them any money. It's just a measure to try and stem the bleeding. Needless to say, their precarious position would become more precarious without access to gold. It's not just the buying of sell swords but every other aspect of government that they need to fund especially if it does come to war again and especially with winter coming in a winter that will be bringing more famine with it than normal and this suggestion that they might have to raise taxes shouldn't be ignored either that's music to john con's ears everyone is already pretty fed up with the establishment of late now if they start charging you more than ever for the pleasure well people have switched sides for a lot less and in fairness kevin notes just that in a second so we have hit the mark there but bemoaning their monetary status will achieve nothing, so it's up to Kevin to push for a solution, especially one that doesn't involve him having to bail out the crown again. Yes, that question arises once more. Is it because funds at Cassidy Rock might be getting chippy? Or is it merely that he knows it's the same as burning his cash, that the Iron Throne is a black hole he'll never get a penny back from? His suggestions include Pentos, and we can guess that Ilio and Partis would pump the brakes on that just to help with the destabilisation. So if not Pentos, Kevin tells his father-in-law he'll have to go begging at the Iron Bank over in Bravos. And even the first time reader thinks, oh, hang on, we've got a major character over in Bravos. For those who have tried out the Winds of Winter preview chapters, we know this is the setup of Mercy's storyline and everything fitting together. Back in the present though, Harris is not too happy at the prospect, possibly because of those many storms on the narrow sea. So he lets things get a bit rougher by the two parties when he accuses Randall and Mace of not sharing the loot that they took in Maidenpool and Dragonstone, which allows Mace to touch on another mystery of Feast, the fate of Loras and the supposed victory over the Dragonstone garrison. If you recall, it was one of the harder mysteries to make any sort of guess about, and we're no smarter now than we were all the way back then. Certainly, it was a favourite question of mine, like we mentioned in Cersei's earlier chapter, and it's one I'm really very hungry to find out about. Put it in my top 10. We always have a great time for inspiring many different theories about Loras, especially right here. For now, it seems the official line is still that Loras took Dragonstone, but was massively wounded in doing so. Yet, Mace makes absolutely zero mention of that here. He only talks about his son's men not finding either gold or fabled dragon's eggs. Yes, these are ambitious men, and while they have tossed away such rumours beforehand, the confirmation of dragons being alive in the world again will make them start trying to find their own source so that they can remain in the game. It might be that the Tyrells are simply ahead of the curve in this, as they are with most trends. Perhaps they even played into Loras's motivation to go there. But either way, Mace doesn't even mention his apparently dying son, which just makes me a little bit suspect that maybe Loras is fine and is free to search his castle without anyone asking too many questions. Or maybe he's just keeping the Citadel as another Tyrell property in case they need Need it. And I must admit, I'm wondering when Kevin would have ever been to Dragonstone. He says he has been past it. But either way, I like the idea that Loras, or Loras's men, would have never had time to search all of it because of its many secrets and fiery depths. We've seen that on page, and we can definitely believe that idea. Perhaps there are areas only a Targaryen could ever hope to reach. I definitely like that idea. Maybe we can make another Zelda reference and think about our fire tunics. 
so it's actually Kevin who gives any sort of thought to Loris at all, but he doesn't really give us any clue to his fate. We're left wondering, but I'm sure that storyline is going to be of high importance at some point. It's also Kevin who changes the subject again. He's told Harris Swift what to do, now we need to move on because this is a very full agenda. And he lands on one of the much bigger issues, the immediate follow-on from Cersei 2 slash The Walk of Shame, Cersei has officially selected trial by combat and she has officially chosen Sir Robert Strong as her champion. So other than learning that Kevin and Cersei are in contact and talking, it's what we guessed. It's a confirmation of the plan we knew Cersei was aiming for, that was the whole point of going through that terrible ordeal. She did it and you can be damn sure she's going to make sure it was worth it. And at the words Sir Robert Strong, you can feel the atmosphere in the room change. Everyone tenses up a bit, it gets a bit colder. The man is so unnatural and so clearly dangerous, he'd probably dominate their minds just by his very presence. But now there's the idea of him working to Cersei's ends, well you can imagine why that unsettles them and why they begin complaining now. They seem to consider it cheating a bit. We had Cersei in a corner, everything was going our way, mostly. You can't just magic up this gigantic, very intimidating warrior out of nowhere, that's not fair. So Mace puts up the question, who the hell is he? They've just been through a devastating continent-wide war, and that tends to churn up every available night at some point, yet this one apparently just went unnoticed, with his size, and with enough prestige to join the Kingsguard? That's preposterous, and it's just not on, they say. But then again, that suggestion might be better than the alternative line of thinking. Mace says, do we know for a certainty that he's even a knight? Kevin thinks, we do not even know if he's alive. Now, even for first-time readers, by this point, we're all pretty convinced this is a reanimated Gregor Clegane, although the mystery of how Kyburn has achieved this remains a huge question mark for us. The funny thing is, they all seem to think it, that there is something odd about the man, oddities we best remember being attributed to Beric Dondarrion or Lady Stoneheart. So it begs the question, if Gregor did actually die and there's some sort of necromancy going on here, or if there's another weird, creepy means that have allowed it to happen. Whichever it is, it's the sign of a new era coming to King's Landing. For all it's been through in this series, it has pretty much avoided the magical slash otherworldly stuff. This has been the land of politics, keep all that out for the perimeter, hence the settings for our prologues and epilogues we mentioned earlier. But now it seems that barrier is broken. Whether Gregor is working off magic or science, if he is a white of some sort, is clearly something unnatural. It is otherworldly, and it's something King's Landing hasn't seen in the series so far. So that's the beginning of our merging of the two great ideas or great themes of the series, the magical and the political. Everything is smashing together as we move closer to the end. In fact, Kevin thinks they all know who it really is, because it just so happens a fellow of the exact same size used to wander about this castle every now and then. Someone that Kyburn had access to, and someone dangerous enough before the weird experiments were done to him that made him clearly not human in some way. And it's here when they mention the, the no sleeping and the no eating. Yeah, there's probably not a lot of those size guys around. There's probably even less that don't sleep or eat or anything like that. But no one actually wants to say it out loud. No one wants to speak it into existence. No one wants to admit their worry or tip their hat that that's what they're thinking. And probably no one wants to sound stupid because isn't the guy supposed to be dead? How can it possibly be true he's alive and walking around and not doing all these natural human things? It might even be that they don't want to admit it to themselves because, let's face it, that's a pretty hard concept to get your mind around. These guys haven't been out in the North or elsewhere seeing strange things and getting used to them. They've been wrapped up in their seven plots, so it's simply unimaginable for them, and the consequences are too dire to think about. We'll likely see this all the way through winds, this grand elephant in the room that no one wants to look too closely at, but the whispers will increase, the creepy awe will too, until eventually Sir Robert Strong strikes. Whatever the face hidden behind Strong's helm, it must remain hidden for now. The silent giant was his niece's only hope, and pray that he is as formidable as he appears. So the first part of that quote makes us wonder if George is trying to point us to something. What is beneath the helm? What does his head look like? 
Is it his head? Does he even have a head? What's the truth of this monster? But the second half can be confusing, especially on the first few reads. Hang about now. He's just put Cersei through hell. Now he's fully backing her plan and hope that she survives? Well, he explains his thinking both to us and the Tyrells now. As much as he might have done to Cersei, they still need her after a fashion. At the very least, they need her to be found innocent. Otherwise, that implicates Tommen, which in turn affects Marjorie and the Tyrells. So that's quite clever from Kevin to point that out, to remind them all that this is a symbiotic relationship where they rely on one another. His side can't be thrown away just yet. So that's a good way to keep them all in line, or something close to it, and to keep this balancing act going. But then, almost bizarrely, he starts talking about family loyalty and protecting your own blood. He details the extra measures he's enacted to make sure she can't provide any more danger. He's got his own guards in there instead of the old ones, and ladies-in-waiting have been replaced with a scepter and three novices. Now, we absolutely have to think that one of those novices is going to be Tyene, don't we? Maybe that's how we'll see what she's getting up to amongst the Faith and in King's Landing. That's how she'll be given access to the big storylines. In turn, that reminds us that this council is going to receive a bit of a surprise when Nymeria San turns up to join them. Like Oberyn before her, that could really upset the dynamic. But we'll keep on Cersei for now. Kevin intends to return Cersei to Casterly Rock. Now, we've spoken of such theories before, even if we think she's fleeing from Aegon, or maybe even Danny, rather than being sent by Kevin, but we do know that Castle Rock and the Westerns are going to be shown at some point down the road, so it stands to reason that Cersei could be the vehicle to do that. Maybe they'll even pick Jaime up along the way, or maybe this will be where Tyrion comes in search of his revenge and birthright, and uses that famous sister knowledge. Maybe this is where we'll get the big Lannister showdown, in the house of their father. But that's all far off future theory talk. What we have now is Kevin reflecting on the Wall of Shame and essentially being an absolute sod about it. Cersei was soiled goods now, her power at an end. Every baker's boy and beggar in the city had seen her in her shame, and every tart and tanner from Flea Bottom to Pisswater Bend had gazed upon her nakedness, their eager eyes crawling over her breasts and belly and woman's parts. No queen could expect to rule again after that. This is a disgusting enough paragraph to read on its own, but combine it with what he was saying about making sure Cersei didn't die, and it somehow makes the whole walk of shame thing even worse. True, half of why he doesn't want Cersei guilty is because of the huge political mess it would make in regards to Tommen and House Lannister's future, but I think he's being genuine in not wanting her dead as well. Now, if he outright hated her, if he did just want her dead, at least we could see his logic a bit more in the walk of shame. But as I say, this almost makes it worse. He doesn't want to kill her, just annihilate any sense of worth or purpose, just destroy her life and her self-image and any sense of dignity whatsoever. He doesn't want to kill her, just shut her up, basically. If you're lucky enough to have read the Gentleman Bastard sequence, then he really just wants to still her, to remove her from being an issue. And to me, that's more insulting. He wants her to exist as a concept, but not actually be a person. Just go off and be a woman quietly in the corner, there's a good girl, and we'll hear no more about it. That is gross thinking, of course. And it's even more misogynistic than we originally thought. This refusal to see a woman as a human being. Even the phrases he uses, my niece will make no further mischief. It infantilizes her. It trivializes her. Genuinely, I think it would have been more respectful to just want her dead. So everything we thought about during Cersei's chapter about Kevin turned out to be dead on. He is an evil, scheming little bastard. He tells us that he knew precisely what he was doing. This was an aimed attack and all those elements of image and awe that we discussed in Cersei's chapter they were all true. So this passage is very validating for us in its way. He literally gives the comparison of the queen against Cersei, the naked woman. So this is all calculated, it's all heartless. He's completely removed from human emotion or empathy. It's evil. He'd be evil against anyone, but your own family? And then he has the audacity to mentally pat himself on the back afterwards about how well it worked. He's despicable. And yes, we could probably go on about this a lot, lot more, but I think we did it enough in Cersei's. Let's not give him the time of day. To finish that thought, he gives this quote. Better to live shame than die proud. 
Well, Kevin, a lot of characters we've met would disagree with that, but it gives a good insight into how he spent so long in Tywin's shadow, I think. Mace gives his nod to all this. They're all satisfied that Cersei has been removed and are apparently all fine with how that came about. But we also get confirmation that we will get a Marjorie trial by the Faith, so we'll see both types later in wins, and that's exciting indeed. Though he puts on a brave face, Kevin has another of these little private thoughts of doubt where he points out the Tyrell army will be present. So that gets us questioning how fair that trial will actually be if that army is going to be looming over everything the entire time. Mace is always going to protest innocence, but we know that army is obviously there to influence the thinking that goes on, so how will the High Sparrow react to that, we wonder? For now, we move on again. We've got lots to get through. Pycelle tries to bring up the Rosby inheritance, which apparently has six claimants. We don't really have the space here to go into all of that and what might happen in all these six claimants, but just remember that Rosby is, is basically the closest fortress or castle near to King's Landing. It was obviously used as like the escape route for Tommen back in Clash. So we've got to wonder if that's going to be used again and if the fact that there is the succession crisis that we don't know who's really in power there that that might come into play at some point. Especially if a new king is on the horizon, claimants are trying to seek favour so that they can get a step ahead etc etc. Maybe someone runs there and finds it's not as safe as they think it is. Maybe Bronn turns up there. There's a lot of uh, possibilities again we probably just can't fit in right now but there's so many of those throughout this entire chapter to be honest. And besides, Kevin doesn't allow that to actually enter the chapter. He speaks over Pycelle. He says that's not important enough to deal with right now, even though that normally just makes us all the more interested, doesn't it? Because we know George doesn't bring up things unless they are going to be a note further down the line. Instead, we focus on Marcella. So hooray for a Marcella mention, that's great. And her soon coming home to King's Landing as previously arranged. Mace wants to grumble about that too, because he obviously doesn't like the Dornish, but Kevin clearly sees it as just further scheming. Surely a better match can be found for the girl, said Mace. Such as your own son, Willis, perhaps. Her disfigured by one Dornishman, him crippled by another. It was almost poetic from Kevin there, even though he does keep that thought private yet again. It does make sense that the Tyrells would want to do that though, gathering assets, we've seen that before with Sansa, and then they would have both of the royal heirs instead of one. They would basically be absorbing almost all of House Lannister, really. And therefore the grip over the Iron Throne would become all the stronger, and it's always just nice to have some insurance, isn't it, in case anything should happen to Tommen. But instead of admitting that he sees what Mace is up to, it is instead left to Kevin to be the level-headed one. If Duran Martell were to join his strength to Connington's in support of this famed dragon, things could go very ill for all of us. So that gets our interest. We know that's certainly what John Con is focusing on. From the Wind's previews, we know that's what Arianne is on her way to maybe do. And many of us figure that that's exactly what will happen and it will indeed go quite badly for them. And then we actually have it, the end of the council meeting. They'll meet again in five days, they say, after Cersei's trial. So that's a lot closer than we would have guessed, probably. The timeline is always suspect, but you'd think we were going to get that very early on in Wind's. Maybe the very, very hopeful even think we might get to see it here in this chapter. Could easily zip past five days, couldn't we? It's not out of the reign of possibility. I'm not sure how that would end up in Kevin's death, unless Robert Strong just starts taking vengeance on everybody, but we could see Cersei's revenge as a fitting ending. That would be cool, but alas, no. And while talking of Cersei's trial, Mace at least allows himself to agree with this. May the warrior lend strength to Sir Robert's arms, the words were grudging. The dip of the chin Mace Tyrell gave the Lord Regent the most cursory of bows, but it was something, and for that much, Sir Kevin Lannister was grateful. Now, if you've not read this chapter for a while, it's easy to misremember all this as being a lot smoother, especially with Varys' words still to come. But it is all quite begrudging. The form of government works, it's true, too much of Varys' liking it will turn out, but these two sides are far from friends. There's still a lot of tension, a lot of silent warring, a lot of game-playing still being done, so we should do our best to remember that. And again, you can question Kevin's actual standing or power in such a process. His position is such that he has to be glad to even get a cursory nod, so perhaps he's not as good or important as he thinks he is. 
He doesn't spare much further thought for Mace, because even though he has the title and the resources, he's still considered a fool by many. Perhaps that is his intention, but it certainly works on Kevin. So instead he focuses on Randall. Tali is the real danger, so Kevin reflected as he watched their departure. A narrow man, but iron-willed and shrewd, and as good a soldier as the Reach could boast. But how do I win him to our side? Obviously this is a plan we'll never see enacted, but it does hint that Kevin believes there's a possibility of him turning. So does that just indicate that he's open to helping the Golden Company instead? Either way, he's correct about the man's military capabilities, and it's something else we expect to see him wins at some point, but for which side? As if the mere arrival of Aegon and co wasn't destabilising enough, but then this is the very point of the invasion, isn't it? People will turn for you. You do have friends in the Reach. Yes, that's something to keep an eye on. The idea of the game still being played, the silent war, and the reality that's quite different from the image, yet still miles better than what Cersei put together, is focused on when both Pycelle and Harris Swift ask for extra guards in case the Tyrells want to kill them, so we can see how intense the game playing truly is. Pycelle has the better reasoning though, Mace is still angry at him for his own part in Marjorie's imprisonment, whether it is actually Cersei's fault or not, although we do sympathise with that because she really did mistreat him in that book. Of course, this is an element that is going to play very well into Faris's hands later, the knowledge that Mace is angry with Pycelle. Kevin worries about offending the Tyrells with such a move, so we ask again how much is he being bulled over here? He seems weak, but also this game is a matter of inches, everything must be considered. Kevin reflects further on Tyrell ambition, that largest fruit of all. They were speaking of tiny battles, but now he thinks of the war for this council, and therefore the Iron Throne. Even as we are reminded of Garth the Gross once more, Kevin is drawing mental battle lines. He, Harris and Pycelle versus Mace, Randall and Pax the Redwine when slash if he returns from battling Euron. So they're equal for now, but Mace will know no rest. If either of these two or even both of them die, he'll seek to replace them with Tyrell cronies and Kevin will be left more alone and more impotent than he already is. He knows if that happens there's always no way his house ever gets out of it, so it's one of his highest objectives to make sure it doesn't happen. We mentioned earlier that the arrival of Nymeria Sand would be a surprise to the council, but it turns out only to half of them. Kevin does know about it, but he's kept it a secret because it'll blow up Mace's face like a pufffish. And that's for the mere fact she's Dornish, let alone the issues of her birth or the fact she's apparently as notorious as Oberyn. Oh yes, she is going to make a splash, isn't she? Not just for her actual motives of revenge, but coming up close to the Tyrells slash the Reachmen and how that clash will manifest itself. It's sure to be very exciting reading. It's sure to be very exciting to read. And bear in mind that thanks to this chapter, she'll also be arriving to deal with a council 100% sworn to House Tyrell. So, so how's that going to work? What other conflicts will arise from that as the council tries to right their suddenly unbalanced ship? A council that might not even know she's coming at all. Kevin then thinks this. The man we need is Littlefinger. Peter Baelish had a gift for conjuring dragons from the air. Yes, as if we didn't have enough evidence already that Kevin is a moron, here it is. Peter fucking Baelish is the solution to all your problems? And jeez, you really are screwed, aren't you? I'm pretty sure he bought this up as an option back in Feast as well, and to be fair, Jamie joined him in that, if I'm remembering correctly, and we discussed at the time how this is the old little finger trick at work. Because of his low birth and wrong surname, people just never consider him any kind of threat, despite all the contrary evidence, all he's done throughout the series. He almost doesn't count because he just doesn't fit into the traditional picture, and Kevin and others are so small-minded that they can't ever get past that. Littlefinger has made more than a career off of that idea, and apparently even hijacking an entire kingdom from House Arryn hasn't persuaded some people about his true potential. The Conjuring Dragons from Finn Air line is interesting though. I don't imagine Littlefinger having anything to do with the Targaryen storyline and unveiling them, but he could conjure Sansa, couldn't he? At the same time, we don't think there's any possibility that Littlefinger would accept this invitation even if it was extended, given all that he's built up in the Vale. But you can never tell, always do the most unexpected thing, and that's the idea, isn't it? 
But then if he did, he wouldn't be able to bring Sansa back, would he? Well, maybe he would if he thought Cersei was truly caged, but then how duplicate the Tyrells? Well, maybe he won't have to, depending on the timing. Something I don't see discussed quite as much as you'd think is Littlefinger's reaction to Aegon. Now, maybe by that point, it's irrelevant, and Sansa has already dealt with Littlefinger, one could hope, or they're already moving north, or whatever else it might be. Maybe he just wants to stick in the veil. But what if he sees a need to get on the ground floor with the new guys in charge? Their knowledge of him would be spotty at best, depending on how involved Varys is, of course. So maybe he could pull some of his old early scams. And we well know that Aegon is impressionable, we've seen that already. So maybe Littlefinger wants to hitch their wagon. Maybe he wants to try and stop them. Or maybe he even gets in the good books by supplying a bride. I very much doubt it's possible. We've got so many other possibilities for Sansa. But when has that stopped us before? Let's just imagine the possibility of Sansa marrying Aegon and having half Stark and half supposedly Targaryen babies. We always thought it was Jon that was the manifestation of these two great elemental powers, that this was his song. Well, that can be true, but it might not just be him. What if this is about a whole new generation of fire and ices? It could be, or equally possible is that I've been reading these books for too long. Let's get back to the actual text, shall we? Just don't hire Littlefinger, you idiot. In answer to Harris Swift's own concerns about paranoia, we get more mercy set up when Kevin suggests hiring the Mountain's men. Yes, it just is amazing how it all fits together. This one suggestion from Kevin will take Raph the Sweetling from here in King's Landing all the way over to the Path of Aya, and who knows what effect that will have on her long term. It all connects, doesn't it? At the same time, Kevin thinks about Mace Tyrell never being so clumsy as to just kill them outright. The game never rests, he's always thinking about these kind of things. But again, Varys will take advantage of that too. As the three teammates leave the throne room, we're reminded again of this snow that I find so enrapturing and exciting. The time to speak of the cold, said Grandmaster Pycelle, is not when we are standing out in it. I mention that quote purely because it turns out this will be the last words we ever hear from him. Now we'll save talk of him overall for the ending, but for a man who's been ridiculed, and with good reason, or hated or just thought of as a fool by both in-world and out-world people, it is kind of George to allow his last words to be this little genuine gem of wisdom. Kevin confirms that Harris will need to go to Bravos, and he moves off on his own. We're treated to more of the Red Keep in the snow, although Kevin pretty quickly transitions into giving us an update on the status of the Kingsguard, most of which we already knew, but to sum it up here, not only reminds us of several side plots, the hunt for Darkstar for example, but really gets across just how rubbish the Kingsguard currently looks. In terms of who is actually there, available to protect the King, the list reads Marion Trent, Boris Blunt, and Robert Strong who we have no idea about in terms of obeying Tommen, or only being beholden to Cersei, or Kyburn, or whoever. Either way, that's a pretty rubbish list. It'd be really bad if some invading army were coming to take the throne back, wouldn't it? Hmm. Or maybe two revenge-laced assassins were able to sneak their way into the castle. Ugh, poor, poor Tommen. It also has you thinking Merrin and Boris probably aren't going to last that much longer. Although there would be something hilarious about one of them making it from series beginning to series end out of everyone who didn't manage such a feat. Beaverway is pretty dire. If Barristan and Selmy could see you now. Kevin correctly thinks that he could do with some more swords around Tommen. He even messes with some of the established structure about being able to fire and replace Kingsguard. In turn, that would mess with some of the prestige and dedication, in my opinion. You're not going to give up your life and freedom if you can just be fired from it later on. We can say the same about the Night's Watch, couldn't we? And if you can break with that tradition, I've always wondered how no one in 300 years has said, hey, maybe we should have nine or 11, or however many we need. Yeah, I know they love their sevens, but if you've got a young king, or if it's a period of war or whatever else, then why not? Kevin also dreams about putting his son Lancel in a white cloak. That's probably what he'd always hoped, to be honest, to have his own version of Jamie. Yes, we've discussed that before. And it doesn't seem like he's quite willing to let go of that dream, despite the reality. Back in his own chambers, it's time to think about Cersei again. Later on, he's due to see both her and Tommen, and even that note is enough to get us wondering if that'll be how Kevin ends, if Cersei will take her revenge this quickly. It wouldn't be surprising whatsoever, I don't think. 
We get yet more disgustingness on the thoughts of his niece and how she's been subdued and submissive since the walk of shame and how happy he is about that. Ugh, God, it's sickening, isn't it? We've said it all before, but it really doesn't get any easier to read. He wants her quiet, he wants her obedient, and some of this is his more than backward thinking on women in general, while some of it is just wanting his own time to shine. Maybe in his subconsciousness, he thinks he spent years being subdued and submissive to Tywin, and now it's someone else's turn. We have this quote. The novices who attended her reported that she spent a third of her waking hours with her son, another third in prayer, and the rest in her tub. She was bathing four or five times a day, scrubbing herself with horsehair brushes and strong lye soap as if she meant to scrape her skin off. She will never wash the stain away, no matter how hard she scrubs. Ugh, the triumph with which this guy talks, the satisfaction he's getting out of it, it's, just, it's mega creepy. And we do feel for Cersei here, for all the problems and things we'll never forgive her for, it's also tough to see her deal with clear trauma, some of which she might never get past, especially when we're looking through the eyes of he who gave it to her. He follows that up with even more creepiness as he thinks on Cersei's turning into a woman, and yet somehow twists that into pride for his own family when he compares young Cersei to Lyanna Stark. Yes, it is always so weird to think of them as actually similar ages. They might have been the exact same age. It always kind of boggles my mind, Cersei and Lyanna. But yes, it is time for another Rhaegar reference and thinking of what could have been if different choices were made, just like Barristan did. Kevin even says that's a habit of the older generation. Yeah, George really does want us thinking back to all of that, doesn't he? And P.S. Do you think this chapter holds the record for the most amount of characters ever referenced? I'm betting it does. If I ever get the time, I'll research it and look it up for you. But that's where my money's going. Now Kevin, he doesn't dawdle on that. He moves back from that to the issue of what he did to Cersei. And instead of admitting his crimes or trying to make up for it in any way, he instead tries to convince himself he was completely in the right. I have no reason to feel guilty, so Kevin told himself. Tywin would understand that, surely. It was his daughter who brought shame down on our name, not I. What I did, I did for the good of House Lannister. And we've got to wonder, is he saying this because guilt or shame is actually kicking in? It certainly does seem like he's trying to persuade himself. He has to pass it by the ultimate figure in his life, Tywin, as if he was some great moral compass. Obviously, Kevin adored him, so if he can convince himself that Tywin would be cool with it, then it must be cool in general. The whole thing falls under the old blanket of hurting your relatives to help your house, the greater good type of ideas, all of them equally idiotic and unhelpful to Cersei. His justification goes further as he hits on something else we well covered during the walk, the original walk of shame done in Lannisport to the mistress of Titus Lannister and the effect this had on Kevin. It starts out by him making the case that Tywin had done it before, so it's okay that he did it. Spoiler, but it wasn't okay that Tywin did it, but at least he wasn't doing it to his niece. But then that simply devolves into a retelling of the entire story, how this candlemaker's daughter got taken into the rock and then really started letting everyone know about it. And this clearly had an effect on Kevin and coloured his views on women, women who move above their station or get too big for their boots, in his opinion. He thinks this belittles the men who actually hold the titles, as it did with Titus, even though he had more than enough belittlement long before he met this mistress, and it most likely hurt him as an attempt to erase the memory of his deceased mother. The wearing of the jewels is pointed at again as the highest of crimes, and I'm pretty sure Tyra might have focused on that as well. Let's not ignore the classist vein here too. It was all that much worse because it was a candlemaker's daughter, someone of the small folk, when the Lannisters consider themselves essentially a different species entirely. One of them should not be able to become one of us, is essentially the thinking. So you know all these underlying issues had to play a part in his condemning of Cersei, even if he never actually addressed it as such. Beyond that, he simply saw it as effective, as he details here, so why not do the same? Surely Tywin would have never dreamed that same fate awaited his golden daughter. It had to be, so Kevin muttered over the last of his wine. His high holiness had to be appeased. Tommen needed the faith behind him in the battles to come, and Cersei... The golden child had grown into a vain, foolish, greedy woman. Left to rule, she would have ruined Tommen as she had Joffrey. 
If there is guilt in Kevin, and it seems like there is, it's a genuine question whether it's because he feels bad over what he's just done to his niece, or just because he thinks his brother would be angry with him, and it's probably the latter. Now he's dead on about the needs, it's true, but as we said last time out, that's not the way to do it, and we could just go round and round in circles about Sir Kevin, but we'll move on. We have a different quote now. Time to face the lioness in her den. We have pulled her claws. Jamie though, but no, he would not brood on that. Aha, much of this we've already doubled up and also covered in Cersei's chapter, but here comes a new aspect that we've not really spoken about. How in the world does Jamie react if he returns to King's Landing soon enough and sees the effects of this walk? Maybe he won't, maybe it'll be ages before he comes back and by the time he does, new problems would have taken its place. But let's just imagine for argument's sake that he does come back soon and hears all about it. Well, our personal worry is that guilt over not answering the letter and pity for Cersei would undo all the great work he's done to break free of her and would instead send him back into her arms. That's absolutely the last thing we want to see for Jamie. Even if there is a chance Cersei just rejects him out of anger, she has Gregor now anyway, so why do you need Jamie? But the other overwhelming emotion would be rage. At the High Sparrow, sure, but if Jamie was to ever discover Kevin's part in this, I think we all know the result. Yes, it is truly a kindness what actually happens to Kevin later on but I'm still going to hope that's not the direction it goes. Kevin leaves that line of thinking now and heads off to meet Cersei and Tommen. Upon entering, we find that the King's Guard is in a worse state than we thought, as Boris Blunt is looking incredibly ill and needs to lean upon the wall to stand. He definitely doesn't look capable of defending the King, if, if he ever has done. So is this because he's been made Tommen's food taster? Is this a message that someone is already trying to poison Tommen, perhaps? We also learn about the novices and their rotation to make sure that Cersei can't corrupt them. So this is another effect of the walk. It's still happening, another punishment. She's being treated as toxic. And maybe it is a good idea, but it's cruelty on top of cruelty. She's now completely isolated and being treated like a thing to be avoided. That has an effect on a person, especially someone who's been through what Cersei has. It affects that self-worth and the ego and everything else. But you can still imagine her having very venomous thoughts towards these uh, different novices that do come in. She's not going to appreciate being essentially under lock and key, is she? And she's probably still blaming them, but she's keeping it hidden. So now the tension of the chapter goes up a bit. We don't know what Cersei's going to be like or how she might lash out. But when they come together, she's all sweetness and manners. That's a bit too much for our suspicions, especially when she starts cracking jokes in a minute. Just what is she up to? It's got to be a plan or a ploy. We can't imagine this as a real Cersei now, no matter how she's dressed. The more annoying part is how smug it makes Kevin. He feels he was right on the money, that it all worked. Beforehand, she would have dared to show off the changes that he inflicted on her. The impotence. But the act, for we are sure that's what it is, seems to have the desired effect. Kevin relaxes a bit, he talks freely, and is lulled into accepting Cersei's request for Tane and Merriweather to be sent back to her after the trial. He thinks it a modest request. I think it a mere change in tactics. Cersei wants an agent or an ally in Tainer, even if we still have our doubts about her ourselves, and she's going to use sweetness to get what she wants for a change. She'll lull them into thinking it worked before undoubtedly unleashing her revenge. We're near sure of it, and we kind of don't mind either because, well, Kevin does deserve it. We even think that moment might come today in this chapter. But even if not, we know it's still going to be a huge deal when it finally does. In fact, after this chapter, we'll probably find that Cersei's annoyed that someone got to Kevin before she did. As for the man himself, he genuinely thinks that he's helped her out, that he's created a better person. He says it's good that she still remembers how to laugh. I mean, come on, you're, just, you're so out of it. You don't know what's going on, Kevin. Come on now. George decides to throw us one more happiness bone before the close of this book when he mentions that Tommen is happier than ever. That's superb. That's excellent. What more could we ask for? We love both Tommen and Marcella, and it's very rare we get to hear anything good about them, so this is a real victory. A very temporary victory, sure, we might not be super confident about it continuing that way, but let's take what we can get. Especially before he becomes aware of the larger situation, or that he could lose Cersei or Marjorie or even both, let's let him enjoy the exploits of his cats and the fantastic Sir Pounce.
But for those are tales that Kevin enjoys, and you'll note that George is subtly including humanising marks for Kevin, he wants to hear across that this man has good aspects of himself just to throw our hearts into conflict again. And while we're hearing about these stories, we also hear about the bad cat. Now I must admit I completely forgotten about this little note, or maybe I just didn't notice it before, but this is Tommen talking about that old black tomcat with the torn ear that I used to hang out with in Game of Thrones. And the way he says it makes it sound like the thing is trying to get into his window with only brave Sir Pounce to stop him. And perhaps this is just me being at the end of a five book reread project and having a lack of sleep, but is something going on here? Is there something special about this cat other than its apparent survival skills? Is it trying to get to Tommen? Does that mean it's being walled by someone? I don't know at this point. It just seems important because George points it out, but perhaps this is a, a step too far even for us. It's all a childish fancy for Kevin anyway, who turns his thoughts back to the mother and then suddenly enrages us with this. Sir Kevin could not remember ever seeing his niece so quiet, so subdued, so demure. All for the good, he supposed, but it made him sad as well. Her fire is quenched. She who used to burn so bright. Oh, come on. Are you kidding us? Are you seriously looking at her and thinking it's a shame she's like this now when that was your very aim? You gave the order. You made it happen. Now you think it might have worked too well? I mean, his thoughts are making the entire experience so much worse. How cavalier an attitude he has over the state of someone's soul and sanity. Oh, looks like I left the heat on too long. Oh, I'm not actually sure if I wanted to make it like this. If you're going to ruin someone in this nature, you could at least pay attention and be aware of what you're doing. Either way, his own thoughts, combined with Cersei's new attitude or act, actually makes him be the one offering a prompt when he brings up Jamie. Cersei's eyes shine in the candlelight in response, but she doesn't actually give away her feelings. I wonder if Cersei now holds even more resentment and hatred for Jamie because he never showed up, because she went through that experience alone. We know how angry she was with him after he returned from the war, so maybe this will be a similar vibe. We're not shown anything specific that points us in that way, but it is a possibility. Kevin is more concerned about what her reaction will be if Jamie turns out to have died on this deviation he's apparently taken. He might even be wishing for such to spare him from any revenge, though he probably thinks Jamie is still needed overall. But Cersei is confident. She'll know when Jamie dies, she says. She even thinks they might go together. Well, I think most of us would say that is a distinct possibility. After breaking character just for a split second to inquire about Tyrion, Cersei asks a more surprising question about Kevin's wife, Dorna, Dorna Swift, and whether she will come to court now that Kevin has now that Kevin is staying. Dorna, who we've heard very, very little about over the whole series, despite being part of such a major family, she's not even come up in this chapter yet, despite being the man's wife. And we see that's largely because she fits in with his ideas of what women should be. She's quiet, she does the children duty. And okay, we'll allow her a hobby like needlework to keep her happy and quiet. And for all we know, maybe that is what makes Dorna happy. And if so, good for her. But the point is that that's all Kevin wants out of his life partner. So he says she's going to stay out of the way. And again, Maybe that's true, maybe that is what Dorna wants. I'd probably prefer to live in Lannisport as well, but we'll never know. The larger question is why is Cersei asking this? Something that Kevin fails to think of himself. Is it because Cersei is plotting her revenge and is wondering if she can hurt her uncle via his wife should she enter the arena? I say almost definitely, especially when she makes a jab about wise women knowing their place. It's another quick as a flash break in her act. She knows Kevin's views, she knows what he did to her, hence we have the revenge theories. Unfortunately, Kevin fails to pick up on any of it. After little Tommen heads off to bed, and we say goodbye to him for now, hoping against hope he can carry this happy state into winds, and likely knowing we're dead wrong, the conversation turns to Cersei's trial. First up is the news that Osney Kettleblack will be executed for his previous murder of the High Septon, the one that Cersei ordered. She warns that other two brothers are going to try something to prevent that, but Kevin shows considerable forethought here by already having them arrested, and now intending to give them the choice between the wall or Sir Robert. Either way, it looks like the ear of the Kettleblack is done in King's Landing, quick as it was. 
Remember, that also severs one of the links that Littlefinger still has within the city, even though it's been hinted at that that particular thread had worn thin as the Kettleblacks rose up the ranks. It's always intriguing to think of people we know at the Wall as well. These guys are sneaky so-and-sos. We don't know how they would handle hard duty after the run they've just had, but we do know they'd at least be capable fighters. As for the reason why Kevin had them arrested, he doesn't pull any punches in saying it's because they slept with Cersei, that she did this, she even admitted to it, and her face reddens at the words, which doesn't sound like Cersei at all, does it? Maybe that's the memory of being at the Sept, or the awareness of the part she played in the lives of these three brothers, or perhaps even doesn't like to think of anything sexual, especially the act that put her on that walk in the first place. Allegedly. Obviously, we actually know that's not the case. She admits that she misjudged the Kettleblacks, which is certainly true. They were some of her more costly mistakes from Feast. I think this part of the act might be genuine. Kevin likes Cersei being cowed. It makes him feel superior, and he's enjoying chastising her for it. Lecturing. He wants to do more until a messenger steps in to say that Pycelle has urgent need of him, so our drama shifts. It looks like Cersei won't be the one to end Kevin. Maybe George will actually break the tradition here. We're assuming our big dramatic end will come in the form of news. From Storm's End... Maybe Winterfell? Are we about to hear something that counteracts the pink letter or confirms it? Maybe the wall is under attack. We could throw Euron and Old Town in there. We could even hear something about the veil just to be a massive tease. Maybe Cersei's right, it is about Jamie. Or maybe Lady Stoneheart is going to have a moment in both epilogues. Either way, we expect that to be where our drama lies. We can sense the end is coming, there's only a few pages left. Let's go with Kevin now to actually find out. He bids goodbye to the niece he destroyed, and we can only imagine how her inner monologue is screaming as he kisses her hand and thinks she could be out of the game entirely soon. Somehow, I think Cersei believes the opposite. I think she's probably more fueled than ever. But Kevin leaves, and we say goodbye to Cersei for now. We head towards the final act instead, but not before another look at the snow. And even before we get to that, Kevin is kind towards this messenger boy of Pycelle's the kid was left out in the cold. He not only tells him to get warm, but gives him a penny. So like we said earlier, George is trying to get across that there are kinder parts of Kevin. A person can be two things. He really wants us some conflict just before he leaves us for a while. But it's the promise of Jamie spurring him on, for he is still so important. Or maybe just the sense of something important requiring duty to serve. But Kevin still stops to look at what the snow has done to the place. The snow had finally stopped falling. Behind a veil of ragged clouds, a full moon floated fat and white as a snowball. The stars shone cold and distant. As Sir Kevin made his way across the inner ward, the castle seemed an alien place, where every keep and tower had grown icy teeth, and all familiar paths beneath a white blanket. Alien, yes, quite the word. This is a new time, a new era in more ways than one. It's a King's Landing that we've never seen. You might even say it's a time for wolves. It's beautiful imagery either way, of course, and Kevin nails it. He wonders, what must it be like up on the wall in terms of weather? That's a good question, Kevin, because it's actually pretty bad. When he arrives at the Grand Maester's chambers, there is a second child to greet him, but Kevin gives her even less thought than the first one. Children are just part of the furniture here, right? For instance, he doesn't note that the girl is solemn and silent, and the boy didn't talk either, did he? Hmm, I wonder what stole their birdsong. So we've had snow, and I think it's been a long time since we are in these chambers. We were. We did actually come here, didn't we? But either way, if we really want markers of the passage of time, there's no better than the huge white raven sitting by the window when Kevin walks in, blowing snow danced around it and the moon painted it silver. More beautiful scenery then, perhaps to give the impression of everything being still and silent and calm. So if this for the snow outside wasn't enough, it's now official. Just as it was when the last of these things turned up to herald the end of summer way back when. Finally, winter has come blowing into Westeros definitively. This is the new era. This is the new act of the series that will enter. It's the last. And it's damn handy to connect to the next title as well. But the point is clear here. We're about to walk through the gates. This is a portal to what comes next. And we could get caught up in thinking about what such a proclamation means, or the horror it's going to bring, but to be honest, George sweeps us off our feet with the writing here, and he's not going to let go. 
Winter, said Sir Kevin. The word made a white mist in the air. He turned away from the window. Then something slammed him in the chest between the ribs, hard as a giant's fist. Ah, here we go. Clap, clap, clap. Edge of the seat. How could we have ever doubted George? Of course the death is coming. Our drama is here. The big moment, the ending of the book is most definitely coming. And to be honest with you, it becomes very, very hard, as it always does with the key moments of the books, to resist just reading through its speed to the end. George has us in his grip. So Kevin Lannister, he looks down to find that he's been shot with a quarrel. There's the irony of him meeting the same end of his beloved brother, of course, the one he idolised and imitated, and it's not lost on him or us. Now he's bleeding out. He's wondering who has done this, as are we, and then we're hit with a double whammy. Then he saw. Grandmaster Pycelle was seated at his table, his head pillowed on the great leather-bound tome before him. Sleeping, Kevin thought, until he blinked and saw the deep red gash in the old man's spotted skull and the blood pooled beneath his head, staining the pages of his book. All around his candle were bits of bone and brain, islands in a lake of melted wax. He wanted guards, so Kevin thought. I should have sent him guards. Already, before the true ending comes, we have a punctuation point. The death of a major and long-standing character. But we'll have to take stock in a moment. We're too caught up in the river to stop here. Kevin is still so confused, he actually thinks Cersei might be right, as he calls out for Tyrion. I mean, who else could rot revenge? Who else has used a crossbow before? And that is very much the point, isn't it? But while he calls out for his nephew, a voice answers from the dark, and are wondering on who has done this, if Cersei is caught up with him, or maybe even the Tyrells are more dangerous than we thought, ends. He stood in a pool of shadow by a bookcase, plump, pale-faced, round-shouldered, clutching a crossbow in soft, powdered hands. Silk slippers swaddled his feet. Varys? Boom. There's your mic drop. There's the big moment for the end of this book. The huge, gigantic reveal of Varys not only being alive, but being active and being in the Red Keep, as far as we know, for this entire time. Two books he's been missing for, with us never having a single sign of him, not once. Tyrion's escape pushed him into a new era of whatever his grand plan is. He's assumedly operating 100% within the walls now. What has he been doing? He's been here ever since that moment, plotting and planning, and who knows what else that he's had a hand in. Make no mistake, this is one of the more amazing parts of reading this series, this huge question mark that George has just shattered with the ultimate surprise. It requires a lot of thinking, and we'll get to that in a second, because there's still reading to do if we can contain ourselves for a few moments. Because the excitement is too good, we've got to read it. You talk about throwing the book in the fire sometimes, now is one of those moments you have to stop and jump around for a second because the thing is just so damn good. Varys lowers his weapon, confirming he is our killer here, and then gets on with being exactly the Faris we remember to be honest. There's no sudden change in accent or demeanour or anything like that. He is who he was as he speaks gently to Sir Kevin in that light voice that we remember. He even apologises for what he's done. It is not an act of spite or malice apparently, but just to serve his own goals. I think even here we get very excited because Varys is forever Mr Riddle. He's always hidden by a screen of secrets, but if you can't be honest with a dying man, then when can you? So we get the sense he might be about to say some rather important things and give us our biggest ever window into his true self. The one we've never even glimpsed, really. The one that's been around since the very beginning. It is one of the longest, largest, most important questions in all Song of Ice and Fire. What does Varys actually want? Well, it looks like we might be about to find out. Varys right here says he's doing this for the realm. For the children. It seems like we're going to get more than that, though. Even now, we can start to wonder, because we had a very long argument back in the olden days about Varys' morality surrounding the children, those he used as disposable spies. We wondered just how many had perished in his service. Now he claims to be trying to help them? Does that work? And besides, how does this act achieve that? Is he just talking bullshit? In fairness to him, Kevin's reactions and first thoughts in his dying moments are centred on his wife and children. He's selecting what's truly important. So again, 
George is giving us that sense that someone can be good and bad. Kevin tries to rally. He tries to threaten or intimidate Varys by reminding him he's in a castle full of Lannister men. But it seems like Varys has always been in a castle full of Lannister men and none have ever been even aware of his presence. Besides, let's talk basic logistics, cold hard reality. None of them are in this room, so they might as well be on the wall. The sense of mastery and trickery, the sense of awe we get really, is now radiating off of Varys. And he chooses to ride that by giving further explanation of why he is doing this, for we really still have no clue. This pains me, my lord. You do not deserve to die alone on such a cold, dark night. There are many like you, good men in service to bad causes. But you are threatening to undo all the Queen's good work, to reconcile Highgarden and Castle Rock, bind the faith to your little king, unite the Seven Kingdoms under Tommen's rule. Well, first thing to pick out of that is, good guy? You think Kevin is a good guy? And maybe you haven't been paying attention, Varys. But either way, now we get the intrigue. Now our minds are really going into overtime, working out what all this means. Varys is claiming this truly isn't personal, that he is literally trying to achieve an aim, and that Kevin is no more than collateral damage. And why? Because he wants chaos. Because Kevin was getting too good, and the actual travesty that King's Landing was becoming under Cersei's rule was starting to improve. Now whether that was the Coalition, or Tommen and the Faith, or the better rule of the realm at large, which is questionable by the way, who knows how good they would have actually done, but they would have been better than Cersei, which seems to be Varys's point. So the larger question is why? Why does Varys want the realm broken and in chaos? He just said he was working in service of the realm, didn't he? So what's going on here? Is it just spite, or does this link in with his connection to Illyro on that entire storyline that sometimes it's easy to forget? It's very hard to think of such while we're caught up in this strong current, of course. And on top of it all are questions about how much of that previous chaos was Varys' work in the first place. A cold wind blows just to connect us to the next book title again, and Kevin realises he can't get up. So he's a goner, for sure. Instead of getting answers for Varys' aim, we get them on his playbook instead. We see how he sows such chaos as he hints at what the reaction will be. Ever suspicious Cersei will think the Tyrells would have killed Kevin and Pycelle. We already covered earlier that there are concerns about that, and thanks to the crossbow and her paranoia about death coming out of the walls, she'll also blame Tyrion, probably. Of all the things the walk might have changed, it did not demolish that obsession from her. In turn, the Tyrells will suspect her, because she had more than enough motivation, and her recent trauma can easily be pointed to as evidence of someone going over the edge. Someone will blame the Dornishman, he says. I think that sentence alone shows Varys has an incredibly clear and untainted view of how this game works. He might genuinely understand it better than anyone else, because he knows it's inevitable. He knows human nature and the interaction of these houses and powers, and he truly can understand that. Hence, he can also manipulate it. Because the thing is, he's absolutely right. We know how true all of that is, each one of his points that he makes here. Even if the Dornish weren't on their way, they would be blamed for something as sneaky as an assassination, as if that never happens anywhere outside of Dawn. And then there's the Oberyn motivation, or even Elia motivation to be fair. Or Cersei may be worrying that they found out about her plan for Justaine or whatever else. Now they'll have the Dornish in town to point the finger at, and Varys understands that even if no one actually thinks they did it, someone will say so anyway because that's how the game works, because they'll find some advantage in it, and they'll all turn on each other because that's what they tend to do. We knew Varys was a master player in the game, but we never knew to what extent. We've talked in this final act of the book and in these many final chapters about that concept of bow tying, going back to revisit the old themes and plot points, not just as a reminder, but to take stock of them, appreciate them, link them to the current day. I consider this here with Varys to be the largest of all, as he gives an almost meta take on that original point of the entire series here, the Game of Thrones. Varys is somewhat above the game. He's not really part of it, he's a lord by name only, he's part of the background, and yet, turns out he's the ultimate player. It was laid out from us from the very beginning of the series. It's just as strong here, and now at the end of what we've got. And then, finally, we get told why. He's doing this to erode the ground beneath Tommen's feet. 
to weaken his reign, his grip on the Iron Throne, his grip on the Seven Kingdoms. He's doing this to destabilise it. And we feel bad for Tommen, of course, but the question still exists of why. Until we get our answer, we finally learn what it is that Varys wants, and we get a massive, masterful reveal of the whole series. And I'm going to read it to you at length because it's my podcast, we've come this far, and I can do it if I want to. Doubt, division, and mistrust will eat the very ground beneath your boy king, whilst Aegon raises his banner above Storm's End, and the lords of the realm gather round him. Aegon? For a moment, Kevin did not understand. Then he remembered. A babe swaddled in a crimson cloak, the cloth stained with his blood and brains. Dead? He's dead? No. The eunuch's voice seemed deeper. He is here. Aegon has been shaped for rule since before he could walk. He has been trained in arms, as befits a knight to be. But that was not the end of his education. He reads and writes. He speaks several tongues. He has studied history and law and poetry. A scepter has instructed him in the mysteries of the faith since he was old enough to understand them. He has lived with fisherfolk, worked with his hands, swum in rivers, amended nets, and learned to wash his own clothes at need. He can fish and cook and bind up a wound. He knows what it is like to be hungry, to be hunted, to be afraid. Tommen has been taught that kingship is his right. Aegon knows that kingship is his duty, that a king must put his people first and live and rule for them. So there it is, in black and white. Varys is on the side of Aegon Targaryen. He is, he has always been, on the side of a Targaryen restoration, and it's honestly hard to get across what a galaxy changer that is. As we've just said, Varys has been around from the beginning, so now our view on the entire series, all five books and what happened within them, completely changes in an instant. It's amazing. But more to the point is why he's on that side. After the reading will come many fandom theories about blackfires and secret identities and all that, but for right here, Varys tells us that it's because he's not only understanding the game, he wants to break it. As he lists here, with his voice deepening, giving the impression of the act falling away and us actually getting a look behind the curtain, what they've tried to build in Aegon is the perfect king. One who has every required part after years and years of almost everyone lacking some massive piece. They've made sure he can fight, that he's smart, that he's religious. More than that, they've made sure he understands the people, that he's seen the world how it really is, that he will appreciate and protect the small folk, the general person. Whereas Tommen, through no fault of his own we should admit, doesn't. He doesn't think like that, like so many kings before him. So Varys is trying to change the world. He wants a true king, and rather than wait around for fate to do it, which is so often very disappointing, he's created his own to come along and make Westeros a better place, to see some actual improvement. The sheer scope of this dream is pretty unimaginable. How can anyone even think that big? So that ties in with his reasoning. We understand now. Weaken the realm, clear the runway for Aegon to swoop in and play the saviour. We knew some of these general bullet points already, we just didn't know the specifics or how far Varys actually went. Westeros will be in woe. Someone will arrive with a dragon on their chest and many will suddenly start jabbering about how things were better in the good old days. We've seen that already long times ago in Harrenhal and other places. It's that link to old themes again. And that will allow Aegon instant allies and support from both high and lowborn rather than taking years to build all that up. So it all makes sense and it's all incredible. The sheer depths and details of these plans, all the thousands of tiny pieces that Varys has been working over many, many years, not only to achieve this state of anguish, but to achieve it at the exact right time, that's the real hard part, it's mind-boggling, truly. The whole thing comes with many, many questions, such as the morality, or even the maths, of plunging a realm into war and misery with so many lives ruined or ended in order to bring in someone to make lives better again. Clearly, Varys is opting for the long-term change, but does that make it right to build such a new era with blood? You can scale that all the way up and down between a huge civil war down to Varys' own uses and abuses of his little birds. Another huge elephant in the room is what this means for Aegon's identity. 
Does this mean he really is the real deal? Or rather that Varys just knows people need to believe he's the real deal to let him in the front door and therefore incite change and make the world a better place? Or is Varys himself duped as well? He could be swapped twice, I guess. That's perfectly possible. How much of a personal stake is there in this? We know there's one for Illyro, so is that the extent of it for Varys? That this is really his friend's son, or he is involved on a blood level as well, maybe? Is this all just some bullshit to justify getting his kid on the throne, or can it be both? And from there, we can ask what do we think of Varys now? How does this frame him? If we genuinely do think his overall aim is to make the world a better place, by whatever massively complicated method, do we think of him differently now? All these questions are of zero matter to Kevin Lannister, who generally could have forgotten in that passage. He's in pain. He's dying. He calls out for help from his guards. The wife he really wants, or his big brother, the one he loves the most, who he thought would always protect him. Blood is coming from his mouth. It's nearly time. Varys notices the suffering and tries to prove that he's genuine, that this isn't personal, it actually is just a requirement, and he doesn't want Kevin to be pained. So comes the end. Varys whistles and his little birds appear. Yeah, whistles. That stuff really creep you out. Kevin is cold as ice, so George is again trying to get that specific theme and framing into our heads for the next book, but that's overridden by this horror scene at the end. We've always known about the little birds right from the beginning, but we've never actually truly seen them. They're all around him. Half a dozen of them. White-faced children with dark eyes, boys and girls together, and in their hands, the daggers. It's creepy on every single level. It's chilling to see children murder someone, to see them looking so ghostly and ill. There's the fact that Varys whistles at them like pets, or how about the sheer horror that these kids have been so abused they've turned into killers. Think of how much that must mess them up that they're killing at this age. So we've just had this whole argument of Varys being a good guy, on a macro level maybe, only to find out he's still absolutely beyond evil on the micro level. He's trying to save children down the road by being awful to the ones of the present. It's collateral damage again, and it requires a cold, detached logic that is very difficult to even imagine and probably borders on insanity. But there is our big moment. There is our dramatic ending, which doesn't seem good enough words for it, does it? George did not fail to deliver. Two major players of the entire story and this specific version of King's Landing are now dead. There is no public murderer, the city will fall into chaos and winds if it wasn't going to already, the Seven Kingdoms will follow, or while all these other storylines like Cersei's trial and everything else are still going on. But more important is that Aegon, or the idea of him at least, is the JIT. This is an operation far exceeding what we could have imagined, and even though we've only met him in this book, he's actually been part of the entire series, right from the beginning. This dance is so much longer than we thought. It gives you a whole new understanding on what this book is and why it has this title. We always knew this storyline would be huge, but it seems so much more validated now after this. We've had our entire view changed on both that plot and the overall series direction with just one chapter, one scene really. It's pretty incredible. A very worthy epilogue indeed. This thing is real. It is coming to change the world as we know it. The entire series takes on a whole new look. The dragons are really, truly here. Play the music. That is all such a rush, it's hard to even stop and consider the wider implications. And time is running on here, but we'll give it a little bit of thought before we go. We could simply go on and on about the Varus reveal and how major that is. How it reframes the entire series and all of that stuff. I don't think I really got across the importance of that, but it's probably not even possible. So let's cast the scope a little bit wider to close here. Well actually, before we go out further, I really, I really want to concentrate on the children again because it's just so striking what's been done to them and how creepy they look i mean this is a whole series we've said it a thousand times about protecting children and not just the physical safety of keeping them from dying but from existences like this these children have been failed in that respect obviously most likely because of their cultural or socio-economic background 
And we have to ask that same question we asked all the way back in Game of Thrones about how many children have had to do things like this? How many have been used and corrupted? And, oh, well, we, we talk about Kyvan and his necromancy and creepy things he's doing. Well, it's not all that far from turning children into killers, is it, really? As moral lines go, you can't really find a lot that's lower. So that's just a real benchmark again for what Winds of Winter is going to be and what kind of series we're dealing with here. I I know the the actual event, the murder of Kevin and what Varys reveals about himself is the big news ticket, but the way that it's done I really think should strike harder us. But okay, let's let's scope out a little bit further. What does all this mean for everybody involved? Well, let's think about our other dragon first. If we're going to talk about Aegon being a dragon, what does it mean for Daenerys and her eventual plan to come west? We already know that the original plan was for Aegon to join with Danny. Therefore, he would get some dragons, get some bonus Unsullied, and everyone else that Danny had gained, and then he could use them to take Westeros. That would be even better in terms of power and persuading people to not even bother fighting you if you've got that many coming across the sea. Plus, it would be extremely helpful for validating your claim that Aegon is a Targaryen if he comes in with his own dragon. That's very much good enough proof for everybody. Of course, the flip side of that is if he arrived and couldn't control or ride a dragon, then the questions of legitimacy would get much louder. Considering this is obviously an element of their original plan, should we take that as a mark of confidence from Varys slash Illyro that they really think Aegon is the real thing if they were going to involve dragons? I'll leave that up to you. But either way, thanks to Marine and Tyrion a little bit, that didn't happen. Aegon came west with just the Golden Company, and Varys appears to be rolling with that. We assume that Illyro knows about this by now, and I'd also bet that Varys is still communicating out of the Red Keep via his little birds and is aware of the general situation. So, if they are running with this invasion, as is, and are still confident that this can work, which certainly does seem likely, then if all goes as planned and Aegon wins the Iron Throne, then what do Varys and Illyro think will likely happen when Daenerys eventually comes knocking? Well, I think there are three options. Number one. They figure or hope that Daenerys just never makes it out of Marine or decides to stay there or somewhere else on the other side of the world. And this is probably the least likely in their heads as well. It seems everyone's agreed that she will eventually decide to come home, but perhaps they just don't give her great survival odds. Maybe they just figure she won't reach it. Again, perfectly possible if you've heard the stories. Number two, they want her to come west, for then they can still usurp her dragons and add her power to Aegon's. Most likely, Aegon would have been married off by then to Ariane or whoever it might be, although I suppose it's not outside their morality view to have certain accidents happen if needs be. But they could still want to bring Daenerys into the fold to strengthen the new dynasty if, if, they naively believe she would ever be okay with such and just accept it. And in fairness, they could actually just be that naive. Daenerys has been underestimated by these people at every turn, so why stop now? The other option, of course, is that they could be fine with forcing her to join the ship and relent her own claim slash power, or just be willing to have her killed once she brings the dragons across. And then there's the third option. They recognise that Daenerys is never going to accept herself as a now second fiddle, especially not when she's already been a queen elsewhere and has been the centre of attention for so long. They also recognise she is coming with a force of Unsullied, and maybe Dothraki and Ironborn and the Red Priests and the Freedmen and the dragons. And that while they would have liked to have her join and definitely would have liked the dragons, they decide to cut their losses and redirect all their energy into blocking her path to Westeros by whatever means they have. What I'm saying is, don't expect Danny's path westward to be as smooth as you might think. I could easily see further assassination attempts or attempts to steal the dragons, or basically just stall her in any way possible to make sure she never reaches home. What this Varys reveal also tells you is that Daenerys was truly only ever a tool to these people. We already discussed this back when Aegon's existence was first made known to us, so it's not a new thought, but it is hammered in a bit here. It's validated. We know already, originally, she was to be used almost as a patsy, coming in to really flip the Westeros table with Drogo or Viserys, so that Aegon could also play saviour to that scenario. 
When those plans failed, yet again due to Varys and Illyrio hugely underestimating a little thing called free will or the human element, they then decided she could be used as an aid, a supply of these new dragons she appeared to have, and something that could help Aegon. It was never her they valued or wanted, and this is a tragic element of Daenerys' life so far. Aside from those beneath her, she has helped or saved, no one has ever wanted her. She was used to buy the Dothraki by Viserys, Jorah originally intended to use her as a way home, the House of the Undying wanted to use her, Galaza Galare and his dad wanted to use her, Dario too in his own way, and the same with Varys and Illyro. You can see why she has such love for Drogo still after all this time, considering his slightly different approach to her, and you can see why we hope she transcends them all to a place she can never be used again, and is, more importantly, finally valued for just being her. Perhaps, if we are very, very lucky, she will find such a thing in Jon Snow. I'll admit, I never go too far into the Jon slash Danny relationship world, while it's perfectly possible, I can too easily see duty and circumstance not ever letting it get that far. And I think even the idea of it works a little too simply for George, but I bring it up now because this news also affects John, or likely will at some point in the very far future. I still struggle to see this even truly entering wins, but there we go. If, when John should find out that he is Rhaegar's son, then there's already someone claiming to be one of those down in King's Landing. The timing and circumstances of all this are far too difficult to really start guessing at any sort of plot, but it's possible that John and Aegon could come into contact with each other, directly or indirectly. If Aegon is fake, it's something else that John would have to learn, as would Danny, obviously, or perhaps Varys slash Illyro learn about John's status and brand him as the liar or try to kill him off before he can threaten Aegon in any way. For what it's worth, though it is too hard to guess at plot, let me just offer two thoughts. Firstly, I wouldn't be surprised to see multiple Targaryen long-lost claimants popping up all over the place once Aegon comes. I don't think any of them would amount to anything, but if that guy can do it, plenty of others might shoot their shot on the off chance as well. We'll likely see them on a whole scale, from ranting small folk to genuine houses trying to make a real attempt. And secondly, people assume that if John and Aegon do come into contact, it would require John coming south to King's Landing. Maybe it would, but let's not discount the idea that the South will finally accept this grand call to go north and do your duty. If Aegon should still be alive and in power by then, then let's also not discount him insisting on going north himself to defend what he calls his realm, especially if Stannis is still about and doing the same thing in the north. He's a young man, he wants to make his mark, and we've already had hints of this both with Tyrion and with his insistence to lead the attack at Storm's End. Who knows if Aegon does last that long, but if he does, it's possible. It's possible he wants to not be seen as scared, he wants to be the strong guy, and wants to go out and make his mark, like I say. And maybe that's where he'll meet his end, or is found wanting, or whatever it might be. The wide political fallout from this reveal, and the intentions of what this does, how it affects the political landscape, and talks to the themes that we've, that we've been discussing right from the War of the Five Kings, is another subject far too wide to tackle here. We could go into each kingdom, and how they would specifically react to news of the Targaryen return. We could get into specific houses, and old allegiances, and who might be looking for a change, or whatever else. We could even talk about Stannis and his reaction to this news. Does he still maintain his claim if the Targaryens return to take what Robert took? We say yes, of course he does, but if Aegon is then successful, well he just copied Robert, didn't he? He took it by force. It all gets very, very complicated. As I say, this could easily be the subject of a whole other podcast, and maybe it will be in the future. But for now, let's get back to this specific scene and act. Let's talk reaction. Let's talk optics. This is going to be big, big news across the board. As mentioned, Varys has played this perfectly in terms of pointing the finger at multiple parties. The Tyrells will blame Cersei. Cersei will blame the Tyrells, etc, etc. That's all true, but just consider the optics of the fact itself. The Regent and the Grand Maester were both very obviously and brutally murdered, right in the middle of the Red Keep. It's not even particularly well hidden. This wasn't in the dead of night, it wasn't like poison or something that subtle. 
they had their head caved in and were butchered by daggers. So what does that say about your operation as a as a monarchy, as an establishment? What picture does that paint of how strong this monarchy is? Does it give the impression of people in control or of just general safety? Even if we forget specific finger pointing, it paints the whole thing as unstable, which is exactly what Varys intends. If they're smart, they'll grab any random prisoner and claim it was he who did the deed just to provide a scapegoat. Because if the idea is you can literally die anywhere or any time in the Red Keep, we'll see something similar to what happened at Winterfell and the Bolton Alliance. All the bonds will be strained, all the castle folk will be whispering, all the doubt will be sown. And again, that's intentional. The city will ask, why should we support these people if they can't keep members of their own small council safe? Should I be siding with them if it's going to earn me a crossbow bolt? Is it safe to even take that job? Will there be a revenge killing on the Tyrell side now? All those questions and more are going to be asked both in the Red Keep and nationally. Having a small boy as king makes the whole thing fragile in the first place, but now you add all this in, it just makes the entire situation much worse. Unless you're on the side of Jonkon, of course. I also wonder what the Tyrells do now with their majority council. Pycelle and Kevin are dead, Harris Swift is across the narrow sea. Do they do some PR and reputation control and try and appoint some Lannisters slash neutrals to maintain a look of fairness or innocence? Or do they say, well, we didn't create the situation, but if it's full into our hands, let's take full advantage and really just full on take the crown now. And we'll have majority control of Tommen and we'll put our own people on the small council, a movement that Cersei is sure to try and prevent by whatever means necessary. And that brings us on to the idea of who is going to fill these two massive roles in terms of governance. It's not something you can ignore, especially for the position of region, and this one is the most intriguing to me. Who will take that spot? Will Mace simply fill both roles as Tommen's father-in-law? He's the hand, he can assumedly make that choice and name himself. That has been done historically, I believe, so there is precedence, but it's not been done in recent memory. Then again, the entire act of regency is not commonplace, not for the Iron Throne anyway. Elsewhere, sure, but not for the crown. Prior to Joffrey, there hasn't been a regent required since Aegon III, that's the end of Fire and Blood, that's 150 years ago, give or take, by this point. So there's absolutely room for bending the rules. What should be recognised, and would probably be a sticking point, is that this regent would be outside the king's family. Again, there's precedence in history for that, but not lately. For Joffrey and Tommen, the regents so far have been their mother and their granduncle. Yes, I always have to go back and check, because it always seems like Tywin was the regent, not Cersei, because he was calling the shots. But no, it has always officially been Cersei. So that just goes to show you how much Tywin was taking advantage of family dynamics, rather than what was official. So House Lannister, Cersei specifically, we're going to guess, will kick off and say, no, you can't just cut us out of the deal entirely. We want control over the boy that we provided in the first place. And Mace will chuckle jovially and say, well, he's his father-in-law now, so they're all family, aren't they? But clearly that's not going to placate the Lannister clan. Which also begs another question. Who takes hold of the reins for House Lannister in general now that Kevin is gone? Cersei has just been publicly separated from them, so does she now take control once she's cleared from her trial, or is it Davin? Well, the answer to both questions is that there would likely be a really big push for it to be Jaime on both counts, both regent and head of the house, in an overall sense, of course. He'd leave Castle Rock to Davin, but representing them in King's Landing would probably be his responsibility. So does that happen, do we think? I say, no chance. Even at the best of times, we know that's not Jamie's style, but he's just rededicated himself to being Lord Commander, he's been out in the field, which he loves, and also he's just walked off with Brienne anyway. So even if he does reappear from that, which is very doubtful, I really can't see him taking on either role. Maybe Regent, just because he wants to protect Tommen, but I say no. There will be calls for Jamie, even though Cersei will still be the loudest Lannister left, but Mace does seem most likely to actually take it, at least at the beginning. So it will be left for the remnants of Kevin's side to try and shout their corner, because it really does look like the Tyrells have carried out a theft. Plus, this is the second of their family, the Lannisters I mean, to be murdered in the capital within a year. Now, one of them was by one of their own, but still, it's not on, is it? I even wonder if Jenna Lannister could be summoned from the West and come over East instead to sort everyone out. That'd be pretty cool. 
I'd like to see some good Cersei Jenna scenes. Yeah, that'd be great. But even with all our wondering, Varys surely has some extra measures to keep things uneven rather than letting the Tyrells create too strong a foundation. And this is all redundant anyway, seeing as we know that Aegon's on his way, but still, we wonder. That's all just about the Regency, but what about the position of Grand Maester? That must be filled also, which means the Citadel are now going to get more involved with the Iron Throne than ever before, should they continue to function with everything that's happening with Euron, obviously. Or does the Tyrell influence extend there as well? The Citadel is in the reach, of course. And while we're talking of the position, let's give a brief nod to Pycelle, an honest staple of the series. He's been around forever. He's just always there. He's been involved with bunches of different plots throughout the years, especially at the beginning, of course. In terms of legacy for the guy, that's pretty hard to actually sum up. He's been a toady, a turncloak, a liar, a moron, although he has also been shrewd or cunning, and at times he seems like he genuinely has tried to serve. And in all fairness, Cersei was rubbish to him. I don't think anyone is really going to miss him as a person, but just for the weight of character, this is a big one. He was present for so much in the series and prior. He was knowledgeable about so many events and kings and people because he was actually there. And now he's gone is yet another sign of a new stage coming to King's Landing. Let me remind you, he was the only remaining member from the original small council we were introduced to in A Game of Thrones. So that goes to show, doesn't it? And if that hasn't convinced you, what about this? In terms of total chapters appeared in throughout the series, for all the characters, this guy ranks 12th. 12th. Think of the huge, huge characters we have above him. Lysel somehow manages to be in the 12th most chapters out of everybody in the entire series. Just to get that across, it does make you think, doesn't it? Now really, he seems like he was just collateral damage because he was on Kevin's side, but also he would have been one of the more knowledgeable and Varys, and Varys would honestly recognise the guy's value, so there's worth in his death. The biggest question for me about his death is what book he was reading. This is one of those things a whole reread project can make you suspicious about. Why did George point that out? Is it a hint of some sort? The description seems like it matches that old lineage book that Ned looked at, but then again, it also matches a whole bunch of other books too, so that's no help. Is it something to do with the invasion? Is it something to do with Cersei's trial or this Winter Raven? There's no guesses here, but I just think it's important. I hope we do find out. I just like hearing about books, to be fair. This kind of ending scene can be talked about for hours, obviously, you can see, <laughs> evidently, but this is already looking like it might end up rivaling last week's episode, and I should probably let you go eventually. I had thought to maybe include some thoughts about the book overall here, but then again, we've covered a lot of that as we've gone, and I was able to talk about much of it and the feeling of the book overall on History of Westeros and a little bit early on today as well. I still think this overall ending of Dance is unique and amazing to look at from a structural point of view about personal cliffhangers versus the public, etc, etc. These amazing plot points that we've left our characters and our regions on, not just the coming battles, of course, we know they're the biggest, but we've got Danny and the Dothraki, Aya and her new powers, Davos's mission. We can now rejoin the great feast cliffhangers as well of Sansa in the Vale, Sam in Old Town, or most importantly to me personally, Brienne, Jamie, and Catelyn. And yeah, I don't think I need to point out the death of Jon Snow and the precipice upon which the world generally stands. Winds has been set up like no other book, not just because of the real world reasons, but because no book bleeds into another like Dance and Winds. We've never known so much about a beginning, we've never theorised so much about an opening act, we've never had such huge plot points to come so early on. It's going to be incredible. And as I leave you here, I'll share with you that I've been thinking about the winds of winter recently, as we tend to do pretty much every day, I'm sure, most of us, but I've been actually trying to visualise it. Visualising having this, I'm assuming, gigantic book in my hands, a hardback, which annoys me, I'd hate hardbacks, I've got them all in paperback, but still, I'm not waiting a year, I'll have the hardback, I'll have it in physical form, whenever that day comes, and you take your time, George, I don't mind when it comes, not at all, but when it does, can you actually really imagine what it's going to be like, opening up and 
turning the page and finding out new information about this world, about this world that many of us, especially if you've been along for this podcast, have just spent so much time thinking about and all these facts that are so drilled into us for, for a number of long, long years, so drilled in and so just concrete and we're going to find actual new stuff. And we've had that here and there of the World Book and Fire and Blood and everything like that, but this is going to be very, very different, obviously. And it's just going to be, I mean, exciting isn't the word, is it? It's like you're going to be sailing off the edge of the map. You're going to be exploring the world. And as I say, we know this book is going to be full to the brim of major, major events. I really don't think there's going to be a boring page in it. There's just no room. You're going to be racing through. You're going to be loving every minute of it. And I can't wait for me personally to experience that. I can't wait for all of you to experience it, the fandom in general. And I've got to tell you, I know there'll be at some point like a race to finish it and get the first scoop and start analyzing quickly and that's fine if people want to do that and if people want to absorb that that's absolutely fine but for me personally that's the last thing i want to do i'm going to make winds of winter last i'm going to really enjoy it i'm turning off all social media i'm completely disappearing for a little while i'm just going to sink into the book and then i'll probably just float afterwards with everything that's happened i'm sure i'll be stunned by the plot points and reveals and I might even read it again before I ever start talking about it I really think it'll be a long time before I ever try and start analyzing or anything like that I just want to enjoy it and I'd recommend you take that as well there's no rush there's no competition here just appreciate the book you'll eventually have in your hands and appreciate the fandom that brought you to it even more I don't think I can stretch it any longer everybody this is the end of scraps and scrolls this is the end of our reread project this has been truly truly special a truly special experience for me and I I had planned to say much more about you know where we were when this started as a podcast what was happening back then nearly two years ago don't forget how the episodes have changed so much from literally just bullet point notes very short episodes to what it grew in the middle and even from then it's changed and we've become like I mean let's not joke around this has become like a line by line reread project we're still similar to Valoridis in lots of ways. We're different from Valoridis in lots of ways as well. I think that's great that you've got the choice of both. And in terms of that line-for-line line approach, I'm not sure if anyone else has really gone to that level. That's not uh, any kind of insult. You know, I'm all respecting for everyone else that's done similar projects and everything like that. I'm not sure if that particular focus has been looked at. Maybe it has, but either way, it was a different stage for us to reach, and it's been it's been great. Been a lot of hard work. Don't mistake that, trust me, but it's been amazing and I've loved it. I know I complain about lack of sleep and my wrist bloody hurting and just how much has had to go into it, but it's worth it if you guys enjoy it. And you apparently have. You've said such wonderful, kind, personal things to me that, I mean, they mean a lot. They really do. I know it's getting sappy and I know your ears hurt. You want me to just shut up so you can get on with something else instead. But I've got to tell you, when people say things like I give more focus to marginalised people or I look at people's specific situations better or, or someone has just said to me at one point, you just seem like a decent person because of what you say about what's going on in these books. I mean, what? there isn't a higher compliment, is there? I passed that one on to my mother and she seemed very, very happy. So for everyone, I know I'm tooting my own horn and being a bit cocky there, but I had to mention when th people say things like that, when they say you don't seem pretentious and they say things about the content, they say things about you, it does mean a lot. So thank you has to be the biggest message as we close here. We've all been through a really, really rough time of late and if this has helped anyone for even a minute, if it's just lightened that load that we've all had to bear, 
then fantastic. If this is your passion, well, it's given me something to do, first off, because let me tell you, it's been, I think it's this week, it's been like a full year since I last played in a basketball game. If you know me whatsoever, so I've been told not to breathe for a year. So this has at least given me something else to focus on. And I thank you for that again. I've loved interacting with all of you. And it's still so weird to say that I, or more to the point that I really has fans. <laughs> it's weird to say, but it is also wonderful. These books, these, this series is wonderful. And I give my thanks to you, of course, for making this podcast possible and making it what it is. But I give my thanks to George in the first place, just for giving it to us. I bow down to you, sir, for just the experiences and the emotions that we all feel at it. As well as everything that's come out of it, like I said right back at the beginning, hours ago now, think of the projects, think of the friendships, the partnerships, the communities and opportunities and everything. We're all in very different places because of this series. So we have to say thank you yet again. It is amazing. It is the best. Thank you, George. And thank you, everyone. Could I say more? I definitely could. I could waffle and I could waffle and I could waffle about this podcast, about this experience and just the Isle of Faces in general. But I will let you go. Perhaps I will say more at a later date. Maybe I'll give more of a roundup, whether on this medium or via something else. To be honest, I'm just finding it weird to not give you more chapters. To not say, okay, next week we're looking at, because we're not. <sighs> give us a hug. Go on. And like I said at the beginning, this aisle is not done yet. So keep staying in touch. I love that, but we definitely don't want to lose that. Keep chatting with me and send in your ideas. What do you want me to talk about? What do you want this aisle to be for? It is yours, after all, you should have a say. So tweet me, put a message in on Patreon. You can email whatever you want to do. You might have ideas, you might have requests. You might have complaints still. They're fine as well, perfectly acceptable. Or maybe you do want to chit-chat. We'd love that as well. Ideas will be forthcoming. I will be asking for opinions, especially on Patreon. So if you'd like to have your voice heard, you might want to head over there and see what you like. But there will be things coming, not to worry. I must say, yet again, huzzah, for everything that this series has given this podcast, everything this podcast has given me, and you. I must admit, I personally, after this is done, I will rest. <laughs> I am definitely going to try and find some time to sleep. I also will be tackling some other things. The world is slowly opening back up, so circumstances might change, jobs might change. We'll have to see. We can tackle all that when we get to it and frequency and patron tiers and all that kind of thing. That's still to come. We shall see. But yes, definitely first, some sleep, some food might be nice. And then probably some time with Princess Zelda. She gets it every day anyway. Don't let her ever tell you different, but there can always be a little bit more. In the same way, there will be more Isle of Faces. So huzzah again. Thank you again. We will see you next time. Keep watching the shores. We will be back. See you later, everyone. Thank you again.
Ah, you'd thought you got rid of me, hadn't you? But no, I'm still here. Welcome to the first Iron Faces post credit scene. Well done you, if you even got to the beginning of the ending tune there, especially if you've waited till the end. Is this where I'm secretly going to tell you what we've got coming up? No, it's not that unfortunately. But maybe I could just give some hints. Some of these could be true, some of these could be lies. Here's just some titles of things coming up, just to maybe whet your appetite. Things like Scraps and Screens, The 100 Club, Scraps and Legends, Scrap and Send, and much, much, much more. So there's just a little sneaky thing to get your mind worrying. Until then, we'll see you later.